Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. This is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Ah! It Could Happen Here is the podcast that this is right now. Would you guys, when you guys solo intro this podcast, James Stout, Mia Wong, do y'all, do y'all just like shout atonally ever? Have you, have have y'all tried that yet? I haven't. I, I struggle with the intros. I just say hello, everyone. Mm. Uh, mm. Yeah. You know, See, so. James. Uh, nope. Nope. That's I your try that, it next time. That's your that's your East Coast Ivy League elitism uh, coming <laughs> mm-hmm. through. Yeah, yeah, that's that's correct. Robert. Ever since I was born in Boston, I uh, <laughs> I've had that. Uh, yeah. yeah, growing up on a different side of the tracks to yourself, also from Boston, of course. That's right. That's right. Yes. Uh, mm. yeah. uh, in train East tracks Boston. in Boston, mm-hmm. I'm sure. I'm yeah. not allowed mm-hmm. currently to do the accent uh, because Sophie. Uh, is that for legal reasons? Yeah, yeah, I, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. She's got some dirt on me. Anyway, um, <laughs> we are a podcast about things falling apart. And you know what would make things fall apart worse than they already are is if Donald Trump mm-hmm. won a second term. Um, so today we're going to talk uh, partly about that and we're going to talk about the indictments against him. That's the big news, right? Um, the most recent big political news, unless he's been indicted again by the time this episode drops. Oh, Not impossible. He's <laughs> um, still another one ready to drop. But be- for my last count, I think he's at like 78 charges, felony charges at the moment. So... <laughs> Honestly, yeah. he might get to triple digits. <laughs> it's not, he's not all that far. Um, there's, yeah. there, there's stuff like, I, I didn't realize, well, I, I guess I knew intellectually that you could, that you could be charged with conspiracy to do something and then also doing it, but I don't think yeah. I've ever seen, oh, yeah. like, mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen a politician charged with both conspiracy and the actual doing of the thing. Yeah. I hope at some point, assuming, you know, we continue to have something that 
resembles freedom of speech, we'll get a good book about like how the whole process of them ha- like figuring out how and when and whether to actually like go after him. Um, I mean, obviously, we're talking about both like the feds and um, uh, the DA uh, in New York, uh, but I am yeah. interested in both of those stories because it there has to be it, uh, there there have to have been some real interesting conversations. Um, but yeah, we are um, right now. He we're looking at him. Uh, he's about to be arraigned as we talk about this for uh, inciting uh, an insurrection at the Capitol. So so that's pretty cool. Mia, you wanted to to start us off here, I think. Yeah, yeah, and I think this is okay. So this is an interesting indictment in that, like, it, it somehow took them about two years to like actually do the indictment. That's like, hey, it's illegal to overthrow, try to overthrow the government by installing mm-hmm. yourself as president. Um, <laughs> and in fairness, they don't have a lot of experience <laughs> charging people with that one. Well, and, and we, we, we should actually mention they so should <laughs> Bush. Well, here's the thing, Bush. Bush. Actually, we're gonna talk about this more later. But like, Bush mm-hmm. actually got away with this, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the last time a court ruled on whether a president can use the courts to install themselves as president, the Supreme Court was like, "Yeah, that's fine. That's like no problem. Like, yeah, it's fine. You, you can you 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 can have a mob show up and disrupt the counting process, and it's fine." But Trump like fucked up and didn't do it the way you're supposed to. Um, yeah, and, uh, you know, there's something sort of, I don't know, so there, there's something I was thinking about while I was reading this, which is, like, the English language doesn't, I think part of the issue here is, like, we don't, I don't know, the English language doesn't even, like, have a good word for, like, the kind of coup that Trump was doing. Like, there, there's a Spanish word, which is autogolpe, which is, like, yeah, it, yeah. it's translated to, like, Spanish got you covered, yeah, Spanish got a great one. In English, it translated <laughs> to self-coup, and we're just like, ah, we're done. It's like, no, no, that sucks. That I, term I, sucks. I, it's really I bad. I wish I had a better mm. Trump voice, because then I could do, like, autogolpe, <laughs> what is that? Is that, like, a like at like 7-Eleven, the big 64-ounce Diet Cokes that you get? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I can't do a, I can't do a good Trump, so that wasn't as funny yeah. as it should have been. Anyway, whatever. Mia, please continue. With your yeah. heads. We had we had it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I think it's worth kind of thinking a little bit. And we're going to sort of come back to this as we go through this case. But I, th- I think it's worth remembering that, again, like everything Trump is doing in this is based off of um, like is 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 based off of the the sort of Bush thing into in 2000 where he had a bunch of well okay so a, bu- a bunch of Bush's political operatives like stormed uh, 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 one of the one of the places that was doing a, the recount in Florida and stopped them from counting the votes and then they just delayed it in court yeah. long enough that he was able to get appointed now the Brooks Brothers riot Roger yeah. Stone was a major part of that yeah. Yeah, yeah so we we've we've done this. You know, we we talked about this on the show like the end of last year. Um, yeah. But but again, th- so the, the reason this worked though, right, is that Bush made really really sure that there was like a sound legal case sort of behind this entire thing. He 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 made he made really sure to like go through all of the proper like checks and balances and like blah 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 blah. And but and Trump just like didn't do this, and the result of this is that. Jack Smith, like finally two years later, Jack Smith, who's this guy who was he was appointed by Merrick Garland to like take over these two Justice Department cases about Trump, uh, has just indicted him with this stuff. He has. So he's been charged with with three counts of criminal conspiracy and I, what I think is a count of obstruction. So I'm, yeah. I'm going to go through what what he's actually been charged. And with. I, I, I want to note something real quick, which is that another reason 
why it worked for Bush and it, it didn't for Trump is that with Bush, it was legitimately the election came down to Florida, right? Yeah, like it yeah. was it was yes. extremely <laughs> close. It was really just a couple counties in Florida. With Trump, he was not trying to just sort yeah. of like jink jink part of a state. It was like it was a pretty yeah, yeah. It was a state, like Biden had a commanding lead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was a big dub mm-hmm. for Uncle Joe. Yeah. And and you know, I, I so yeah like obviously like trump like just fails at this spectacularly the law is finally coming after him they so they're charging him with uh conspiracy to defraud the united states which again is the thing i didn't know you could do um and lance armstrong got that didn't he did he oh yeah because usps was his sponsor so he was defrauding the federal government oh, shit. Yeah, he yeah, was yeah, doping yeah that's the the don't yeah, the, yeah. don't 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 do post wow, office so trump's the first guy who's not rad to get charged with that sorry james okay i, don't, I didn't i didn't mean, <laughs> i'm now I didn't, leaving I didn't my job <laughs> <laughs> yeah sorry everyone i'm out no worries <laughs> so th- this this one is this is specifically like impairing the election like impairing like the 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 the, the votes of the presidential election the first one is mostly we'll talk about this more in a bit, like the illegitimate electors thing that he did. The second one is just him being charged for they 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 finally found a thing to charge him for doing January 6th, which was they charged him with like conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. And then they got him also with obstruction, obstructing an official proceeding, which, again, seems like a kind of like this is I don't know. It's not quite getting Al Capone for tax evasion, but like you'd think they'd have something like. More trying to overthrow for, the government, yeah, right? Like, yes, yeah, so, yeah, 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 attempting to make yourself a dictator. Bonapartism. Well, not really Bonapartism, but yeah, yeah. Like seditions, right there. Sedition. They, they, that's it a seems fine like one. a choice. Yeah, right. Like it seems yeah, like a no, choice. No, they, they, they got him on obstruction. Like, okay, sure. I don't know. Like this is. I feel like our our. I don't know. Our our, our legal system seems to be sort of woefully unprepared for this. Well, yeah. yeah, it's not. Again, in fairness, everyone has before Trump was willing to play the game, right? Like we are like, obviously, George W. Bush stole the fucking election. No argument there. So did Nixon. Um, but they did it with enough plausible deniability, right? That the elites yeah. were that there was not there was not a fear among the 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 quote unquote deep state or, the, you know, the people, the elites in this country that like this would obviously be someone overthrowing the government, right? In Nixon's case, fucking um, LBJ, like, basically refused to go after him for breaking the law and extending yeah. the Vietnam War and committing treason because it would be bad in his view for the country. Well, horrible mistake, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> and with George W. Bush, you know, the, he had he had the court on his side. And it, like, so there was, there was enough plausible deniability that, you know, it, it was not like it is with Trump, where he was just like, I'm going to have a mob, yeah. <laughs> like, I take yeah, the yeah, capital, yeah. you know? It's like, a dude in a yak hat. You know, I, I, yeah. I was thinking about this, like, the last time someone actually did something like this, I, I, I think it was the corrupt bargain in, like, 1873, where just, like, like they, there was this argument over, well, the like, the Wilmington coup. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I mean, like, yeah, but, like, like on, on, on the presidential level of, like, yeah, like yeah, literally fair. someone, like, like, Rutherford B. Hayes famously, like, I, they, they had basically this incredible yeah. thing where like both parties were like they, they couldn't decide who was supposed to count the votes and which whichever like part <laughs> of the two parties counted the votes was going to declare that they won the th- that they won the election. And so they worked out this like incredible like, basically they worked out this compromise where like the Republicans got Rutherford B. Hayes like in office, but they also ended Reconstruction. 
but yeah. that but and, and that 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 was a period that was long ago enough that like you could do that shit without like involving the courts or involving this sort of like massive state apparatus and you kind of like can't i don't know you you can't outside of like illinois you can't really be that corrupt anymore <laughs> you have to sort of yeah. like you, you i have know to, like, there's a reason san Diego is called enron by the sea mia yeah yeah look, that's true. look you have to you have to respect you know local culture with these kinds of things and and illinois it, it, it would actually be like an act of, uh, of of genocide to try to make Illinois politics not incredibly. Corrupt, oh yeah, I mean, right? Like <laughs> that's, the, of, that's the destruction of a people. <laughs> yeah, like like one one of the most hated political figures in like the entire history of Illinois was this like state senator who went down for corruption, but went down for like a hundred dollars of corruption and like, <laughs> despised. Like one of the most hated political figures in Illinois because he only went down for he only did a hundred dollars of uh, of crimes. Whereas, like, <laughs> our current governor did, like, a bunch of really funny fraud and everyone loves him because it's hilarious. Where he, like, he, like, he, like, took all of the bathrooms out of one of his houses so it wouldn't be awesome. ca- classified as a house. Ah, uh, see, that's, 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 that's the guy you want in charge of your legislative system because he sees a loophole. <laughs> that's the guy, if we ever have a corruption Olympics, that's our only chance at beating the Russians. Well, but like, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I, I, this is, okay, Illinois is going to be our Pritzker, dream team. Like, I got to say this. Coach. Pritzker is the least corrupt governor I've had in my lifetime. This is the least corrupt guy. He is like... Like he is corrupt, yeah, a but man like who never shits. <laughs> yeah, it's I don't Beautiful. know. Illinois yeah. is sort of amazing. Uh, we should probably get back to yeah, yeah, this stuff. And so the last thing mm-hmm. he got was they got him of like conspiracy against rights, or like a conspiracy against the right to vote and have your vote counted. Which sure, yeah, he pretty did that. bad thing to do, I think. Conspiracy, yeah. Wise. I mean, not it's great. it's not good. Like all of the things that yeah. he like they're accusing of, like he pretty clearly did. Um, yeah, yeah. So. I, I want to also talk about the way this has been being talked about in the media, because one of, one of the things that's happening here, and th- this is this is sort of a trend with all forms of like things that are in the written language, is that everyone only reads the first like maybe one chapter mm-hmm. or like especially the first couple of pages of something from any like written document. So this this is why like all the like, you know, the like uh, uh, abandon all hope ye who enter here from Dante's Inferno. That's 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 the reason that's the line everyone knows, because it's in like the first couple of chapters. And in this yeah. one, with this case, the thing that everyone got to was there's this very early part in the indictment where the guy is like, well, yeah, so like it, it is legal to like lie about the election. Like you have the free speech right to do that. But then mm-hmm. also Trump knowingly lied about the election and used it to try to like fraud, do fraud. And everyone's getting really yeah. hung up on this thing about like trying to like the court having to prove that he knew he was lying, which is kind of like an incidental thing to the actual like, like the actual stuff he's getting charged for, we'll get into it. But like, like, it's not just that he was lying; it's that he was like actively trying to get a bunch of state officials to yeah. like appoint him. <laughs> yeah, but but you know, yeah. this has this has led to some just like absolutely hilarious shit from Republicans who are like, none of you can prove that Trump knew he was lying. Like, there's there's no way to know. Yeah. Trump is Trump is is so Trump that like you can't you can't you can't <laughs> yeah. convict him of yeah. lying because he he maybe maybe you just didn't know. It's like yeah, guys, that may not be the defense you think it is. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. this <laughs> motherfucker's so dumb you can't. Like this guy doesn't even know if he's full of shit. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. It's uh, like it's like arguing that like somebody who shoots two or three people to death is not guilty because he had his eyes closed was pulling the trigger. He didn't know where he was shooting. <laughs> you can't. That's not a crime. <laughs> 
The, the other one, been, the other one they've been pulling is the old like uh, 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 he didn't know it was illegal, which I wish yeah, that was how the boy, law worked. That like, is absolutely not how the law works, nope. homies. <laughs> but this is this you is know who you made tell, that like, not how the law works, by the way. Yeah, you like, guys. Well, this, is, this, is, this is how you can tell that like none of these people have ever like had to deal with the legal system at all ever, except for maybe like yeah. I don't know, like one or two of these guys like probably caught weird charges for like unregulated securities selling or some shit but like none of these whom, people have, whom amongst us you know yeah yeah but yeah so so the republican side of it's been very funny okay so before we get into what like specific things they're going after trump for i i want to like talk about what his actual what trump's actual plan was because i think a lot of it's kind of been forgotten so yeah. the, the first plan and this is the part that is that is not actually in this trial at all Right. Like not really like there, 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 there's, there, his initial plan to steal the election was that. OK, so one of the things that happened in, in 2016 uh, was that like absentee voters like over like not overwhelming, but absentee voters like swung enormously Democrat. Right. And that was one of the things Trump mm-hmm. had been using to prove there was like voter fraud or whatever. Um, and then, mm-hmm. you know, COVID happened. And so Trump had this like, you know, had, had, a, had a plan, which was like. On a what he's like okay so on election night it's going to look like I won because they're only going to have counted like they're only going to yeah. have counted the votes that were like done yeah. in person and those are overwhelmingly Trump and I I remember like that night like having to tell all my friends like no 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 these are not the real results this is this is this is just the in person votes the absentee votes yeah. are coming yeah and his initial plan was to try to just like declare victory that night basically yep. try to declare victory immediately and then get everyone to stop counting and that didn't work like even like even fox news <laughs> yeah. wouldn't eventually like stop playing along with it like this got them in huge trouble with trump because they like called arizona yeah <laughs> no, trump. yes he's yeah. still yeah. pissed about that yeah mm-hmm. now and again like this this didn't work so they didn't like he's not being tried for that even though that was also very blatantly an attempt to steal the election what what they are charging him for was so after after so there was like that stuff and there was all these like stop the vote mobs that kept showing up in places. Yes. Stop the count, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was like stop the count, but then also in some yeah. places they were like, we need to count more and some places oh, yeah. need to stop. Yeah, it was like it yeah. was a it was a whole thing. But you know, once once that fails, right, Trump and his coup plotters are like legal people are just sort of like freestyling it. And that's the part where you get to the actual conspiracies <laughs> that he's being charged with here. But before before we get to those conspiracies, do you know what else is a conspiracy? The uh, existence of products and services which you think will improve your life. Uh, yeah, well, how you how go. cheap they are. That's the conspiracy. Yeah. They've lowered the price yeah. so much it is illegal. Mm-hmm. Of all products and services. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, Fascinating. That's Deflation. Incredible news. Incredible news. We're back. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I've got some good news for you. We are all sponsored this week by three shipping crates of illegal contraband Marlboro cigarettes that our buddy Jimmy uh, over at the docks managed to get. So six bucks a pack, guys, six bucks a pack. Just, um, you know, send them to, to Jimmy at protonmail.com. He'll, he'll mail you cigarettes. You know, you Venmo him the cash. He'll send you some cigarettes. There you go. This is probably less illegal than anything we're talking about right now. Yeah, almost <laughs> certainly. <laughs> Look, it's not against the law <laughs> yeah. to sell cigarettes that that you don't pay, pay taxes on. I think we can all agree that that's fine. Actually, no, yeah, yeah, you, you can do uh, that in God's an airport. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think you legally oh, yeah. can do that if you're selling it in an airport. If you're selling it in an airport, yeah, if it's duty free, right? And I, mm-hmm. because I have such a childlike imagination, the whole world is really my airport. Ergo, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I we sh- we can always sell tax free cigarettes here at Cool Zone Media. Mm-hmm. That's why we have the uh, the small plane that that takes off from Robert's yeah. house every day. It's like a yeah. remote control plane, but that's right. He's that's exempt right. From all tax law, it it texts it technically counts, uh, and we are also allowed mm-hmm. to run those uh those Joe Camel ads again. Um, so you know everybody who's '90s nostalgic, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Once you made it. <laughs> All right. So the first conspiracy thing that he's getting charged with is the like fake electors thing. He also yes. has like six unnamed co-conspirators. And we know we probably know who like five of them are. So uh, the first one obviously is Rudy Giuliani, who is having mm-hmm. I the, the, the time of his life question mark. Oh, he is. He is <laughs> like he is melting so funny. live on TV. <laughs> yeah. Like it's yeah. <laughs> um, the, the second one's probably John Eastman. And this is interesting because Eastman is the guy who he's like the legal mind behind January 6th. Where he, he's the guy who like thinks that he's found a loophole in the law that allows like the vice president to refuse to certify the election. Yeah. And so yeah. this is I, I want to make something clear at the outset. Like he does not have like Pence does not have the power to do this. You're not like, allowed to do that. No, no, yeah. no like you <laughs> no, can't do this, right? Yeah, like, yeah. like this is if 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 Pence had gone along with this, that would have been a coup, right? Like that, you yeah. know, they call this. Yeah, like, that would have been a coup. Lawfare, like, there's right? like, not a clause in the Constitution no. that says unless this guy doesn't want to have <laughs> yeah, an like, election. This is not. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. It's some like Admiralty flag tier yeah. fucking legal conspiracy. Yeah. That's that's Reddit not shit. really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, guaranteed it came from Reddit before he found it. That's, yeah. that's where it originates. I, it's some, it's some real bullshit. Like this, somehow again, th- this is the legal basis for what they were trying to do on January sixth. I, I don't know. Words, words fail me. Like tragedy is farce of the Brooks Brothers riot, I guess. But like this is like farce number three. At, I don't know. <laughs> I think the first one, the first one was Nixon extending the Vietnam War in order to uh, uh, win his election. The farce was the Brooks Brothers riot, yeah, and now we're is... at like lead poisoning, brain damage. Stage. Yeah, like, <laughs> like Marx, yeah. This, this is this is this is Marx failed to consider that you could have a third yeah. or fourth farce. Like he only, yeah. he only got yeah, to yeah. one. <laughs> oh, so speaking man. speaking of farce, so the third the third uh, co-conspirator is probably Sidney Powell, who apparently the the, the last I heard about Sidney Powell, I. Uh, He's currently like owns a bed and breakfast and spends all of his time talking with his guests about the Trump administration. So things are going great for Sidney Powell, who is Honestly, one of Trump's lawyers. A, more or less what I would like him to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, if he can just keep sticking to doing that. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So the, the fourth guy is Jeffrey Clark, who doesn't really matter. The fifth guy, I just want to like, OK, so I, I, I partially there's only like only really Giuliani, Eastman and Powell matter. But uh, the, the fifth guy is named Kenneth Chelsebro, which that's okay. No, Mia, <laughs> you're fucking with us now. Like I, that's I, not a name. That's I, not a name. I, I, I got nothing. I don't know. Like that they, is not a name. They they have like dug up members of like the old aristocracy that like I I I got nothing. I, am, I don't know. They're, I've never just, I've never been this angry in my life. That's <laughs> not a name. Making shit up now. <laughs> like that's that yeah, okay it's not cheese bro it's chelsea bro i can't see this person's name i've no idea it's it's, ch- it's c-h-e-s-e bro chessa bro i yeah. don't know there, there's no version of cheese how you bro. say that's that like name a that town outside of boston yeah i uh, i 
I know, I know a guy from Central insane, California like, with bro. that name. See, <laughs> <Is he> bro. <laughs> she, it's, it's, it's okay, so we should bro. also. She's really. That's so bad. That's, yeah, no, I know oh. a guy from Central California with that name. That is that is viscerally uh, upsetting. Yeah. Okay, so, so speaking of viscerally upsetting, so like we should remind bruh. everyone how we should remind everyone how American elections work because it's it's really one of the worst systems anyone's ever developed. So okay, so like as as most people probably know, you don't directly elect the president. What you do instead is each in, in each state of like you vote. Well, okay, so sorry, let's wrap this up. Each state selects electors. Now, there's nothing in the Constitution that says you have to select electors by like voting for them uh it's just that every state chose to do that there's like a whole crank theory of republican like legal jurisprudence where they're trying to use that to be able to just like not basically not have normal elections but you know so because this is like dog shit right like it's it's bad for a number of reasons The, the first obvious one is that like this means you the u.s does not have one person one vote at all like the entire american political system is just a giant violation of the principle of one person one vote because people's votes are just worth more than others because of the electors. The second thing that's really bad, right, is again, like, those individual electors can technically vote, like, however they want to. So you could you could be an elector who's yes. supposed yeah, to vote yeah. for someone yeah. and then vote for someone else. It's actually happened. Although it, it, it well, I'm not mattering, but, like, one of Gore's electors, I think, defected to, uh, uh, what's his name? The third guy who ran, uh, I can't remember his name. Someone in 2016. The, the, the Green Party f- guy, yeah. Um... Someone did it in 2016 as well, I think. Rogue Elector. Yeah. Um, there's a little bit of like, I don't know if this is a good, t- I was going to talk about the difference between procedural and substantive democracy. I could talk about it now or later, but I think it relates to what you're talking about. Sure. Yeah. Let's no, 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 go ahead and do it now. Throw it out. Yeah. There were, there were 10 in 2016. Wow. Some inter- oh, Faith Spotted Eagle is the one I'm thinking of. Someone voted for Faith Spotted Eagle. But yeah, okay, so... One thing I wanted to talk about, like with relation to what you're saying, Mir, is like the difference between procedural and substantive democracy, because I think it's really important uh, when we're looking at like what's happening in the U.S. So when we talk about like a lot of this language comes from the like 1990s obsession with transitions to democracy that happened a lot in political science, right? Like and, and history to an extent, where we were looking at these like post-Soviet countries and post-colonial countries, uh, and as they like move towards this like what's considered a democracy in the kind of neoliberal frame. Um, We talked about procedural and substantive democracy. So procedural democracy, the things which have the institutions and procedures in place, you vote. There there are elections, uh, the ballots are cast, and that results in, in this case, the electors going to the electoral college and the electoral college delivers a president. And then substantive democracy is where people have a substantive say, a, a, a a means of deciding who is in charge, right? Who runs the state. And the US is moving further and further from substantive democracy. Like, it's been interesting to see people bringing that, like, because of course that 1990s discourse was centered heavily in the US, right? As like the paragon of democratic virtue. And then it was used to condescend to other countries and be like, oh, you're not a fully consolidated democracy, right? Then Linz and Stepan, if people want to look up Linz and Stepan, if they're really bored, they can. But um, they talk about like a consolidated democracy being one where uh, democracy is the only game in town. And all of this stuff like was heavily based on kind of aspiring to be the US, right? Countries in Africa, or Eastern Europe aspiring to be an American democracy. And it's very funny now to see that the US doesn't fit 
most definitions of a substantive democracy or a consolidated one. Like, it's not the only game in town for millions of Americans anymore. No. And it, yeah, it's highly amusing. My, my, my other favorite- Yeah, amusing is what I would call it. Absolutely, James. Yeah, it's funny. It's just funny. Nothing bad will happen. It's fine. Yeah, my, my, my other favorite example of like those of like how bullshit those like democracy theorists were was like every yeah. single one of those people, the moment the Zapatista uprising happened, just like immediately shut the fuck up and never mentioned it ever. Like it just does not <laughs> come up like in the thing. Uh. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the like, yeah, a lot of them really had a lot of them also were like too busy looking at things and like the, the, in Spain, right? People looked at Spain's quote unquote transition as one of the earlier models and then went on to model things off Spain. Spain is at best an incomplete transition now, right? People paying attention to the most recent elections will maybe have noticed this. Like Spain is not, Spain is not a country where democracy is the only game in town, right? They had an attempted coup in 1981. And so like they're, they're kind of looking backwards off something because Spain was satisfactory democratic for them, uh, but it certainly wasn't for a lot of Spanish people. So yeah, not a big fan. Yeah, well, and I don't know about you guys, but I think there's nothing wrong with the way we decide things are democracies. Mm-hmm. Seems God great. gave it on the tablets <laughs> so to uh, some old white men yeah. who had slaves, and that that is good. Great. Yeah, it, it's it's been funny also watching those people trying to like actually go back and look at like at what point the U.S. became a de- like a democracy in any real sense, and it's like like we really like. If you're going to do this seriously, you cannot argue that it was a democracy until like after Jim Crow. So like really like the 60s and even then. So like, I don't know, like there's been a lot of attempts to sort of make this stuff work. But then also you have all of this bullshit where, again, like because because it's based on this elector shit, you can like this is how Trump was able to like to try to do all of this very weird stuff. And. This is the sort of, you know, this is the part where we get into like Trump's second plan, which his plan, and this is the one he's actually getting charged for. So his thing was he was trying to get states to just like ignore the popular vote and decertify. So there's this process where like there's a day on which like the, the like electors that do the electoral votes are like certified. And so his he, he was trying to do a couple of things before that he was trying to like get the actual electors like not certified and then have like another set of electors appointed that would vote for him. And then that didn't work. And so he was trying to get so like on that same day, there were also a bunch of slates of electors that like. Like did like a fake appointment thing, basically, like trying to claim they were the real electors in a bunch of states. Yeah, in yeah. Michigan or yeah, somewhere, yeah. right? Oh, okay. Yeah. A couple of yeah. places, I think. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it, it, this one was funny, too, because, like, some of the people who were, like, who, like, got, were on these slates, like, didn't know that they weren't the real electors. Like, yeah. they had just been told that they were the real. <laughs> so they, like, unwittingly were, like, part of this coup attempt. Um, and so the, the indictment, so the, that that that's the second part. And so that also was kind of falling apart. And so then we get to the sort of third thing, which is this entire effort to get Mike Pence to not certify the election or so there's two versions of it. One was that he doesn't certify the election at all. And then the, the second version of the conspiracy was like the, the so there, there were these states set up where Trump had put like a second slate of electors. And the plan was to like have those were like contested states. And so the plan was to have Pence say that like none of those states had actually validly selected electors. So their votes don't matter. And then just like say that Trump won the election. 
And none of this makes any sense. And the reason this is like incomprehensible is that like none of this makes any sense, right? Like this is all just gibberish. It's bullshit. Yeah. But, but into this mess drops Danny Quail. Uh, now, I think everyone, uh, like, okay, so you two know who Danny Quail is. I, 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 yeah. I'm realizing I, I was running into people when I, when I've been talking about this sort of story that I'm about to tell who don't know who Danny Quail is. And I, I, I feel I have a moral obligation to introduce this guy. Yeah. Give the man his full name here. James Danforth Quail. Oh, God, I didn't know his name was Danforth. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <sighs> Normative determinism at its finest here. Yeah. So Quail, I think, is probably most famous for. So he, <laughs> he, he was he was George H. W. Bush's vice president, right? And yeah. so, okay, so I, I want to tell the actual full. So the the, the, the common version of the story that happens is that he doesn't know, he didn't know how to spell potato, and that's true. But the actual story is so much funnier than that. So okay, Quail is so okay. So Quail is is George H. W. Bush's vice president, right? It's 1992. Like the like they're on they're like starting to go into election season. Yeah. And Quail goes to like this spelling bee that's happening in this elementary school to like promote some <gasps> random horrible project. idea. Horrible idea. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah, yeah, yeah. so he asked this there, kid. Buddy. He asked this kid to spell potato. And the kid uh, walks up and he and the kid spells potato correctly. This kid is like eight. Right? This is, this is, a, this is like a middle school. It is like tiny. And then, so, and then, I, I, Quail looks at it and looks at the, apparently they had a card that was spelled wrong, but Quail doesn't realize that the card spelled wrong. So he, he goes no. to the board, he looks at the kid and goes, well, you need just to add something to the end card. of it. And this kid is just yeah. baffled because she spelled yeah. potato correctly. What do you mean? So what the fuck are you talking e about? The, the vice president of the United... That kid's an anarchist now. Like, there's there's no someone, way to... Someone, someone did a follow-up with him. Apparently, he like yeah. he's like a small business owner or something, and he just tells ah, the story tragic. all the time. Uh, very funny, oh. though. But, okay, this, this, not, this was a that's period a good of American history. Kid. Like, mm. this like is one of the reasons that George H.W. Bush didn't win re-election. Like, this broke yeah. 12 unbroken years of Republicans winning every single election. Based... He does seem like a plant. Like a, I've, I don't know if you've got some of his other ridiculous. Oh quotes, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna some read some of his quotes. Okay. So so banging, lest you yeah. think Quail just had like one flub. Like no, he's just like this. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna read a couple. Of, so th there's like a bunch of people who spent a bunch of time extensively documenting Dan Quail quotes because that's what you did on the internet in the 90s. Hey, yeah. Okay. Yeah. The Holocaust was an obscene period in our nation's history. I mean, this century's oh, no. history. But we all okay. lived in this century. Okay. I didn't live in this century. <laughs> <laughs> Huh. I feel like I want to diagram that one. Like, what What were you trying to get sense. across there, Dan? Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, cocaine was really kicking in. <laughs> you know, he has this kind of, in the same way that Trump has, like, this cant in which he does all of his incomprehensible things, like, yeah. Quail also has a cant. Like, he, he does this kind of thing where he does the, like, he says a sentence, and then he says, I mean something else, I mean something else, and it, it, it doesn't, none of them follows from the other one. So he, he has he's one of the other famous ones. Hawaii has always been a pivotal a pivotal role in the Pacific. It is in the Pacific. It is a part of the United States. It is an island that is right there. Wow. <laughs> Fuck me. That's very now, Quail famously you went on to write large portions of Wikipedia, so that, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> yeah. Quail's own Wikipedia calls him an intellectual lightweight and incompetent individual. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's just not untrue. Pretty, pretty hard to argue about that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Mars is essentially in the same orbit. Mars is somewhat the same distance from the sun, which is very important. We have seen pictures where there okay. are canals, we okay. believe, and water. Ah, if there is water, okay. that means there is oxygen. <laughs> if oxygen, okay. that means we can breathe. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Wow. There's a lot, a lot of science coming this out man, of that statement. This man was vice president of the United States. We, we we have a firm commitment uh, to NATO. We are a part of NATO. We have a firm commitment to Europe. We are a part of Europe. Sure. Yeah. <sighs> He's so good. Well, it's- no, you see, Mia, you just you you were not you are not up on your um your geographic history because the mountain ranges in Scotland are the same mountain range as the Appalachians. So technically, we are in Europe. Mm-hmm. Hmm. In many ways. Damn, okay, I've, I've, yeah. been, I've been styled yeah. on by Dan Quayle. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Now, okay, other than the fact that it's really funny, you, like, why why am I talking about Danny Quayle? And the answer is that, okay, so remember, Trump needs, for, for his, like, completely nonsense thing to, like, even kind of go to the next step of failing, he needs to convince Mike Pence and not certify the election. And Pence is, like, legitimately going back and forward on this. He's, like, he's having this, like, moral dilemma, and, like, he, like, wants to do it. But he's having problems making a decision, and so he calls his old friend Danny Quayle. And I think this is a really fascinating moment of sort of, you know, like this. I think it's a really fascinating indication of like how off the rails everything has gotten since, well, really since 2016, but like 2020 sort of just like accelerates the magnitude of this, which is that like Quayle is like the human symbol of the decrepitness of American politics in the 80s and 90s, right? Like this is a guy who makes like senile Reagan look like a genius. And in 2020 and 2021, like Pence is supposed to be one of the like quote unquote adults in the room in 2020. And Pence goes to Quayle and is like, uh, I, what, I, I, need to, I need to do this coup. Like, I don't have a choice. I'm under so much pressure. And Danny Quayle, the man who can't spell potato, instantly is like, no, what are you talking about? Like, you can't do this coup. Like, yeah. you obviously can't do this. And and Pence, Pence just, like, argues with him. He's like, no, no, no. Like, he keeps arguing with him. Like, no, I have to do it. I have to do it. And Quayle's like, what are you talking about? Like, of course you can't, like, not certify the election. Like, what what are you doing? And this actually works. This convinces Pence not to not to, to, to actually certify yeah. the election. And so, you know, we, we, we have reached a point in history where, like, you, you can make an argument. I don't think it's correct, but you can make an argument that Danny fucking Quayle saved the American Republic. <laughs> yeah, he saved <sighs> us from two Republican presidents. <laughs> I, He's done oh. better than Hillary Clinton. I just I I don't know I I can't get over this just like Danny Quayle is yeah. the voice of reason and moderation, and like oh god I don't know yeah, this country it's, it's bizarre the whole thing is is bizarre yeah it's it's bleak um we should do an ad break I don't I don't have a pivot there speaking of auto golpe gulp down these products automatically magical. And we are we are back to a bit more fraud. So, OK, the other I thing is fraud. being just yeah, like the this president. is actually wait, is this actually fraud. No, I, I guess this is the fraud one. It's still technically a fraud one. So yeah, that's part of it, at least. Yeah. So so we, we've reached the like third and fourth. Indictments, it's actually really funny. If you go read the thing, all of the actual text of the indictment with the evidence and stuff is all under the first indictment and then the second third and fourth ones are like yeah go refer to x paragraphs of like the first one so there's the second yeah. third and fourth like charges are like <laughs> like one paragraph long 
But basically, th- this is about the January 6th stuff. They, they spent a bunch of time listing like all of the random stuff that Trump said about the election that was not true. They also have a very funny list of all of the people who told him that like this stuff wasn't true, which includes Mike Pence, uh, the leadership of the Justice Department, the director of national intelligence, the head of CISA, which is uh, the Department of Homeland Security, cybersecurity agency, a bunch of White House attorneys, like his own staff. Uh, and all of his politicians yeah, are supposed to be backing him. He's like, every single person was like, this is not yeah. real. And Trump was like, no, 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 yeah. hold on. Hmm. We, we can still win the election. <laughs> you know, okay, so there's like that stuff. And then there's there's the stuff that like he like specifically did to like try to pressure these state politicians into like certifying him as president. So like they he he had a bunch of calls and like his like staff people had a bunch of calls where like they tr- they tried to get uh like the 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 speaker of the house in Arizona to do this by saying there was voting fraud and the speaker of the house was like okay there's no we haven't found any fraud um i i'm going to i'm going to read from the thing co-conspirator 2 concluded that he quote didn't know enough about the facts on the ground in Arizona but nonetheless told the speaker of the house to decertify and quote let the court sort it out sort it out so again, th- this is this is this is the Roger Stone strategy, but done like yeah. so unbelievably poorly. Yeah, yeah. And so, and there, there there's a bunch of sort of like list. There's like all this list of like this. Like Trump does like identical stuff in like Michigan and Pennsylvania. There's like that phone call in Georgia. He gets in trouble for uh, stuff in Wisconsin. There's another thing he tried to do, which I actually hadn't heard about this one. I I don't know. It's either I just forgot it or I just never ran into it where he was trying to like use Justice Department letterhead and like the the, the signature of the acting attorney general <laughs> to like send a fa- like pretend to send a letter from the Justice Department to a bunch of states to tell them there was fraud and get them to like amazing my yeah. mom says i'm sick and i can't come to school <laughs> yeah and the funny thing is the problem is they, so they, they try to there's a lot it. that's funny about that i'm not gonna i'm not gonna see it yeah thing. we gotta pluralize that fucker it's so good <laughs> and, and the scheme falls apart because again the guy trump appointed as the acting attorney general is like no like you cannot nah, use my nah, name nah, to bro. say the fake letter from the justice department <laughs> and they keep trying to argue with him and it keeps not working and th- this uh, is where we get to another part of this whole thing that I, this has been getting a lot of press attention and it's interesting, but I, th- I think there's more to the story that people haven't been talking about, which is, so the guy who's probably Jeffrey Clark, like gets into an argument with the deputy white house counsel and the deputy white house counsel is, you know, is, is telling, is telling Jeffrey Clark, who I think is one of Trump's lawyers is telling him like, like Trump can't stay in office. Like there, there's no version of this where Trump stays in office after like January 20th. And he says, yeah. quote, there would be riots in every major American city. And then the guy who's probably Clark says, quote, well, deputy White House counsel, that's why there's an insurrection act. And this is where we need to get to another yeah. a couple of interesting parts of the story. One, you know, to one be of clear, the- when you're saying that's why we have an insurrection act, you're saying we can just shoot those people. Yeah. In the streets. Yeah. That, like, that is what that statement means. Yeah. Yes, that, but, and that is what the stakes were. Everybody who was out in the streets in 2020 was aware of this. Yeah. Yes. And, and yeah. you know, I, this is the thing I, I kind of want to talk about, which is that, like, part of the reason this coup fails is that. So Trump is talking about doing the Insurrection Act twice in 2020. Well, I guess once in 2020, I think this might have been the second time I've been 2021. But like in, in that last year, he, he tries to yeah. like use the Insurrection Act against the uprising in 2020. And his like 
his chief of staff, like like a bunch of like a bunch of generals and his own chief of staff, like tell him to fuck off. And that's like part of the reason why this didn't happen, which which is interesting because like I don't know, like there there have been like there have been times where the US Army like has been deployed against like riots like this, right? Like this happened this happened in the 90s. But in, in this situation, the army just like absolutely completely refused to play ball. Um, and we've we've gotten some really kind of interesting. Uh, so so the other thing that's happening here is like just the complete hollowing out of journalism as an institution, where all of these people know all of the all these journalists like know a bunch of incredibly important stuff and they won't tell anyone because they they're saving it for their books. Yep, classic. And you know, and it's like um, among the things that we sort of learn in this period is like there, there's basically this like. I don't know what you call it. Like, I, you could either call it like a quad umvirate, basically, or you could call it like a national unity government, which is in power for two weeks, basically, where um, Pelosi, Miley, who's, a, a, who's a, a, the, the chief of staff, who's a general, like Mike Pence, Chuck Schumer, and Mitch McConnell basically are like running the government for two weeks because they've successfully put together this counter coup where the, 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 the military has refused to like go along with Trump, like trying to overthrow the government and this is very deeply i don't know there's some very deeply interesting stuff here where there's a, there's a, there's a book called i alone can fix it which a couple of journalists are coming out with and there's some interesting quotes from it from specifically general mike miley who's like the chairman of the joint chief of staff who was appointed by trump by the way this, this is this is an important thing because like trump there's like seven guys who are like absolute ghouls like mike pompeo like caa ghoul who are who just like look at this coup and are like no and Miley stuff is wild. Like Miley directly, com- like in, in yes. meetings, he's comparing Trump to Hitler. Yeah. He says, "Quote: yeah. This is a Reichstag <laughs> moment." Miley told AIDS, "The Gospel of the Fearer." <laughs> um, yeah. Like, and there's there's a, a, yeah, I talked about this a little bit ahead of earlier. Th- there are some unconfirmed reports that Miley and a number of other like U.S. military high-ranking officers basically had like a book club, and one of the books they went through in 2020 was a book about the Nazis' rise to power in Germany. I, I kind of suspect it might have been Death of a Democracy because that was big at the time. But it would make sense because he's talking in substantial detail about, like, he's very, you can tell he's very focused in this period on Nazis taking over the government. Like, he yeah. talks yeah. about it a lot. Yeah, and he, he has, so he has, I'm going to read a couple other quotes from him. Um he has this thing where I, th- I think he's talking to Pompeo here where he's talking about like this coup and he says uh, they may try, but they're not going to fucking succeed. He told them you can't do this without the military. You can't do this without the CIA and the FBI. We're the guys with the guns. And he's right about this. And this is a really crucial thing that Trump fucks up about how to do a fascist mm-hmm. coup is that you can't actually like fascist coups don't work without the at least passive acquiescence of the state. Like if the state tries, yeah. to, if, the, if the RB tries to stop you, your coup is not going to work. Right. Unless like unless you're someone like Franco, who like has control of a huge portion of the army. If if you try to do one of these sort of weird paramilitary things and the army just says no, like you're screwed. And this this, I think, was always part of Trump's sort of problem was that, like, you know, if he'd sort of spent his time consolidating the kind of like fascist institutions, the neocons set up. Right. Like if he'd spent his time like, you know, actually like actually developing loyalty in the FBI and the CIA and like going through and like turning Department of Homeland Security, like, you know, into, into like an even more fascist organization. He might have been able to do this. But like at the very end, like you have Miley saying this is this is on uh, right, this is on exercises right before the inauguration 
Uh, He says, quote, here's the deal, guys. These guys are the not are Nazis. They're Buchler boys. They're proud boys. These are the same people we fought in World War Two. Miley told them everyone in this room, whether you're a cop, whether you're a soldier, we're going to stop these guys to make sure we have a peaceful transfer of power. We're going to put a steel (laughs) ring around this city and the Nazis aren't getting in. Like, you know what? Credit where it's due. That's a pretty cool thing to get to have said. Yeah, yeah. Somehow, like, somehow, basically, him and Zukov. Yeah, it's like, like, it's like their background. So, somehow like all, all of like suddenly like the American like all of like the senior command of the American army suddenly turned into like 1942 American generals. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't know. I, 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 I guess again, I, I try to say this. I try to bring this up a lot to like more radical folks. When you if you want to get a lot of like the centrist lib types on your side, you could do a lot worse than hearkening back to that whole World War Two thing. There's a lot of propaganda invested in getting guys like mm-hmm. Millie to want to feel like that. So and in this yeah, case, it works out for us. Yeah, I, apparently, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Lib, yeah. Lib, Lib Antifa uh, has, poured, has pulled one out. I guess uh, it's certainly uh, better than if the head of the military had been like, "I guess I'm fine with this." So I don't yeah, know. Whatever. I, like, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, think... I, I have no complaints. Re his performance <laughs> in that specific moment. Uh, other than that. They did actually get in, so you know, whatever. Like, yeah, yeah. but that was well, afterwards, right? This was, this was, this Between was the sixth and the twentieth, like yeah, yeah, yeah. When they were drilling for the, the, yeah. the inauguration. When they stuffed yes. the Capitol with National Guard soldiers like a yes. sausage, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was just full I, of I them. I guess it worked. I don't know. My other conclusion from this, though, is when when you have reached the position of like. You're, you're trying to figure like your top generals are trying to figure out who has enough guns to, to, to figure out whether a coup can happen. Like things are things are not good. This is a this is a a, a bad sign yeah. TM for. No, it's like, and it's democracy. not good. Like as nice as it is to hear that Millie understood the stakes, which is good. It's good that he understood the stakes, given his position. It's not good that like so much came down to the fact that a couple dudes didn't suck in this specific way. Yeah. Like that's not a great sign for the first stability of democracy. No. Yeah. Cause I yeah, mean, cause, no one voted for Miley. Like, yeah, right. He, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's unsettling. It, yeah. The, the, the whole democratic system was more or less at the edge of failing. And a dude who was good at war stepped in and was like, yeah, okay, we, yeah, we and don't like, want to do this. And this, but, and this, like, is, this <laughs> is one of those things, right? We, we know what this looks like with Bush. We're like, if, if you actually know how to press the buttons of the system, right, you can do this. But yeah. Trump just like, didn't, have enough control of the state apparatus and tried to sort of replicate it with street violence. And it, and that just didn't work. Trump's p- problems here are twofold. One of them is that he is not capable of loyalty to anyone or anything else. Yeah. Whereas a guy like George W. Bush is, which means he's capable of getting teams together who are willing to take some of like who are willing to go out on a limb for him to some extent. And Bush also is system loyal. Now that doesn't mean he's not willing to fuck with the system for his own benefit, but he has a vested interest in the system continuing more or less the way that it has, right? As opposed to breaking it specifically forever for his own like uh, uh, power. Um, you know, he was not a guy who was interested in staying in office forever. I don't say this to defend the man. He killed hundreds of thousands of people, yeah. minimum. Um, but because he was willing, he had a degree of loyalty to the system as it was seen by most people, 
there was not this kind of rebellion from sort of within it, right? Like, in fact, that deep state was largely sympathetic with him. They were willing to go with like the fucking yeah. around with the election as long as, you know, the broader structures that had given them a place to exert power uh, and influence remained intact. And Trump was basically saying, if Milley had gone with this, if everyone had gone with this, what you are accepting is that nothing matters but this guy's opinion, Right. There's not actually any sort of power in the system that you have risen to the top of. There's not any sort of power in these unelected structures within the system um, that you clearly think are important because they are how you, why, like where you have seen success, right? Like, and frankly, you know, people aren't willing to do that sort of thing. And also, you're you're fighting against uh, a lot of people who want to whatever fucked up things they are willing to do, they have a lot emotionally invested in the idea that they serve a democracy. Now, is that a a morally flawless <laughs> idea? Are they always in fact like, no, of course not. Like like everyone, they're, they're hypocrites to certain right. extents, but you can't push them that far. Like Bush pushed them about as far as you can push people like that, right? Um, this Trump didn't have any respect for making it, for dressing it up Right. And he didn't have any respect for the thing that they were a part of. And so, of course, a lot of them didn't go with him. Yeah. And, and I think this gets back to something I've talked about a bit with with what what the neocons were doing, which that the, the neocons are about like the state of exception. Right. They're about this like, you know, we've had the war. We now have the war on terror. We've had 9-11. And that means the country's in this state where like we have the power to be like the people inside the system who are not bound by it. You can do whatever you want. And like that is. Yeah. Yeah. descriptively right like this is you know both carl schmidt the like nazi jurist like that that was explicitly like his model of how you do fascism yeah, right? yeah. and it's, it's yeah. also like something you know and but but the thing is again like that's a very different thing than what trump was doing right yes. like trump wasn't doing like trump wasn't doing this thing where he like you know uses the apparatus of the state he was he was doing a different like different kind of one of, the, of this is what a lot of people don't understand about the nazis is that when Hitler took power, and for the first half to two thirds of his time in power, uh, he was very much concerned about the military and constantly making exceptions and altering and moderating aspects of his policy in order to keep the military on his side. And that continued, depending on kind of where you want to put it, either up until the Anschluss or up until the invasion of Poland, really to a significant extent. Um, he whereas Trump did not again. There's no sort of um, he has no sort of respect, and I'm not saying like you should have respect for the military. No, no. but well, I'm saying that because no, he, he did not notice like, their power. Yeah, the fact that he did not, or the FBI for that matter, is one of the reasons why this didn't work for him. Yeah, and 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 this was this was always a kind of a problem that he has ideologically, which is like the, one of the things that makes him popular is he was running like against the deep state, right? And like, yeah, like yeah, like I know lots of people in the like I don't like the intelligence agencies. Like the intelligence agencies can fuck off. The, the fact that like the fact that the intelligence agencies finally found a coup they wouldn't support, like, it's not a sign that they're good. But the we problem is, <laughs> yeah, but like the problem with this is like Trump is you know he he wins the primary like very explicitly by running against. A, a lot of the he, like like by name running as neoconservatism, you could argue the extent to which he actually broke with it in terms of like appointing like Gina. You know, he, he puts a bunch of neocon ghouls like back in power. Right. right. But like but like nominally, he's running against that specific thing. And it turns out that like if if, if, right. you, if your appeal is, you know, being a, like a nominally anti-systemic force and then you have to try to use those systems to stay in power. It's like, well, you know, 
this this happens like now you are getting charged by jack smith and you have like 78 yeah. counts against you <laughs> instead of yeah. uh, you are now the fearer yeah a, a lot of it is you know first off people want to be able to believe nice things about themselves and trump didn't really give them the option of doing yeah, that no. and, and yeah. second of all people who are achieve this kind of level within the system want you to treat the system they've succeeded in as if it matters like it's that simple, I yeah. think, in a lot of yeah. ways. So they want to yeah. feel validated and valued, and he yeah. was just like, "No, fuck you all! I'm doing my coup," and then yeah. was genuinely shocked when people were like, "Well, we ain't coming with you, bro." <laughs> yeah. You yeah. I, I don't. I, I really feel no no desire or no uh, no impetus to <laughs> yeah. move with you. Yeah. I don't anyway, this is a good idea. Yeah. So I don't know. We'll we'll, we'll see what happens with these indictments. I uh, I don't know. I, I genuinely this is the important yeah this is the one that like matters. of all the yeah, indictments like, this is the one that matters yeah and i don't know we'll we'll see if this actually substantively plays a role in the election i mean I, I don't think there's a possibility that i can cost trump the primary like but no 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 yeah no, like, nothing nothing but like a heart attack could do that yeah um but yeah, it's, it, it is, I, I will say, I had some other stuff prepared that I think we'll move to another episode just because of how this has gone. But I do want to note, I want to talk a little bit at the end here about, uh, does is this going to matter, like electorally for, for Trump, yeah. right? Is this going to have a, an impact on his chances of winning the general? Um, I think we're all agreed it's not really worth talking about the primary. He's going to win the primary barring an act of God. Um, yeah. And that's where, what, yeah, anyway. Um, so there's some info on this. Uh, basically, on March 29th, he was averaging about 45% in national primary polls, which is, I, I'm bringing up here because they help show the impact of the indictment because you don't have a lot of national polls from that time, um, a national like general election polls. Um, so 45% in March uh, after his first set of indictments uh, in April, he was up to 54%. Um, so that first set of indictments did not harm him, may have helped him consolidate power, may have like activated a chunk of his base. Um, the second indictment did not work the same way, though. After June 8th, when it uh, was reported that he was being indicted for the classified document shit and <laughs> obstructing justice and getting them back. Uh, yeah. The second um, indictment his, hit the towers. His, yeah, his average <laughs> support in the primary fell, um, not by a massive amount, by a couple of percentage points, as did his average net favorable rating. So you saw at least a um, he hit a wall and bounced back a little bit. Not massive, not a, a sea change, but enough to show that it's not accurate to say voters don't care. It's more accurate to say, based on what we've, we've seen so far, voters seem to care differently about different indictments. Um, and I, I, I want to read a quote from a 538 article about his indictment polls here. Although we can't prove that all these shifts happened because of the indictments, the difference in reaction at least suggests that Americans are drawing distinctions between Trump's various legal troubles, and other polling backs that up. According to a YouGov Yahoo News poll from July 13th through 17th, 50% of registered voters considered falsifying business records to conceal hush money payments to a porn star to be a serious crime, but 64% of registered voters consider it a serious crime to take highly classified documents from the White House and obstruct efforts to retrieve them. Similarly, a June 22nd to 26th 
poll from the Associated Press NORC Center for Public Affairs Research found that only 35% of U.S. adults thought Trump did something illegal when it came to the hush money payments, but 53% thought he did something illegal with regards to classified documents found at his Mar-a-Lago resort in Florida. By the this logic, this third indictment could be even more damaging to Trump than the one involving classified documents. According to the same YouGov Yahoo News poll, 69% of registered voters considered it a serious crime to attempt to obstruct the certification of a presidential election, and 71% said the same about conspiring to overturn the results of a presidential election. So it's going <laughs> to take a us troublingly yeah. low number, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wish it would, it should be higher. You, you yeah, would, yeah, you would think. Yeah. But that does that, that does suggest that this could do him some damage. Um, and especially since all of this is going to keep getting litigated, right? Like fucking people who get who have a decent lawyer and get arrested for like a DUI can drag a court case out for a year. This will be yeah. going on during the yeah. election. It may yeah. hurt him. You know, again, I, I, I'm not willing to like say, oh, this is going to fuck the ele- make it impossible for him to get. I don't think the data suggests that. But it, it it there's a I think a, a pretty good chance that this is a net negative for him in terms of you know the election, um, and broadly speaking you know we gave the Dems a lot of shit uh, for a couple of years for not doing enough to actually seriously strike back at the Republican authoritarian outreach and so it would be unfair of me to not say it's good that they're doing this. Like, it's good that he's facing legal trouble for what he's done. That's not enough to stop him. That's not enough to stop the Republican Party, but it is good that this has been done. Yeah. Yeah. Progress. Shame it wasn't earlier. Should have been earlier, you know. Yeah, Uh, happening during the election is a major L in terms of how he can spin this. Yeah, I I think that was probably a strategic error. Um, But grand juries take forever. Yeah. Yeah, and the other thing that's happened is like yeah. there's been all of this time for sort of the Republican PR machine to like spin all of the stuff that happened. And we've, we, you know, and I think like part, part of what's been happening in the last three years is like everyone kind of just like collectively forgetting what actually happened during 2020 and how yes. absolutely nuts it was. And everyone's sort of going back and pretending that like things are sort of like normal now. And it's like, no, no, we're still, we're still living in the eternal 2020 and everything is still yeah. absolutely nuts. But. I don't know. I it's like the, there's been this incredible sort of like normalization effort, both both by Biden and also like by the Republicans to make it seem like this was like a normal thing that happened as opposed to like the immediate wake of it where everyone was like, what the fuck? So <laughs> hopefully not too little too late. Hopefully this does something, but mm-hmm. we shall see. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, everybody, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I guess go back to paying rent and stuff. Uh, I'm sure 2024 will be fine. Uh, yeah, that wouldn't be any problem. There's 15 more months of this, by the way. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. 
Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. It's me, James, today, and I'm joined by Glenn Pyle, who's a professor of molecular cardiology and a member of the Impart Network at Dalhousie Medicine. Glenn, thank you so much for joining us. Can you, is there, is there anything I missed out, first of all, in your bio there that might be relevant for people? No, I, I think that's it, short and sweet. We don't need all the details, for sure. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, so what we're here to talk about today is um, these sudden, the, the phenomenon, I suppose, of sudden cardiac arrest, uh, specifically like in young people and young athletes, uh, because as many of you will have been aware, uh, this has been increasingly a an area in which anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists have been trying to leverage what is an unfortunate but not unprecedented uh, cardiac arrest. Like in this case, most recently, Bronny James, but it's happened before in a number of sports. And they've been trying to leverage this as, as quote, unquote, like proof or evidence that, that vaccines are killing otherwise healthy young people, uh, which is nonsense. And uh, I can tell you it's nonsense, but someone who can tell you from a much more informed perspective is Glenn. So... Glenn, could we start out by maybe talking about like how common this sudden cardiac arrest in in young athletes is, and what we might what hypotheses we might have as to what causes it? Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, if we look more broadly, it's it's very common. Um, I'm from Canada, and we have uh, about thirty five thousand of these every year. Um, within young athletes, um, the data out of the U.S. says that about 2,000 um, die uh, every year from sudden cardiac arrest, and, oh. and two-thirds of these you know, young people uh, do so during some sort of exercise or, or sporting event. Uh, so in the grand scheme of things, when you have a country of several hundred million people, um, a thousand or so 
deaths like that is by proportion relatively small, but we've known mm-hmm. about this for a long time. And these numbers actually really haven't changed very much in in decades. Okay. Um, so yeah, there's, there's obviously been no particular increase due to COVID vaccinations because they're unrelated. I wonder actually, is there evidence, I think I've read some stuff that, that having COVID or having had COVID multiple times might increase your risk for cardiac arrest. Is that is that true? Yeah, so broadly, um, so they haven't looked specifically at cardiac arrest because cardiac arrest typically is, is um, in a lot of times, the, the end result of a number okay. of different conditions. So cardiac arrhythmias mm-hmm. are known uh, to be increased. Uh, a, Patone, a Patone study showed that, what, I guess a year and a half ago um, by now, certainly early um, in the pandemic, one of the first signs we were seeing people who were being infected were, were having heart attacks, developing heart failure. These things end in, in cardiac arrest. Uh, the, the most common cause are cardiac arrhythmias. Uh, the Patone study showed, and every time I, I talk about this, I have to go back and look because the increase was several hundred fold oh, wow. um, after after COVID. And so I, I've never really seen anything uh, like that before. So arrhythmias are relatively common in terms in the world of, of cardiovascular disease. And the fact that um, COVID, the infection actually increases it, but the vaccines do not uh, means that the risk for sudden cardiac death really would be highest amongst those who are infected not those who get vaccines. Okay. Do you know offhand if like um when when we have that that maybe this was too early in the pandemic to tell, like that that risk that comes with having COVID, right? For having arrhythmia afterwards, is that risk mitigated by if you're vaccinated and, and then you get COVID? So Yes, there's been some more recent studies because obviously early in, in the pandemic when we didn't have the vaccines, we, we couldn't answer that. And then early after vaccines, we're looking at things like infections and, and some of these cardiac issues um, may not arise until even after the infection is cleared. So we see that in people with long COVID, for example, cardiac yeah. issues are, are, are most common. Um, and, and so we've seen in, in some recent studies that people who are and even um, what they described as partially vaccinated, so one or two uh, doses, had a reduced risk of what we call MACE, which is a major adverse cardiovascular event. And so that's an all-encompassing term, which would be things like stroke, heart attack, uh, you know, things things like that, those major cardiac events. That's uh, data that's come out uh, earlier this year, within the last year, a couple of studies. Okay. So... Circling back to those uh, cardiac arrests and I guess brought more broadly like cardiac issues in young people and specifically in young athletes, it's something I'm familiar with with a background in, in cycling. Like I've, I've known people die of cardiac arrests who are otherwise extremely fit. Um, no, I wouldn't necessarily say like sometimes being fit and being healthy are not the same thing. Um, certainly at yeah, the very like pointy end of endurance sport i think the fittest people are not necessarily the healthiest um but very fit sometimes very healthy people have um friends of mine have, have had these issues is uh in those cases i don't know we might not know i don't know is being an athlete like increasing someone's chance of having those cardiac arrests or is it that they have some kind of pre-existing condition that's just that's just been underlying for a while yeah, so that's a good question. What we we do know, and this this is all data from 
pre-COVID. So it, it's not something that's been impacted by the, the pandemic or vaccines. We do know that um, the rate of sudden cardiac death in the general population is about one in 100,000. And that in athletes, which is a very broad term, and we can, we can get into that, how do we define yeah. an athlete and, and things like that, uh, is anywhere from two to four times uh, the, the rate. That, that's groups of athletes. Subsections are actually higher. Um, so we know the rate is higher in, in these athletes, typically these high performance athletes. Um, you know why that is? It's, it's an interesting question. It, it could be um, the, the training, for, for example, mm-hmm. uh, puts a stressor on them. Um, so, so they may have a pre-existing condition. They may have uh, a cardiac arrhythmia like long QT syndrome or, or even something called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Sometimes they know about it um, and sometimes they don't. And then the training on top is enough of a, of a trigger. So one of the examples I use in my class is um, Anthony Van Loo's a, a, a soccer player. I believe it was in the Netherlands he was playing. He had a known uh, cardiovascular condition. So he had what's called an ICD or an implanted cardio defibrillator yep. while he was playing. And he suffered sudden cardiac death on the, on the field. Okay. Um, there's actually video of it and that yep. shocked him back into rhythm. So, you know, some of these people may not know and discover in the course of, of training and some may know and uh, opt to take that risk anyway. And then it's the training that, or the competition that brings it out. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I have a very good friend with an ICD. Um, it, it's certainly been at the end of a very difficult process for, for him to have that and, and that involved lots of lifestyle changes. Um, yep. So when we, but let's, what exactly is an athlete in these studies? Like, is that someone yeah. who goes to a gym twice a week? Is it someone putting in 20 hours on the bike? Like what? So most of the studies that we're, we're talking about, so I, I assume we're not talking about the people who are um, claiming that the vaccines are linked to athletes because they have a very different definition. I can talk about that. Most yeah. of these studies that we're, we're dealing with where we get these rates that are two to four times higher than the general population are, or what they refer to as competitive athletes. So for people in the U.S., um, these would be your NCAA or college athletes. Um, some of them are professional athletes, uh, you know, soccer players in the, you know, the British League and, and things like that. So these are people who play at a, at a competitive level. Oftentimes they're, they're making a living. I mean, you can argue whether college athletes are making a living out of this, yeah. but yeah. There's, there's some high level of competition in these athletes. That's generally the people that, we're, that these studies are, are based on, not okay. – the guy who goes to the gym twice a week or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So fairly elite. Um, what is it that you were saying that's different from the claims that these a- anti-vax people or vaccine skeptics or whatever, you know, people who <laughs> want to say that vaccines are killing people, which isn't true. What, what, what sort of the definition that they're using or what's the claim that they're making, I guess. Well, um, they really don't have a definition is the problem. Um, so, so they'll use the term athletes and, and, I think most people, you know, maybe maybe you don't see an athlete as necessarily being a college or professional level. It could be like a high school athlete who's competing, you know, once or twice a week or whatever. And that's that's fair. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you look at the lists that they have, I mean, I, I've talked about this recently in the Died Suddenly movie documentary, whatever you want to call it. Oh, yeah. Um, 
the, the list of people that they have on there. For example, they have musicians. They have uh, the a Thai princess on there, so a princess from, from Thailand on there. Um, and, and they also have people who died of cancer, um, someone who got an <laughs> eye injury. Um, so I'm not really sure, first of all, what their definition of athlete is. I'm not sure what their definition of sudden cardiac death is when you have people dying of cancer or suffering an eye injury like that. Those are, are not related at, at all. There was an earlier um, list. I think it's related to the good scientist. I wrote about this uh, probably a year or so ago. I went through the list of people that they had on at the time. There was about a hundred, just a little over a hundred people that they claim died there were uh, soccer referees on there. There were retired athletes. There were people, one guy was out for a hike. He was listed there. Now you could argue a soccer referee is athletic, certainly, you know, running around the, the pitch and doing that. I, I could, could see that, but that person died at home in their sleep, not in competition. The retired soccer player had been retired for six or seven years. So, even in the cases where they have athletes, they're really stretching what we would define as an athlete. Right. Yeah. Um, I wonder, is there data to show that like overall mortality is lower in people who are vaccinated than unvaccinated? Like, does that exist yet? Yeah. yeah. So that's what the, uh, some of these, yeah. these studies that I talked about um, that were done um Earlier this this year, there was a it was a Jack study. The Journal mm-hmm. American College of Cardiology showed that even people who are partially vaccinated, there's a okay. reduction in these cardiovascular complications. Um, and the, the JAMA study, which was done earlier, specifically focused on AMI, so the heart attacks, acute myocardial mm-hmm. infarctions, and stroke, also lower okay. risk. You were saying earlier that there might be some sports that that had even higher rates than those those ones you mentioned overall for athletes what what sport are those yeah so the, the one that's that's been raised uh recently are, is, is basketball mm-hmm. um they were at least in, in some of these studies done um in the u.s much higher than than other sports yeah so i mean you know basketball is can be an aerobic um event in that you're running back and forth you know up and down the court quite frequently uh but it's punctuated by these bursts of of you know sprints and things like that which Mm -hmm. some have speculated that might kind of be the issue right that that you don't settle into just a a simple rhythm i'll say simple rhythm like you know like riding a bike is it's it's not as obviously simple as um (laughs) as you describe it um but at least potentially there there's periods of time when you can sort of get into a rhythm and stay there and here it's it's rest periods punctuated by these rapid uh bursts and so there's the, the the possibility that that may be related there Okay, and so that that might be why that there are higher death rates there. It's possible, yeah. They're not mm-hmm. sure why uh, yeah. these things happen to to specific sports. Yeah. Okay, are our friends in the anti-vax community sure uh, in their own minds why these happen? Like, do they have some kind of hypothesis they're advancing? Uh, no. So this is a good point. Um, uh, they'll say it's the spike protein. Uh, I'm sure I've heard that raised before, mm-hmm. um, but they don't really explain beyond uh that it's interesting about the spike protein in the vaccines is it's been modified uh to not be active and so you have the spike protein in the virus which causes injury um and yet they don't seem to 
you know, acknowledge that that could cause these these issues. And yet the spike protein in the vaccine, which has been designed to to limit that injury, somehow overcomes that and actually causes the injury that's not associated with the the infection. Like like none of it makes sense, right? Like you you have to yeah. work live in these parallel worlds that that don't don't ever mix. Right. Yeah. So they yeah, they're suggesting that this protein, which is a, a modified version of the one that's already in the virus, but it, it's non-harmful, whereas the one in the virus is harmful, is harmful yeah, yeah. because of the modification. Yeah, certainly uh, a good number of, of people who don't like the vaccines also um, claim that COVID itself is um, really not much of a threat. And then, so again, I don't, I don't, I don't see how they can reconcile these these points, right? Especially when you're arguing about the same protein, one of which has been modified to be less active. And yet you're saying the yeah. less active one is actually more dangerous. Than, it, it just yeah. doesn't make any sense. Right. Yeah. And I think it's kind of not, uh, I don't know, I think people maybe come to it with a, with a sort of predetermined desire to conclude that yeah. the vaccine is dangerous. Um, I wonder, like, I'm familiar with like sudden cardiac death from my time cycling. And I remember in the early 2000s, there was this idea that um, people were dying because their blood had turned, like, quote, I'm quoting from, like, newspaper articles at the time, to treacle uh, and had become so thick that their heart couldn't pump it anymore. Um, and, and that this was causing people to die. And the reason that they died was because they were taking excessive amounts of blood boosters like EPO um, or exogenous EPO. And um, so... I, I, this wasn't true, at least to my knowledge. I don't think any of these people had tested positive. Um, none of them had uh, like autopsies that, that suggested that this is why they had died. Um, but it seems to me that there's this natural desire to try and explain away these deaths of what people who are at the peak of their physical lives, right? People in their in their teens and twenties who are extremely fit who we can see doing amazing things. It doesn't sort of line up for us when they die. It doesn't line up with what we think a healthy person is and what we think a, a cardiac patient is. Um, and and so it seems to me that we create these explanations. Is that something you've seen in other areas like before the COVID vaccine? Were there other sort of conspiracies or just ways to try and explain this away? I don't know about conspiracy. I mean, I, th I think people understandably have a hard time reconciling yeah. what you just said, right? You have elite cyclists um, or whatever sport it is. Um, I mean, cycling is good because aerobically they have to be very fit and then yeah. they die potentially of a cardiac condition, right? So that, that makes no sense. Um, you know, so the easiest thing, like you said, is to, to play, well, they must be doping. They must be taking steroids, you know, something that's going to harm your body. And so that has to be the explanation because it's, it's, it's easy. That's, that's a, a simple way to get to this. The, the reality is that um, a good number of these people have underlying cardiac conditions. Um, not a good, I don't necessarily mean a lot of cyclists have that. What I mean is yeah. the, the people who have these sudden cardiac deaths have undiagnosed cardiac conditions, long QT. Um, there's a condition called uh, CPVT, you know, something like that. Um, and so they're relatively, I'll say benign. CPVT isn't necessarily, but it, it's triggered. These things are triggered by um, stressful events like exercise and things like that. And so they may live a good part of their life um, in to be in, in our seemingly in good health. And then, 
the first sign for many of these people is death. Um, that's the, the real challenge in, in dealing with, with these, these cases that lead to sudden cardiac death, because that's the first symptom. People don't feel tired. Um, they don't, you know, have chest pains, like having a heart attack or anything like that. It's simply something happens, the wiring goes off in the heart and you put the exercise on top of it and they die. Um, you know, it's, it's not just uh, these athletes, you'll have somebody who has a, has a, a change in one of their genes they're perfectly fine they live into their 60s and then they suddenly die well what allowed them to live 60 years with you know no symptoms we don't really know but it's not uncommon that the first symptom is death in these these people so your your friends there who you know, it's it's easiest to accuse them of, of doping because certainly yeah. we a lot of us talked about it at the time, mm-hmm. as I'm sure uh, you know you, you knew about it. There's no no secret. Um, so we connect those dots, right? We can yeah. see that. We can see that. Let's connect them. We can't see long QT, so we don't know what long QT syndrome is for a lot of people. It's hard to make that connection when you don't know. Yeah, and it's hard from the perspective of being someone's friend. Or I can only imagine what it's like for their families to have this like. Uh, I guess them be sort of libeled after they die, um, you know, or sort of accused of something that they may, or in many cases, I don't think did do. It must be very difficult to deal with that on top of losing someone you love. Yeah, well, and and we're seeing that again here with the the people who who oppose the vaccines, which is uh, either they're assuming things or they're speculating on on things. And, you know, unless you're in the circle of care, you don't know what's what's going on. So, you know, you talked about LeBron James on here, you know, does he have an underlying condition? We don't know. And it, you know, it's it's really not helpful for me to sit here and say, well, he could have long QT, he could have CPVT, like here, you know, to speculate like like that. Yeah. I can talk about what are some things that that lead to these these conditions generally in, in people, but I don't know anything about his health. And yeah. so it's not helpful for me to sit here and speculate on that while his family and, and he himself is trying to, you know, sort of get through that. That's, you know, that's, I'm sure that's upsetting for them. So I'm not sure why people feel the need to, to do that, except to advance their own agenda. Right. Yes. Yeah. I think that is the case. So let's talk a little bit about how we can, I guess, mitigate these risks um, that, that exist. I remember when, I remember one year getting a, a license in Spain um, and, and they make you take a cardiac stress test there. Like you get, you ride your bike on a treadmill and they just ramp it up until your heart rate's in the 190s or whatever. And and uh, I don't know what they were doing, uh, but the, they made us, I think that may only have been for like elite athletes, but they made us all do that. Is that something where, would, if there was an underlying, one of these underlying risk factors that you mentioned, would, would it be spotted on a test like that? Yeah. Uh, that, so that's a uh, a little bit of a controversial area. So I noticed okay. you said in Spain, mm-hmm. um, in Europe, um, the consensus is that athletes need to go through these what we call pre-screening um, yeah. ECGs. So you were probably yeah probably had yeah. electrodes on your body yeah yeah. And so that's a simple non-invasive test. And so you're right because some things you can pick up just uh, rest um but some of these things don't appear until you you stress the individual and so they'll look for rhythm um, problems the other test is what we call echocardiography which is basically an ultrasound of the heart and there you can look at function but you can also look at structure because there's a condition called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy um that's 
that's relatively common in, in athletes. It's more common uh, there, and that accounts for about 50% of these sudden cardiac deaths. And so you can pick that up on an ECG, but you can also pick it up using ultrasound. So if you scan the heart and you see that it's very large, um, that would be a diagnosis. So first, in Europe, they do that. Mm -hmm. In North America, in Canada, and the United States, they do not. Um, the concern is, there's a couple of concerns. One is is the price. Um, so you can, you're screening large numbers of athletes to pick out uh, a relative small number um, who may be uh, affected. That's crude, but that is an argument that, that people make. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess the question comes down to how much is life worth to you and, and how much you want to spend. So there, there is that. But there is a, another issue, which is what they call false positives. So th- you know, had you been diagnosed as having a condition, then you may be pulled out of training for a little while while they do more tests and stuff like that. Like that could be very stressful uh, on yeah. on you. And so the the view in North America is there's an unacceptably high number of those false positives, um, and so they they feel that it's not worth worth doing. The other issue. So I'm not sure when when did you do this screening? Was it like uh-huh. 20 years or? No, like 10 years ago, probably like 2010, 2011. Okay. Yeah. So, there. so one of the issues that we have is when you have these high performance athletes, their hearts change. They get bigger. Yes. Um, they get more efficient. Their rhythms change and they have um, conditions that we would pick up on ECGs and echo that would be considered pathological. Right. Um, but because they're athletes, these are changes that do occur in athletes as their hearts remodel and they're not a sign of disease, right? If, if you took someone who wasn't highly fit and had, so for example, if you screen someone's heart and you, and you saw that it was very large and they didn't exercise, you might be concerned. But if you're, you know, an elite cyclist where your heart gets very big, it's going to be bigger. And so what we have struggled with for a number of years is what is normal in the athlete um, that uh, would be considered abnormal in the general population. Italy has done a really good job on this. So start going back into the 1980s, they started to collect data because that's what we need, right? We need yeah. data from athletes. Yes, and they yeah, yeah. created a, a huge database, which I actually use in my class now to, to teach and say, mm-hmm. you know, if you have an athlete and you see these things, these are things we wouldn't be concerned about. Or here's some markers where we might be concerned. And so we have to look further. And then here's some things where it doesn't matter whether you're an athlete or, um, you know, someone who sits on their couch all day, that's a, a problem. But without that data, we didn't, we didn't have that ability. And, and so I think the last time is 2018, the Europeans updated their, their criteria. And each time they update it, you know, we add new things or, or modify things that are in there. So you would have had abnormal things. You may have had abnormal mm-hmm. things on your ACG that the cardiologist would have looked at and said, well, according to our athlete standards, that's okay. And we're going to ignore it. And and we didn't have that until relatively recently. Okay, yeah, I do remember like things like having a, a a resting heart rate, which would be considered like pathologically or like dangerously low. Uh, so with the thing, right? That would get yeah, a lot. Brad- bradycardia. So it's called bradycardia. It's obviously very common, right? <laughs> and and uh, so I, I I give an example in my class every year where you know you have an athlete, their heart rate can be forty beats per minute. Um, and uh, so I said, you know, you would ignore that. You go, well, they're 
you're an elite cyclist. I, I get that. And the, I give an example where it's a woman, she's 63 years old, her resting heart rate is 42 beats a minute. She doesn't do any exercise. And the physicians are like, oh, she must be very healthy. I'm like, no, that's not normal. And so it turned out, uh, so the reason they flagged her was because she kept passing out because she, she was bradycardic and she eventually broke her nose and was sent to the hospital. They did a genetic test and found that she had a cardiac arrhythmia, right? Um, it, it, so my, what I always teach my students is don't just look at the monitor, look at your patient, right? So when your heart rate's 40 beats a minute and they're cycling away and, you know, doing all these, he's like, yeah, well, that person's very fit. And it's like, when you look and they're 80 years old and they're passing out, 40 beats a minute is not normal, right? And yeah, so, so we don't need real high standards for some of these things, but some of them yeah. we did. Yeah. yeah. And I wonder, like people listening will probably be sufficiently afraid now, uh, but, um, or not, hopefully not too afraid, but like, Lots of people these days are monitoring their heart rate all the time, right? They have watches, they have wristbands. When they're exercising, they have chest bands. Or, well, you can monitor your heart rate all kinds of places these days. You can wear a ring. Um, would any of those devices be useful in predicting or seeing some of these things? Not really, um, only because they're they're very limited. Uh, so it's it's great people measure their heart rate because it is a general sign of health. And so a good a lowering rest, lower resting heart rate is very good. And when you're exercising, you want to bring your heart rate into certain zones uh, to have an effective workout. So so that's all great. So I'm not trying to discourage yeah. people from, from doing that. Um, but if you want to diagnose long QT syndrome, for example, in, in somebody, um, that requires calculations. So for sure, you need to measure things very accurately. Uh, when I'm sure when you had your, your trace done, you would have had multiple electrodes stuck on your, your body. Yeah. Um, your we, yeah. We <laughs> typically do what's called the 12 lead ECG. Um, and so there's, there's multiple electrodes and, and they have to be positioned in certain places um, in order to measure how the heart, basically the heart's electricity is flowing in, in certain direction. Cause that actually tells us something. So when you have, uh, I mean, I have a, a device that I use to, to teach and to, to illustrate people. And it's on the back of my cell phone and they could just, you know, you put your fingers on it and, oh, cool. and you can, you, know, you can, you can yeah. measure things and you get an ECG off that. Oh, wow. And so it looks really neat mm -hmm. and it's great for teaching, but I'm not going to diagnose somebody with Brigada syndrome or, or long QT or any of those, those things. Those are much more uh, in-depth uh, to, it's required um, much more in-depth equipment to, to do something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, I know. Like sometimes when you ride under electricity pylons, you'll see a heart rate of 240 and it will be concerning. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> didn't, didn't work out what was connected to it. Um, so yeah. if these things are occurring and obviously they, they occur, it's sort of a, at a certain percentage of young athletes and certain percentage anywhere else. Are there ways that these sudden cardiac arrest, we could reduce the number of them that uh, result in deaths. Yeah, for, no, for sure. So CPR, um, mm -hmm. so uh, the people who die um, quite often die because there's there's nobody there to administer CPR. And so you you lose that, that very valuable time. Um, mm -hmm. And so people are concerned about... Um, you know, stepping in and doing something and potentially hurting someone. Yeah. Um, if someone is dead like that, you're you're not going to hurt them, right? So, yeah. you know, please learn CPR. It's it's not difficult. Um, they can certainly do that. Um, I know in in Canada, um, about 
15 years ago now, the Heart and Stroke Foundation of Canada um, raised a tremendous amount of money to put what we call automatic external defibrillators or AEDs mm-hmm. in public places. I think they they put 15,000 of them uh, out. Plus companies will, will buy them for their, uh, their workplaces and things like that. And so if someone goes down and their heart stops, you take these things out. There's some patches. It comes with instructions. Like it will tell you actually what to do. And you take it out. You put the patches on the individual. You step back because it will um, deliver a shock and it will automatically shock their heart trying to get it back into rhythm. So knowing where those are, I'll say knowing how to do them, you don't necessarily need to practice because it will walk you through it, but at least knowing where they are and not being afraid to use them, um, I think is is very important. These quick reactions and um, in, in administering care before um, the paramedics or, or um, someone else gets there um, is super important. If, if you let someone go five, 10 minutes without any, uh, you know, CPR or anything like that, there's a tremendous amount of damage that's that's done and, and can't be overcome. Okay, yeah. And I think in a lot of places in the U.S., certainly like you can access free cpr aed training um, or your employer might pay for it or um i don't know do you know any resources people could use to find where they can find that free training um so in in the states it's uh, the american heart association would be a a good place to go um the american red cross I'm sure they'll have um, resources in Canada's Heart and Stroke Foundation of Canada, St. John's Ambulance. But like you said, a lot of just, you know, local community centers will put these things on a couple times a year, um, you know, just so that people are, are familiar with, with how to do it. Uh, workplaces will sometimes do it once or twice a year, um, have training, allow people to just learn how to, how to do it. Um, yeah. I'm not sure where people, if you just go on the internet and wherever you are and look for uh, first day, a lot of times it falls under first aid, but if you just yeah. Google your city and CPR, I'm sure something will come up and I'm, I bet there's something this month you could go to. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. We've spoken before about stop the bleed courses and how they're also free and, and easy to access. So people could do both of those to be really set up to help people. Glenn, is there anything else you think people ought to know about these sudden, sudden cardiac arrest, either sort of with the conspiracy theories around them or anything else they can do to protect themselves or other people? Well, um, I, I think there's the, the perception that, um, that by saying that there's not an issue, that it means we don't, we don't care. In fact, we do care um, about these, these issues. Like I said, I've taught about this for, you know, over a decade, I have a background in um, doing some sports medicine work a long time ago. I, I certainly um, have a, of strong interest in in helping these people. Yeah. When we say the risk is not going up, it doesn't mean that we don't care. And so, you know, when a, a soccer player or a football player or somebody goes down on the court that we just say, well, yeah, it happens. That's not what we're saying. We're, sure. we're saying we know these things happen. We do care about them. I would actually flip this around the other way and say, some of these people, the people who I'm talking about, the people who are profiting off this, not people who are like, I had no idea this is, was happening. That's okay. You, you, you know, not everybody can know everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the people who are saying this is increasing and they're making money off these things by selling their movies and, and whatever. Yeah. Um, did you not care when someone, you know, died in 2015? Because they were and 2019 they were dying and kids were doing it. And if you'd like to come to my class, I can show you, you know, the pictures of these people because 
you weren't around then. And I'm wondering, I'm not really wondering why you're around now. I know why they're, they're around now. They're, they're profiting off of this. Um, and so I would actually flip it the other way and say, you know, have them ask, ask them, why is this new to them when, when we've, when the data show this has been happening all along. Right. Yeah. And by encouraging people not to get vaccinated, they're encouraging those people to place themselves at a higher risk for, for cardiac issues, right? For yeah. presumably a profit motive in some cases, which is yeah, very sad. Glenn, where can people, uh, you do some excellent threads on Twitter, so uh, people can learn a lot about uh, heart stuff there. Is there anywhere else or um, where would you prefer people to find you, I guess, online? Um, yeah, no, we, we do a lot of social media stuff. There's a lot of, uh, I know people complain about Twitter. I complain about Twitter, um, but there's <laughs> a lot X, of, of X. really <laughs> Twitter. Um, there's <laughs> a lot of really good people on there who, uh, you know, present their information. Um, you know, you can just go on and look for, for those people there. What, what I would say is like, how do you identify who, who are the good people who you can trust and stuff is the, the people who are able to be transparent with where they get their information. Right. So when I say, um, you know, the vaccines reduce your risk of these major cardiovascular events, I typically provide a study or something like that to show where I got that information. Um, the people who are less trustworthy will say, you know, either go find it yourself because they, they don't know or well i can see it i know what's happening you know a lot of these things are measurable so we we, sh- we should be able to to find those um a lot of us write on things i've, I've written for the conversation science 2.0 you know things will be there um but social media is a good place to go because you can interact with with people and you can ask those those questions so yeah um yeah, I mean, you can reach out to me and see who I follow and who I interact with if 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 you're interested, and um, that you could take that as a good or a bad sign, however you you want to take it. <laughs> uh, what's your handle on Twitter? So my handle is yeah. uh, uh, Glenn G L E N Pyle P Y L E. I'm also on the Sky. I just joined that the other day. So oh, nice, congratulations. Uh, yeah, that's great. I think the the last point you made is one that we should maybe pursue another episode on because the. Uh, the difference between anecdote and data and like so there is an increasing number i think of people doing things that look a lot like journal articles or a lot like studies that are peer-reviewed that are not uh in in trying to kind of leverage the credibility of that without um actually doing peer-reviewed science because the stuff they're doing wouldn't line up with with peer-reviewed science so it'd be interesting to discuss that right Yes, yes, it was a whole episode today. Yeah, right. yeah, next time. Right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Glenn. Thanks very much, James. I appreciate it. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. 
because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. Now, this is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. If you ever felt like you were always too much this while also never being enough that, this is the podcast for you. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth issues affecting the Latin community, and much more via my own personal stories, along with interviews with inspiring thought leaders from our community. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community that you need to know. So much of what makes our community so beautiful is our diversity, yet too often those of us who don't fit into this dumb, stereotypical box of whatever it means to be Latino are left without a voice or just forgotten about. On this show, I celebrate the uniqueness of our culture and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. It's James here, and we have a wonderful episode for you today on heat and heat illness and, and how to protect yourself for your community and your animals when it is hot, which it is right now. But I just wanted to record this little pickup to tell you that this isn't medical advice. We do this every time we do these. I am not that kind of doctor and I'm not your doctor. And I just wanted to reinforce, especially that, yes, generally if you're hot, it's a good idea to drink fluids and get out of the heat. If someone is losing consciousness or um, really, really sick, you need to get better medical attention uh, than you can learn how to give on a podcast, right? So that's when you call someone whose job it is to look after people. Um, I just wanted to reinforce that, obviously, pouring water down the throat of someone who's lost consciousness is a very dumb idea. Um, so... Please, if somebody is seriously unwell, seek medical care. Enjoy the episode. All right. Hi, welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast where we thumb our nose at God, um, which is what I was doing just before the podcast began. Uh, maybe we'll include that. And today we're here to talk about how God is smiting us with massive heat waves. And I'm joined today by Margaret Kiljoy and Garrison Davis. Say hello, everyone. Hello, Hello, everyone. everyone. <laughs> so, so called, so, so, so called free thinkers. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. My sheeple have joined me. Uh, this, is, this is what I get for doing an episode about sheep. Um, so, as you will be aware, if you are in just about anywhere in the Northern Hemisphere, it is very hot at the minute. It's very hot in cities in Europe. It's very hot in the United States. Uh, it, it's very hot in parts of uh, North Africa and the Middle East as well. It's the hottest June for how many years, Garrison? July. July, that one. It is the hottest July in, it, it is uh, 120,000 years, um, according to the most recent estimates released like three days ago as of time of recording. So, yeah. Yeah, and we've had the hottest day in history like four times in the last month or something. Yes, the, uh, in the in yeah. the first half of of July we had we had two days in a row where it was the two hottest days on record, and then we had two other two other days that were also the hottest days on record. Um, it's it's pretty concerning. It's nothing that people haven't been warning about for many many decades, um, but it's it's bad and it's very warm. Mm-hmm. Yep, and it will continue probably to get warmer. Uh, so I think the way we want to approach this is I'm going to start off with talking about some uh, stuff related to like exertional heat illness, because that's the thing that's most acutely concerning for people, right? Especially if they work outside, if they recreate outside, if they're doing stuff outside where they can't get out of the heat. Um, so... I think to start off with, I want to talk about things that might make you predisposed. Uh, and then I'm going to explain a little bit of how the body cools and then some of these different stages of heat illnesses and how uh, one might go about treating those um, or seeking further care if you need to, right? So to start out with, there are some things that can make you predisposed to heat illness, right? The biggest predisposition uh, I've come across in my reading is previously having heat illness. So I wow. can certainly speak to this. Yeah, like... I think I got heat stroke for the first time. Uh, it was racing bikes in Spain, I think. But I then remember getting it again, racing bikes in Vietnam and just like being really bad, like having to have IV fluids, uh, like vomiting, uh, sort of even some like sort of uh, not loss of consciousness, but definitely like confusion and erratic behavior and stuff. And the line between... And- that and dying is pretty narrow, right? You can have like multiple organ failure and stuff. Certainly, if, yeah, if you don't respond to that or if you misdiagnose that, and that's definitely um, it's a bit like I'm someone with diabetes, right? So people can sometimes, if you're erratic or confused, people can assume you're hypoglycemic and you need some sugar, but you don't in that situation. Uh, we need fluids and electrolytes and to be cooled quickly. Um, so, uh, yeah, that that. Is yeah, you can die. People do die. Actually, the mortality is quite high. Like I, I to prepare for this, I went and looked at an advanced wilderness life support course I did, um, and uh, people can look it up. AWLS University of Utah does one, um, and you can access lots of the stuff online for free. Um, but they were saying the mortality is is quite high from these like heat illnesses, um, and. I think that's probably especially true in wilderness medicine because it, it can be hard to cool someone down, right? If you don't have means of, uh, like, mm-hmm. if you don't have access to ice, you're obviously not got air conditioning out there. Um, if you, the best thing you probably have is running water. Hopefully, you have running water, right? Um, and I think probably it's something that like people might not have been concerned with unless they either lived in a very hot place or very active people or, or who traveled a lot before. Um, so yeah, if you've had heat illness before, then you do need to be careful. 
uh, and, and you will probably know if you've had it before. Um, but if we go through all the symptoms and you've had them all and never, I guess, got diagnosed and lucky you, maybe you just found out you had heat illness. Um, other <laughs> things that can predispose you can be a lack of acclimation. Again, like this is one that I think kind of stands to reason for most people. But like if you go from a cold place to a hot place or, or the place you are suddenly becomes hot, having been cold, it's going to take you a few days a week to to become acclimatized to that heat, right? Um, and, and your body will change. Things about your body will change. So we don't need to go into. But uh, Does you can also lose that, that. I don't think so. I think um, so. Th- back when I was exercising more seriously, uh, I would um, we would do heat acclimation by going in a sauna after a mm-hmm. training ride. Um, and the idea was that like you gave yourself this big bout of heat stress and then then you could go back and cool down, right? So okay. I think if you were in AC for most of the day, it was okay. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of uh, guessing here, but if, if getting that bout of heat stress and then recovering and get just like any other training that you're doing okay. seems so fine. Like, but if just, you go outside into the heat and then come back into the cool, you're still acclimating yourself. Yes, compared to just Great. hanging out in, in you know, uh, somewhere where it's cold all the time. And Great. you do want it. You don't want to overdo it, right? You don't want to be like, oh yeah, I'm going to acclimate time to go for a 10 mile run. Like like mm-hmm. ease into it. Uh, make sure you're hydrating. Make sure you're taking breaks in the heat. Um, there's also a lack of conditioning, right? So that's why you see a lot of heat illness. Ah, geez, maybe that's the first time I got heat stroke. It was like uh, I was pre-season workouts for like, uh, especially like collegiate athletes and things or, or athletes who are more seasonal athletes. So people who have been parked on their backside for a few months or in class or whatever. And then, they come and start doing a rigorous training regime, and that that can uh, that can predispose you, right? So they can c- cause you to be more likely to get heat illness. Um, and then there are some medications, right? So it'd probably say on your medications, but things like beta blockers, antihistamines, diuretics. Uh, you don't want to be drinking too much alcohol, um, and some conditions too, right? Heart disease, skin disease, uh, existing dehydration. Uh, fever, obviously, right? Your your, your temperature is higher to begin with, and diarrhea and vomiting, which can cause that dehydration, right? Um, so, like, if you have diarrhea and vomiting, it's not a good idea to also be, you know, going out and exposing yourself to a lot of heat, right? Um, so, all of those things can make you more predisposed, but you can have none of those things and still get heat illness. Um, I think the way to understand it is like the way we'll talk about the way our body cools. Um, so it does that through evaporation. Uh, mm-hmm. People will be familiar with sweating. Most people sweat. Uh, and so if you, the sweating allows your body to cool, right? The evaporation of the sweat allows your body to cool. Um, so people who don't sweat or, or people who have injuries, which mean they don't sweat in some of their body, again, are at a higher risk for heat illness, right? Um, well, and this also so, ties into uh, like wet bulb temperature yes. and... Uh, the fact that if you're in a more humid place, you have to consider the heat very differently, right? Um, yes. And so yeah, yeah. the East Coast versus the Southwest, for example, of the United States will have very different options available to them, both inside and outside, about how to cool down um, based on the... Knowing the humidity outside is going to be as important for people as knowing the actual temperature, Yes, definitely. Um, and most of the time now, if you're using a phone app, which I think most people are doing to check the weather, you, that you can find that. Uh, it'll give you the humidity and it might give you a wet bulb or like a real feel uh, temperature. But certainly, like I was, 
I was recently uh, on a trip to the Marshall Islands and I was running at like 85 and I'll run at 85 all the time and I was dying because the humidity was so high. Um, so um, yeah, where the humidity is higher, you're not going to be able to cool as much, right? So you need to be more careful. Uh, radiation, that, that's when your body um, is sh shedding heat through like, I guess, electromagnetic energy. Um, so that makes up most of your cooling when the ambient temperatures are less than body temperature. So once the ambient temperature is above your body temperature, I think in Fahrenheit it's like 96.6, um, uh, your body's going to be relying on other methods, right? That one's not going to work. Um, conduction, conduction doesn't really make up much of uh, It's not really that useful a way to cool. Um, it doesn't really make much difference, but like uh, people will be familiar with conduction. If you've ever slept without a sleeping pad, if you've been camping, you'll realize how, how much colder you get on cold ground. Um, and then the last one is convection, right? So that's heat transfer between the body and a moving gas or liquid. Uh, that's why wind chills a thing. Ah, um, uh, okay. Because that air is whipping past you, right? Cooling you down. Um, and that's also, the convection is one that we can use to cool people down if they overheat, right? Like um, jump in the creek. So, yes. Or if we don't have a creek, we can get you wet and then fan you. Okay. So maybe we can, if we're outside and we have those big thermorest sleeping pads, we can get some air moving that way and help you cool down if we know the ways the body cools then we can maybe use those right and we we have to understand like you said the the, the relative humidity right so when our body gets hot especially when it starts to overheat it'll shunt some blood uh to the skin right vasodilation um it will also increase cardiac output uh and it'll increase catecholamines which activate the sweat glands um so the uh hypothalamus will also regulate heat production in the body um, yeah, there's been two so i don't understand two of the words you've recently used but <laughs> okay which were the words which are the words i don't know the the cataco the cacophony and the hypercholamines okay <laughs> it, I, it's sufficient to say that the body you start to sweat more uh -huh. and your body begins to regulate Great. how hot it makes itself okay i got yeah. that one kind of from context but <laughs> yeah. what's this next one I guess your hypothalamus is like your um your, your body's kind of internal regulator and what it's doing is uh it's um in this case it's regulating the heat production of your body. Okay. Right? So it's, it's trying to um it, it it it's not making you hotter from the inside, I guess. Um that's probably a terrible explanation. Um Okay, so let's go through the different stages of heat illness. Uh, we can start off with things that people will be, I think we can probably skip like sunburn. Many of us will be familiar with sunburn. Many of us will have been sunburned. Many of us will understand. Hopefully we're wearing our sun cream when we go outside, right? Um, or just wearing our sun cream and covering ourselves up from the sun. Yeah. Not just like uh, running around with our skin exposed to the sun when it's 110 or, or what have you. Um, so... Step up from there would be heat cramps. Um, cramps can come from various things, right? Like I think not all cramps are caused by sodium depletion uh, or potassium depletion. People sometimes think that it's a potassium thing. Um, some of them can just be caused by overexertion. It can be your body's way of being like, hey, stop. Uh, so like if, if, you know, if it's 50 degrees out and you're trying to run your fastest 10K and you have cramps, that's not a heat thing. That's uh, just your body being like, okay, you, you're not ready for this. Yeah, uh, that's that's been my experience with running. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, your body's actively rejected it. Yeah, it's because yeah. it knows. I yeah, tried to join track when I was in ninth grade to impress a girl. Right. Neither part of it worked. 
I'm sorry to hear that. It's fine. But it, it, it's for the best. Yeah. Okay, I'm glad that you can share that with the audience. Oh, I thought it was just, wait, oh no, someone's listening? Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. So if heat cramps, right, they're mostly going to be in your calves. Um, and People will be familiar with the sensation of a cramp, I'm sure. When we're experiencing heat cramps, we, we want to obviously cool off, stop doing the thing. So if we're running, we, it's time to stop running. If we're cycling, it's time to stop cycling. Uh, it, it's unlikely you'll get them when you get you get them swimming. That's other kinds of cramps. Um, but uh, you know, if, if we're exercising, it's, it's mm-hmm. good to stop. It's good to cool down. And it's good to rehydrate. Um, so that's where you're going to start with your oral salt solution. And generally, uh, from what I've seen, it's a sodium thing. So that that's just like a quarter to half a teaspoon of table salt and a liter of water. Um, this is the electrolyte so, thing that people talk about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we get further into like these heat illnesses, um, one of the things that you want to be careful of, you're trying to rehydrate someone when it's overloading on carbohydrates. So you want a less than 6% carbohydrate solution. Um, you, that can mean just not pounding Gatorade, which I think can be like the sort of standard response for some people. Okay. Because um, it just it doesn't empty quite as quickly as something which has a lower uh, carbohydrate content, right? Okay. Um, but people who are f- drinking, yeah, go ahead. Drinking straight water doesn't rehydrate you as effectively as drinking electrolytes, right? Like if it's really hot yes. out, you pretty much need to be hydrating with electrolytes. This is unless you're like eating a salty snack or something. This is what I've heard mm-hmm. from people. Yeah, there's a thing called hyponatremia, mm-hmm. which which is um, when you the opposite that's like low sodium, right? Then that's uh, that can happen sometimes from just drinking straight water mm-hmm. um, without any sodium. It, it happens uh, rarely, but it, it definitely can happen. It can happen in like backcountry travel where people don't think they're exerting themselves; they're just kind of walking and drinking a lot of water. Mm-hmm. It can happen in marathons. Like it happens sometimes in marathons, uh, people are just taking the water from the aid stations, just drinking the water. Um, yeah, it's never like it, it's you know um, it, it's when it's hot. If you're having you know, when I was bike racing, I used to do one drink of water and one drink of electrolyte, even in the heat, pretty much like okay. one bottle. There are two bottles on a bicycle, then I think that's a fine thing to do if you're in the heat and then you're exercising. Um, you you don't need to be smashing Gatorade all the time because that's a lot of sugar and, and it might that will also not empty from your stomach. Um, so you know, a modern sports drink should have the right solution um you know there are lots of brands i'm not going to recommend one but uh there there are lots of different brands which should have a decent sort of four or five percent carbohydrate solution and pick one that tastes nice to you and then we move from there into a couple of different things heat exhaustion and heat syncope um heat syncope is when you'll see people like like fall over um and it happens often like the only time I've seen it happen is people stopping after like a long run, like uh, pe- specifically like when they push themselves really hard, right? And it can actually be, um, it, it can be people who are not particularly uh, dehydrated or, or hypothermic, um, mm-hmm. but it, a sort of a long run in heat you're not acclimated to. Uh, it, it can blood can pull in the legs, and um, it's it's often people who are elderly are not very well acclimated, um, and it's normally when they're standing and stationary. Um, and that's something that you can treat uh, by elevating the feet as the person lies down and then just getting them out of direct sun, sunlight and helping them rehydrate, right? So helping them cool or rehydrate. Um, you're going to see that in nearly all of these cases, cooling someone off is, is the most important thing to do. Um, so next one, we'll talk about heat exhaustion. 
again, like you'll know something is wrong in in these situations, right? Like if someone's just just like falling over, you will know something is wrong. If someone's yeah, then in the case of he's like you, you'll know. Like having had heat exhaustion, heat stroke, like you you yourself will also know. There are certain like uh, like ecstasy is a big one, right? Mm-hmm. Where people people quite often get heat illness when they're like at raves on ecstasy, and that's just because obviously like altered state of mind plus dancing uh, plus plus this drug, which is um, you know your body is not not making its usual responses, I guess. Yeah, um, and and that can be so like you know if it's 110 out, maybe that's not the time to be doing MDMA and and raving. And cop, cop, sorry, cop, cop behavior, yeah. James. Yeah, I, yeah. I can't, oh, I, mm-hmm, I can't mm-hmm. stand by yeah. and here and just as you spread this MDMA slander, people should people should absolutely be uh, knowledgeable about what causes serotonin syndrome and be careful about mixing other substances. But I cannot have you just disparage the good name of MDMA like this. Yeah. Oh, I will. I yeah. will take it one step further and tell you that. At least with my research, both caffeine and alcohol make it far more likely for you to suffer mm-hmm. dehydration and related heat De- things. Dehydration, yes. This is this is just but this is an actual problem. People should make sh- uh, like with MDMA. Um, this is something to to look up because um, uh, because of the way it affects your serotonin levels, it can cause you to overheat if you. Uh, take too much yeah. or combine with other things or if you're in a hot sweaty crowded room and you're dancing too much without taking breaks this, this is a thing to consider um mm-hmm. yes yeah i had uh there was a person i it was i think it was referenced in the in the course i did where they were talking about using a drone at a rave to identify people who are hyperthermic <laughs> uh, and like that's cool be like you are too hot step away from the dance floor like uh to, to identify people who are at risk, which is an interesting idea. Um, That's cool. I think, yeah. Um, so just, you know, something to consider as you go forward with your summer plans. Um, so other signs, right? Tiredness, weakness, dizziness, headache, fainting, nausea, vomiting, muscle cramps. Uh, nausea and vomiting is rough, I remember. Um, the, the worst heat illness I've ever had was in Vietnam doing a bike race. Uh, it, one of the rules in a bike race is that you can't take um supplies from your support car in the last 50 kilometers uh, and it was just so hot and i remember being like oh, i'm baking inside my skull i'm baking inside my skull <laughs> like and i'd been it previously in like a little group in front of the main group so i also hadn't been able to access water from my car then and then drop we got caught by the main group is what happened and i remember being like okay good now i can get my ice socks and put them down my back and i can get my cold water mm-hmm. and then i went back and the guy was like no 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 uh, it's like, it's like 49 <laughs> kilometers and it was like oh this is bad this is really fucking bad and it was really bad um did you I finish the race or did you be unsure yeah i did i finished the race um i'm not sure that was the right call my... but congrats <laughs> <laughs> yeah no no it's a terrible decision uh, i have to picture somewhere my teammates put me in a shower with like my legs above my head it was just like waterboarding me with cold water and i was being <laughs> given iv fluids <laughs> they were all like uh this is bad <laughs> it's not he's not in a good way <laughs> um yeah yeah, but you know, sport is good for you. Keep keep sporting out there, kids. Um, yeah. yeah, everyone was very concerned for me. <laughs> My all the stuff I came up with was like stay inside, don't exert yourself, like avoid caffeine and alcohol. <laughs> James is yeah, like yeah, yeah. if you want to push yourself past your limits. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, don't, don't. It's bad. Oh, cool. yeah. uh, we did everything wrong, right? Like it was in December, the race, because... Um, uh, like the Asian tour doesn't take a break at, at, mm-hmm. at like the December end of year time. It takes a break for Ramadan. So uh, obviously coming from the United States, we we were relatively less fit than we would have been. We were not acclimated. I had a fat beard, which did mm-hmm. not help. And like my hair was longer than it is now. Like my <laughs> body was not losing heat. Uh, just everything was... Uh, so just bacooning like, I, I, doing this this race. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> just going out there like full... Uh, like if there's nothing that... Uh, what What is more white man on the left than, you know, like a white dude with a beard? Yeah. It's like all of them, right? Kropotkin, yeah. bacooning, marks. And yeah, you have to try it. And uh, yeah, don't do that. Don't do that to yourself. <laughs> We talked about heat syncope, and the last one is heat stroke. So what differentiates heat stroke uh, from heat exhaustion is that higher body temperature above 40 degrees Celsius, which is 103, 104 Fahrenheit. If you're seeing 103, it's time to pick up the telephone and call 911 um, if you can, if you're in an area where you can do that. But it doesn't matter if it's 103 or 104, I guess. It's that you're very hot at that point. Uh, um, You're going to have hot red skin. Fast, strong pulse, headache, dizziness, nausea, confusion. People can also lose consciousness. Um, so uh, the this is very serious, right? And the line between this and, and, and really serious lasting complications is quite quite small. So yeah. you do need to be very extremely concerned. I will say that, like when you're taking someone's temperature, um, taking it uh, at the extremities is not necessarily going to give you the best. Uh, idea of what their core body temperature is right um so that's for the reason that like if, if they're hot if, if like if it's hot they're hot on the outside right like your ear or what have you um and then if you've if you've then tried to cool the person and you're seeing like a lower body temperature in their hand or if you well, yeah if their hand's been in ice you know in an ice bath then you might see a cooler temperature there um that's there are like rectal probes are used for this mm-hmm. not something to be doing in a sort of non-consensual manner um, they're not really something to be doing unless you're like a medical professional. But um, if you're, if so, just don't don't be relying. I guess like you know, people have those little heat guns that they like to use and stuff. Yeah, might not be the most reliable source of information. Although it might be useful um, for the initial uh, diagnosis, right? Yeah, even then, like if even if you can just do an oral thermometer as opposed to like the temperature of your forehead is X. Okay. Yeah, like if it's 110, then the temperature of your forehead is is going to be hot, right? Oh, like, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay. Uh, versus, you know, you, you're, you're trying to get as inside as possible, I guess. Um, yeah. I remember people doing cooling experiments where you had to take a pill when it measured your internal temperature um, and, and it wow. Bluetoothed it out or something. Wow. Um, yeah, so <laughs> that's yeah, cool. fun times. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think yeah. it's cool as hell. Yeah. I want one. <laughs> Rescuing it later sounds like not fun. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It does make an exit from the body. Um, so with this, again, right, you want to cool the person down. Uh, and the way we can do that, it's like ice packs, right, in the groin, neck, and scalp. So I used to do like um, just tights. Like if you're wearing tights, put ice in those and put those down my back of my cycling jersey when I was cycling you can put them in the groin so obviously the person has, has become like a heat casualty you can put them in the groin armpits uh, the like the neck um, and you can also if you don't have access to AC obviously if you've got AC you can put the person in, a, in an air conditioned environment to help them cool down you can put them in an ice bath um, you'll see that like at hot 
weather events. Um, I'm trying to think. There's there are a lot of other conditions that you'll see at hot weather events. We don't really have time to to talk about, but things like rhabdo are, are very very concerning um, if someone's exercising in the heat. But you'll often see at the end of hot events uh, in first aid tents, they're popping people in ice in ice baths to cool them down okay. if they've got some of these symptoms. Uh, like 15, 20 minutes, I think, is how long you want to put them in there for. Um, but like, if you're starting to feel headache, dizziness, nausea, I guess my like big take home here is get out of the sun, stop exercising if you're exercising, and yeah. start hydrating if you're not hydrating with with that carbohydrate solution. Um, you're looking to drop that cool temperature, that core temperature below that that kind of danger zone, right? And ideally, get it back to to where it wants to be, which which I think in Fahrenheit is around ninety six point six. You uh, you probably don't want to actively cool someone all the way down because you can overshoot and they can get hypothermic and so like uh, they can they can get too cold if, if you're like you know dumping them in a freezer or like uh, um you know actively cooling them too aggressively so that's something to be concerned with as well and you don't want the person to start shivering uh, because that, the body's trying to heat itself back up at that point so okay. you can't be u- uber aggressive uh, but I think. Having said all this, like I said, the big take home is like, if you start to feel sick, dizzy, uh, underwell when you're outside in the heat, get out the heat, get some water, um, get in the shade if you can, get in air conditioning if you can. Uh, if you're at a job site, you know, if, if there's like a, a trailer where you where that's air conditioned, go in the trailer. Uh, like it's not worth your life, even if it's your job. You want to know what's fun? Is that um, what's fun in the United States? There's no federal law mm-hmm. that says you can't make people work in the hot mm. weather um, without hell. Yeah, uh, some states less than half. I don't have the notes in front of me. I had the notes for a different thing I recorded recently. Mm-hmm. Um, some states, like 16 of them or something, maybe have laws against working people outside in the heat, um, but most Magic. states don't. The federal mm-hmm. government is like considering one right now but that is like probably Mm -hmm. years away before it could be enacted but it's like basic worker protections like don't have people work outside without enough stuff to make sure they don't die of it um consider forming a union Um, yeah google uh blair mountain for more information on how to respond uh (laughs) if you're not allowed if you're not allowed to take breaks for the heat yeah (laughs) um yeah yeah yeah, t- talking of uh, how capitalism is killing us all, Margaret, uh, it's time for us to break for some adverts of things people can buy. Oh. We have, we have some breaking right. news here, folks. We have some breaking sheep news. So it turns out oh. during, during, during yeah. James's last sheep episode, <laughs> he talked yeah. about having Texel sheep yeah, when, yeah. when it's actually tessel sheep so this is pretty no they're, they're definitely texels who, who pretty, who's like pretty who's, exciting here um who uh, uh tessel is the largest northwestern islands of the of the netherlands it's one of those european places where where the pronunciation where the pronunciation does not match how it's written and it's tessel sheep not texel sheep so this is pretty exciting for me and I, as, <laughs> Yeah. And usually James gets to make fun of how I pronounce words. And now, and now, yeah. now, now look who's laughing. Yeah, yeah. So here we go. Mm-hmm. Here we it's, well, should we, I mean, should we yeah. move into like machinations versus machinations or should we just move on? No, I think we could just move on here. This is fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll just start a Buenos Aires and move from there. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, Garrison, the speaker of Frisian. I, I, I have a hard uh, life. They did yeah. not teach me how to say words in Canada. It was all. I know. It, it, it was yeah, all speaking we, in um, tongues in, in the school. We couldn't. We didn't actually learn much much English. So much words. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. Yeah, we're we're uh, we're we're all learning as we go. You see, there we go. Yeah, I've just I've just learned that that the place is called Tessel, mm-hmm. uh, huh. and then thus the, the sheep from there. Is there an X in it or something? No. Uh, uh, yes. When you're uh, yeah, there's an, is there an X all the time? T E X E L. Yeah. Oh, I see. But X sounds the X sounds like an S. Yeah. Tessel. When you're not speaking Texel. in it. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Wow. And I, all my life, I've been misnaming the very sheep that uh, many of you enjoyed hearing about. Sad. Well, the, that's no wonder the sheep weren't coming when you called. They felt no, they come. disrespected. Oh, yeah, they, well, never mind. Yeah, I, well, to be fair, I just go out there and say sheep. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> I, I'm hedging my bets <laughs> with the pronunciation of that one. Well, you want to talk about animals and heat waves? I would love to, yeah. Tell me, tell me what to do with your sheep. I can also talk about humans and heat, and, she, and heat waves. So actually, ironically, one of the things that I learned, I don't know whether or not applies to sheep. I was talking before this to one of my professional animal friends um, who has worked in veterinary clinics and also is a professional horse uh, person. Um, so there's some stuff to know, right? Uh, for all of our, all of the people who aren't humans. Uh Different animals need different electrolyte formulas if you are going to feed them electrolytes. And for example, dogs need more sugar and less salt because they their bodies don't get rid of salt as much, right? They don't really sweat nearly so much. Yeah. Um, occasional Pedialyte or some other like non-Gatorade-y thing is, is fine every now and then. And probably Gatorade's probably fine every now and then. But don't be like, like you can go hiking and just drink electrolytes, right? Not sugar, water, mm-hmm. but electrolytes. Um, but don't do yeah. that with your dog, even if it's super hot out. Um, there is dog-specific stuff, and there's formulas you can look up for dog-specific making your own. Uh, don't shave your pets. This is the one that I don't know if applies to sheep. This My is, friend you, said... Dude, this does not apply to sheep. You, um, have to shear the, yeah, you, you, wanna, you have to shear your sheep or else they will overheat and die. Yeah, okay. Yeah, um, you got to want to shear your sheep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, some animals you want to shave, some animals you don't. If you have animals, you should look this up ahead of time. Some people like run out and shave their cats and dogs if uh, in heat wave. This is a very bad thing. Yeah. The the hair is designed to protect them from the sun. Also, especially like um, if you have a dog with a double coat, it does a lot of weird heat transfer stuff, and it's really kind of cool and magic. Brushing and grooming are very good. Uh, if your dog is like slow to its summer coat or it's – Summer is suddenly here 11 months of the year, or as I predict, there's going to be two seasons. There's going to be summer, which will last for nine months, and then there's going to be hellmouth, which will replace what was previously (laughs) summer. Um, Don't take your dog out in the hottest weather. It is better that your dog pisses inside that gets heat stroke. It is harder to identify heat stroke in a dog, but if the dog is like panting a particular amount, um, there's like other things about looking at the gums and eyes. I got bitten by a dog that was having a heat stroke on uh, oh my God. 4th of July. It was good I good feel times. bad for both the, the animals involved in this. Yeah, I feel fairly secure in saying that the people who uh, were looking after the dog aren't listening, but like, yeah. they made a series of very poor choices. Yeah, that, uh, uh, yeah. And like, it, it wasn't wise. Um, hiking is my main activity and it is like my main bonding with me and my dog, and I am not doing it during a lot of the heat wave. 
Um, and I'm finding other ways I'm, you know, cause I'm, I have to drive a, a decent way to go hiking. Right. So I can't do it early in the morning unless I wake up earlier than I want to. Um, but if you are going to do outside activities with both yourself or with an animal, um, consider doing them at early in the morning or late in the evening, um, or middle of the night, I don't know, yeah. whatever. Um, if you have animals that can't come inside, because overall, what it was going to apply to your animals is it was going to apply to humans. Like, get them into the AC. Like, what are you doing? But a lot of animals you don't have room for inside, right? Unless you're a medieval Irish peasant, in which case I've read way too much about how much those animals live inside. Um, yeah, cows under the house, so the warmth comes up. Oh. Um, yeah, so classic. You want a cross breeze in your barn or coop or whatever. Uh, if it's a coop, you want to make sure there's a place at the top for air to come escape and you don't want the like box style coop with only one entrance if you're dealing with heat waves yeah. um, you want a lot of cool water that is easy to drink and so a lot of people who normally feed their animals with like the nipple style feeders different animals you have different ways of watering them no no nipple style feeders during a heat wave the animal needs to be able to get into the uh, get the water easily um, for, for chickens you might want to bring your nesting boxes down to the ground floor where it's cooler you also might want to consider insulating the coop, like with hay bales, for example. You could stack them up next to your coop. Uh, horses have yet another electrolyte mix. My horse professional friend uses one called Gallagher's Water, but points out that it's like mostly bougie people use it when they're like, well, I mean, most people have horses are bougie, but not all of them, right? Um, at least where I live, other places. Okay, so um, it's only necessary in extreme circumstances. It's only better than water in extreme circumstances. Most animals do very well with just drinking water. Um, and also, you can probably consider, if you live somewhere wester than I do, you can consider misting systems if you have the money and the infrastructure. Um, and misting systems is basically just like it it pumps water out in it, into a mist and the mist cools everything down. And Below about 70% humidity, they're fairly effective. Below 50% of humidity, they're incredibly effective. And so they, and it's not that you get wet, it's that they do, it's like, it's like the air is sweating. The air is. Yeah. They're like you have in, uh, if you go to restaurants in Phoenix outside, yeah. they have them. Yeah. Um, I bought some really cheap off like Craigslist, um, like, like super cheap. Like I think I, actually, I just have to go and get them. Um, yeah. But no, I'm like so jealous because it wouldn't work where I live. Oh, you can't use them because of the high humidity. I mean, they do a little bit here, but not very effectively. Yeah. I know your chickens don't want to be living in a too damp environment. It could be bad for their little lungs. Okay. Um, so don't, don't be running one inside like, all the time. Yeah. yeah and like inside, but it, I think it, it certainly like my chickens will go around yeah. it when it's hot. So. It seems to work. And one person I talked to, and this is like, I did a bunch of research about this, but it's inconclusive. One person I talked to during the wildfire smoke actually set up a particulate, uh, set up a misting system because mist picks up and drops particulate matter to Ooh, the ground. Um, there's a lot mm -hmm, of research that says that this particulate absorption happens. There is no research to say this is how you handle wildfire smoke with outside animals. Um but that is something that at least one person I heard from is doing, and science backs it up. Uh, for human animals, in terms of preparedness, just to run through all this stuff that I'm 
been keeping track of. Um, the way that you're going to deal with all this, if you're not outside, right? If you're outside and you're dealing with the stuff, you're going to use um, what James talked about and like keep track of how you're feeling and, and get into the AC. I mean, the main thing you want to do is get into the AC, right? And you don't want to do strenuous exercise. Yeah. Um, you want to check alerts on your phone or your weather radio if you're a cool prepper and have like the a little weather radio. Um you probably want to use the buddy system outside if it's getting really hot, if you can, right? Just like having yep. someone who can keep track of what you're, what you're doing. If you don't have another way to get to AC, consider public libraries and other places. This is a very good time. Look after your neighbors, and some of your neighbors are housed and might not have AC. Some of your neighbors don't have houses and probably don't have AC unless they live in their vehicles, in which case they might have some AC. But not all vehicles yep. do. Um, and so it's a very good time to look after people, whether it's giving people rides to public cooling centers or whether it's setting up public cooling centers or they're just letting your neighbor who like, like come over because your AC is working and theirs isn't. Um, you want to, I mean, one thing that you want to do is just accept that what we're dealing with isn't normal. And I'll get to that in a moment. But so if you're a renter, you have fewer options, right? In terms of like structural preparedness, mm -hmm. there are some things that you can do. Yeah. Running fans, unless you're a podcaster, running fans is a very good idea. Uh, if you have mm -hmm. ceiling fans, you want to make sure that during the summer they run counterclockwise and during the winter they run clockwise. Um, so it's it, just look and be like, I want it to push air down. And you can visualize the direction it'll turn to push air down. Yeah. And that's the summer Wait, one. Yeah. I can want you change the direction they spin. Yes, there yeah. is a little yeah. switch on every <laughs> ceiling fan. I can see the one behind you. Yeah. Um, I didn't know. I, yeah, I can see I it on yours. Don't do it while so if it's you look spinning. on your screen. <laughs> no, don't be a coward, Garrison. Do you like walk me through it? Okay, I, 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 I think I see it now. Yeah, but, but don't. But, Close Turn your it eyes off as, and just as it's go spinning, for it. You want me to put my arm up and then so hit it's, it. It's mm. less because you're going to... Stick your head in there so you can get a good look at <laughs> where right, the switch I'm gonna, is. I'm going to get... Ow! Ah! <laughs> oh, no. Garrison's deceased. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> good thing they left me their jester costume. You'll never find out any more about Cop City now. <laughs> Cop City has to end because there's no other way for us to find out about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they finally stopped. It. All right. So other things that you can do. Evaporative cooling is the coolest thing in the world. Again, if you're not in a humid area, this is why humidity is absolutely terrible. And I picked the wrong part of the country mm -hmm. to be from. Um, wet bandanas, wet clothing. Uh, there's actually like, it's kind of sad. When I was saying that there's no labor protections about heat, some farm workers like developed a, like an immigrant farm worker developed a uh, cooling vest system that she's like working on that there's like articles about where it's, it just uses evaporative cooling to cool people. And it's like one of those things where I'm like mm -hmm. that rules. And also it's absolutely awful that that's like where we're yeah, at, where we're at, you know, it's not like, Oh, let's have better labor practices and stuff. Um, and if you have a house, if you have like a place that you can really do preparedness for, um, there's, I mean, we'll just get an air conditioner. Don't run your air conditioner as like low as it'll go. It just doesn't actually make things any cooler. Air conditioners are generally designed and only um, cool things. I want to say, was it like 30 degrees below outside temperature or something? Um, yeah. And I think also depends on like the size of the relative space you're cooling and the BTU capacity. Well, so that's what I'm saying. That they're sized better. for that. By like regulation. Yeah. If someone comes and is like, oh, what size yeah. AC should I put into this house? It's going to be 
I want this size house to be be cooled 30 degrees. I think it's 30 degrees. Yeah. It might be 24. Um, okay. And so if you run your fans, you actually can keep your thermostat up about four degrees. Um, and if you don't have a, if you don't have AC, there's a lot you can do with like thermal mass, right? Is your friend, like if you have a, if you can choose which mm-hmm. house you're going to live in, living in brick houses is great or Adobe houses. It depends on where you live and what your climate yeah. is. Um, mm-hmm. You want to keep your curtains closed during the day and open at night if you're trying to keep out the sun, but then let out the heat into the cool night air, assuming that there's still cool night air. Depends on where you live as we enter yeah. into this nightmare world. Um, reflective window insulation-y things, like the thing that you put in your windshield can help. There's like stuff you can do when you accept that it's an emergency. Um, and you can, okay, but then the other thing is that running ACs puts a lot of strain on the power grid and we're already starting to see more grid failure, usually in the brownout style rather than the blackout style. But when everyone's running their AC, the the grid is not designed to handle it and there are problems. And so... One, you get these like citywide text alerts that are like, hey, everyone, please turn up your AC, like turn down, whatever. Make your AC yeah. less cold. Cold, and, and this is an example of something that we should do and listen to, but it's really fucking annoying because it's not our fucking fault that the world is heating up, right? And they're not like yeah. turning off Times Square. They're telling everyone, you know, they're not turning off the ads. Yeah. Speaking of ads. It's a good time to pivot to some some more stuff. That, yeah, uh, even yeah, it's waste wasting power and energy. even in the emergency, there's still the ads. Here you go, and we're back. Um, Hopefully, it was for gold, which is uh, useless <laughs> in the heat death of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> just just want to throw that out there. <laughs> yeah, but it it does keep its value compared to cash. Just. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, until neither of them have value. That's why whiskey. Oh wait, no wait. Mutual aid. Mm-hmm. Now that's why I've been yeah, stocking up friends. on my on my on my series of John Zersion inspired NFTs that I minted last year. And oh boy, have they, only, have they only grown in value? And I I'm telling you, this is this is what's gonna hold me through whenever whenever you know the thing happens. Yep, I will I, be at your door with my uh, wanting to trade ammunition for apes. As I always am. <laughs> Find me in the group chat. Bullets for apes. Um, there's one other group of people that I want to talk about really quickly about who we should check in on, and that is prisoners. Uh, there is no way, from my point of view, I'm going to have a lot of bias here, there is no way for us to justly face a climate emergency while we live in a carceral society. Um in Texas, this is where most of the news is right now, but this is not like it's better other places as far as I can tell. In Texas, since mid-June, between 9 and 23 prisoners have died from heat. Um, but no one knows because Texas refuses to say that anyone has died from heat. They haven't done that since, I believe, uh, 2012 um, is the last time they admitted someone died from heat. However, two-thirds of Texas prisons don't have air conditioning, and a bunch of people are dying randomly of heart attacks in their 30s because they're dying of heat. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I, I think er- earlier uh, in, like, the first few weeks of July when it was getting very, very hot, um, I believe yeah. it, was a, it was a pretty young woman died in the uh, Fulton County Jail here in Atlanta. Yeah, um, I'm sure. And it's they're doing an investigation to see why. So, yeah. Oh, good. 
Don't worry, the Texas State House passed money to put AC into prisons, and then the Senate rejected it. Cool. Big thing is the money, because not much money in law enforcement, so I can see how they're struggling to afford that otherwise. Yeah, there was a... Oh, I didn't write down the numbers in my script, but there was like a many millions of dollar budget surplus that they didn't apply to, oh, I don't know, uh, not having people die for having been accused of owning weed. Um, yeah. I don't know, whatever. I get really fucking mad about this. And I, I think that it is like... Yeah, it's fucking horrific. Okay, and then the last thing I'm, I really want to say is that this was the hottest month, right? That any of us have ever experienced. Uh, it will be the coolest month in our memory at some point, you know, um, or rather, whatever. It's It'll not be the getting coolest colder. July in our in our memory at yeah. some point. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah, like yeah. next year might be a little bit cooler because of natural cycles or whatever, right? But it's not coming back. We're not going back to normal. And for me, this month marks a sea change. Uh, literally in that the Arctic Antarctic ice did not come back this winter. It's winter right now in Antarctica. And there's a five or six standard deviation away from normal amount of ice there right now. Five to six standard deviations is more than if you flipped a coin a hundred times and it came up heads every single time. It is like more than a one in 3.5 million chance, right? It is a very big number. It is a very abnormal thing. Um, nothing like this has ever been seen before. And I don't want to say this to make people afraid because I don't think we need to be afraid. Whatever. Fear is complicated. Um, you can't be brave unless you're afraid. That's what I will say. You cannot have courage. Courage is the act of responding to fear. Um, and we should notice the fear and not let it control us. But it really is time for people to very seriously look at not what's going to happen by 2050, but what is happening now? What is happening now? What will happen in the next three years, the next five years, the next 10 years? Um, and start making decisions based on that. That is what I want. I don't want to tell people what those decisions are. I want people to get together with the people that they care about and figure out what those decisions are. One of the things that I would recommend is building resilient communities, is looking at how to build communities, right? And there's a lot of ways, a lot of like scenes can become communities. A lot of extended families can become communities. A lot of religious organizations are communities. Okay, um, how and then how to make them resilient, how to collectively look at how to handle these things, whether it's literally just having a plan for like, OK, if the power goes out, who has the whole house generator where I live? Someone around me has got to have a whole house generator. I don't have one. Um, I want one, but they're expensive. Whose AC is still going to be running when the power goes out? Right. Um, or whether it's like, hey, how can we collectively help each other's houses have rainwater catchment systems, right? How can we collectively be building up food sovereignty as well as food storage? How can we have, I want to see personally, I want to see days of workshops at community centers of all different ideological compositions getting together and being like, here's how you can food. Here's how you dry food. Here is how you set up mesh networks. Um, I just, I think it's time. I think that I'm tired of 
saying, hey, bad stuff might be coming because it's not might be coming now. It's, it's here and it's really bad. And I think people stick to the might be coming because they're afraid of despair. And I will say that despair is not good, right? Um, but, the, but that is something that we can fight. How do we fight despair is also part of this. And the, the answer to that is agency. And when we can find ways to act with agency, that is, I mean, there's like studies about like in disasters, people who express agency have like less PTSD, right? When bad things happen. Yeah. Um, and even if the agency, like, I mean, I remember at like one point getting arrested, right? And being like, all right, well, I'm keeping track of like, I know that cop's badge number. I know this. I know this. I'm you know, keeping track of stuff in case there's a lawsuit later. I totally lost that lawsuit. But like that helped me get through that situation, right? Everyone else won the lawsuit, but because I was in black block, I did not win the lawsuit. Uh, that's, that, that's funny. That's funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, actually, it might have been because I refused to give my name. Anyway, whatever. Um, it was a long time ago. Anarchist moments. <laughs> And yeah. <laughs> just so, yeah, act with agency. That is the solution. The solution. It is. It's like like uh, it's not the solution to despair. It's a way to deal with it in the same way that we're not looking at solutions to climate change anymore. We're looking at ways to deal with it. Right. Because it's already here. Yeah. Yeah. We, we yeah some yeah. of the episodes that me and Robert researched and put together for the original It Could Happen Near Season 2 stuff is yeah. a lot of us talking about uh, about like uh mitigation versus uh adaption and every, almost every day it looks like we're getting more and more committed to just a full a full adaption model because these things are really not going to be like the, the most common widespread effects are not going to be m- mitigated um there's still a few ca- like cataclysmic scenarios that that probably could be averted yeah. but things are going to get so much so much worse and that will be to 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 deal with that we will have to adopt a large variety of adaptions and it's gonna suck uh, but it's it's what we're gonna have to do i i, I don't know I mean, yeah i've but there's there's a variety of like reactions to this i mean i i think i should just put together an episode on this sometime in the future but like there's as this as the intensity of the situation is more and more like uh as, as as it becomes more and more clear, we're going to get a variety of reactions from, especially from people on the right who used to be very much pure, p- purely like uh, ignoring or denying this problem. Um, some 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 on the right have like have skipped over the whole part where they've been wrong for so, for so many years and are going to start ap- applying extremely authoritarian and like nationalist s- solutions to this. Um, others are just doubling down on denial because facing the facts of the horrible situation we're in is more and more like frightening. It's 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 harder to admit that you're wrong and realize the the terribleness of the situation. Um, I, I, of the most recent example of this is I've been checking on the replies to um, to CTV News, which is one of the biggest Canadian um, like television news stations. They've they've put out a few stories uh, about how July is the hottest month, and the in 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 the replies to this story, it's there's just a, a shock, an, an honestly shocking amount of of pure like flippant denial. Uh, of what's going on and this has been an increasing problem in canada um and it's it's which is ironic because actually canada's economy is probably going to grow 
during climate change because they're going to take over a whole bunch of agricultural production from the states. Um, they're actually going to become a, a much bigger economic player. But the the amount of just pure denial that 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 we're that we're seeing in Canada and we're seeing get like increased is extremely worrying. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and it's one of those things that's really hard to deal with. Like, it's, it's also something I talked about in my Hyperobjects episode, but like, it's like, it's, it's the same thing if someone's like in QAnon. You can't like, you can't like out logic them from QAnon. You have to, you have to, you have to tell a better story. Um, so it, yeah. this is. You need a solid place to stand, like, before you can push someone, if you see what I mean. Yeah. But like, it, I don't know. It, it, it's just been, it's, it's been concerning because I've been seeing a, a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of these things about how this is the hottest month in. 120,000 years and yeah that is a an, a, that is a like a horrifying thing to learn and you can like look at you know what this what the sources for this are um but the fact that so many of us are just just denying this is that like as you like you can go outside and feel it as well like it's like it's and that's not how climate works all the time but like i've, I've certainly i think many of us have have felt the effects of this um and also, like the death numbers can't lie either. Yeah, um, <sighs> yeah, yeah. Um, and like, I just got back from a trip, which will be a podcast soon, uh, to the Marshall Islands, where like it, it is extremely evident that sea levels are rising, and if they continue to rise at the rate that they are rising, then these places will be uninhabitable within the lifetimes of people who are alive today. And uh, it's it it's very odd to or very sort of discordant to see that and then yeah log on when you get home and see someone being like oh it's natural variation or you know like oh it snowed last winter or you know some something which shows like an in, in, incomplete understanding but still like just a knee-jerk rejection of uh of, of like all the evidence we have that the climate is changing and it's it's not coming back I, I find myself the same – I have that same feeling sometimes when I see people refuse to engage with solutions, even with people who just are like, "Sure, oh, that's yeah. real. There's nothing we can do about it, so we're not going to try. Like, feels very like – and I don't mean like – I don't even mean a specific way of trying. I don't mean everyone has to go get arrested gluing themselves to famous things. Or everyone needs to go set things on fire. Everyone needs to only focus on growing food or like, but just when I see people like just being like, well, there's nothing. So I'm just going to not take it into account in my decision making. I'm like, even if your decision making is like, like I made the decision to move near my family because of climate change. I didn't move to where the climate is going to be magically stable. I moved to where I can spend more time with the people I love and be in a better position to take care of them. You know, like I just, I feel so like, I don't know. I it was whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it is. It is very difficult to see people just sort of, uh, I don't know, fiddle as a Titanic. Sinks I mean, yeah, like shutting like, down is the, is one of the easiest reactions to stress and, and ignoring totally. it. And both, mm-hmm. both the, both like yeah, the, totally. like the, like the vehement, like denial of this as things are obviously getting more and more intense, the denial, denial gets more and more intense, but so is like, um, the types of like the type of doomerism that leads you just to like checking out of being like, Oh, this is so bad. There's, there's nothing I can do. So I'm just going to completely ignore this. And then that's, that's also an, another way of just like sectioning off this part of your brain. So it, so it doesn't actually yeah. impact you 
it's 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 functionally quite the mm-hmm. same. And I can't um, blame people for it. And that's what I think people often think that I am judging for them for that. And I'm not. I just feel like I'm it just it's it's hard to engage with sometimes. Yeah, but I think a, a good point to end is like maybe the best prep you can do for climate change is not like uh and buying a bigger air conditioner or uh moving to somewhere where you think there is a better chance that you personally as an individual will be better, but it's building a community that can be resilient yeah. and that can like weather the storm. Uh, and like having seen a country which is losing its very minimal amount of land to climate change and how communities have come together to protect each other uh, during that, it, it, it's kind of reinforced to me how important community is as opposed to stuff. Yeah, Absolutely. Also, with communities, you can get more stuff. Mm-hmm. You can make your own stuff. That's true. Seize the means of production, yeah. but not for the pure Marxist point of view, but from the... <laughs> I'm, like, joking, but I'm actually, like, this is what people should be preparing to do. People, like, yeah, a, a climate revolution that's less about, like, oh, we're going to put in someone smart in charge who's going to fix everything, and more a climate revolution that's, like, we're going to create bottom-up solutions and... Uh, not let people stop us from creating bottom-up solutions. Yes. That would be a good... Don't be a good revolution. Consider implementing that. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. Now, this is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. If you ever felt like you were always too much this while also never being enough that, this is the podcast for you. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more via my own personal stories, along with interviews with inspiring thought leaders from our community. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community that you need to know. So much of what makes our community so beautiful is our diversity, yet too often those of us who don't fit into this dumb, stereotypical box of whatever it means to be Latino are left without a voice or just forgotten about. On this show, I celebrate the uniqueness of our culture and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's It Could Happen Here, the podcast where things happen. And sometimes things maybe don't happen. And once again, the thing maybe not happening is the strike at UPS. Um, yeah, so stuff has happened uh, since we last recorded, and also there was the thing that happened in the middle of the recording, which was the, the announcement of the tentative agreement. And so to talk more about what's been happening since and what's sort of in this deal, because we now know more details about it, is once again, Reese Smith and Oliver Rose, who are uh, two rank-and-file UPS Teamsters, and uh, once again, they do not represent the union, are speaking as individuals, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, but welcome back. Yeah, yeah, good to be back. Yeah, thanks for having us on again. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm happy to talk to you. So, all right. So last last time we found out in the middle of recording that there is a deal struck. And I, I guess I wanted to start by talking a bit about what's been happening since then and what the sort of what sort of organizing has been happening, what what the sort of union bureaucracy has been doing. Yeah, it's uh, well, it's been kind of kind of crazy. Basically, you know, we had that highlight reel that we all got. Um, and then it was a bit before we got the actual contract, at least like a few days. And since then, you know, your union bureaucracy has been promoting uh, these contract Q&A sessions and stuff like that. And they had three of them last Sunday and one of them this Monday. And voting has opened up. Uh, yeah, it's it's been a bit Bit, been a bit uh crazy feeling to be honest uh yeah yeah it's been wild yeah and of course you know while we're recording you know we get the the tentative agreement uh drop and you know it's framed as you know this big historic uh you know this game changer so and you know of course for the first day we just had what was in the press release um even some of that language was a little bit confusing. It wasn't until uh, Teamsters for a Democratic Union also had their own like press release, which clarified some language. And then, you know, we we're kind of just like, okay, we'll get, you know, we were told we'll be getting uh, the kind of agreement language next week and chance to, you know, debrief with the local. But really, like the, the, uh, I think it was the following day, the actual language comes out, you know, and some of the things where it's, um, you know, there's like a, promise with the uh all the general wage increases going on top of those market rate adjustments we're speaking about which are basically wages that are that ups can 
you know, add or even remove that's not actually tied to the contract wages. And, you know, so one of the things was, yeah, getting those raises on top, but there was no contract language, you know, in there, which definitely caused I think, a lot of confusion and concern among rank and file members. And it actually took one of the locals, uh, you know, having a no endorsement before we even saw you know, this uh, memorandum of uh, understanding between the company and the IBT, you know, guaranteeing this was going to happen, uh, you know, that we would be getting those raises on top. It was just kind of one of those things where, you know, there was this kind of really vague language that was used and I think definitely caused you know, people to not really fully understand, you know, what was going on, especially, I think it was, uh, about 75% of, uh, part-timers are, uh, ha currently have a market rate adjustment. You know, that's kind of a very big portion of the workforce. Yeah, it was a, I'm going to be honest. It was a real, it was kind of a real calm shit show, uh, from, from, uh, union leadership releasing the information uh, in the way they did, it absolutely led to a lot of uh, misunderstandings um, about what was in the contract, which, you know, kind of spread like wildfire. And the union response to what I think is a lot of just genuine misunderstanding is to just label it all as misinformation from people that have, uh, you know, their their own agendas. Right. And you can't you can't like trust those people you can only trust what's what's coming from the union um and yeah that definitely didn't inspire trust from the people that were leaning no um because in between a lot of these like and there is definitely was some misunderstanding about what was initially into the in the contract but there is also a genuine critique about certain things that are in the contract right and so instead of like substantively, substantively, like looking at these genuine critiques, we're all forced in the situation of sorting out what is quote unquote misinformation or, you know, more accurately, people not understanding legalese and also a bad rollout of information versus, OK, but what is in the contract that really needs improvement and instead of like substantively getting into the latter it's just been a pure focus on the former and yeah it's it's been it's been kind of tense uh it seems like you know it seems like there's a real mix it's real kind of even even uh how rank and file members are responding to this contract you know some have kind of bought in full sale that this is a historic contract um and others, you know, you know, such as myself, like, you know, there's still things in this contract that to me are unacceptable. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see where it goes. Yeah, I mean, you know, I kind of feel like it's hard to get a, a gauge of where everyone's at. And of course, I only have the, you know, kind of my local experience in my specific shift. Um, you know, definitely, yeah. I haven't, I haven't come across, you know, someone I work with yet, you know, who's totally just like, yeah, this is super historic. This is, you know, game changing, uh, you know, as they were saying, or the, the union was saying, um, a lot of people, you know, especially long timers are like, yeah, this is a really good contract with, you know, the best I've seen, uh, you know, in my days here. And then there's, you know, there's been a few other people who are like, yeah, I'm going to vote yes, but it really doesn't really seem like you know, it's matching 
you know, the, the framing of, you know, this historic contract. And then also know there's, yeah, I mean, other people who are just kind of like, no, this seems, I mean, I was like kind of like too little, too late. Like the gains aren't quite there. Um, yeah, it's, there's, there's raises. Um, they're also kind of done in a weird way where they're more or less like kind of front loaded towards the uh, first and last year and everything in the middle's a lot lower to the point actually where, and it gets confusing because everyone's kind of at a different rate with those market rate adjustments. You know, the more you're making from, you know, that supplemental pay, the worse this is going to keep with inflation to the point where it's kind of, you're only actually going to be just above inflation um, towards the end of the contract. And especially one of the, definitely one of the weaker things in the contract is all new hires or current uh, people without seniority are going to be on a different tier. And this is for the part-timer uh, inside warehouse positions. So, you know, the, uh, yeah, so if you have seniority, it's minimum of 21 an hour to start, and that goes up to 25.75 an hour versus those new hires or no seniority employees are going to be at 21 with a progression to 23. So 50 cent raises. And of course, uh, you know, once, you know, tack on the average, you know, a little bit over 3% inflation, you know, you can kind of quickly see, uh, it's those new members who are getting the worst part of the deal. Yeah, and and that comes to I think another thing that that is like I don't know. I, so but when this was all first happening, and I've seen this like a lot from people talking about this, is people talking about this as like a contract that like ends the tier systems, and that just like doesn't seem to be true at all. Yeah, and, and so one of the things, so there's the and. We, yeah, I believe we spoke to this last time. The the two two four is what it's called, where it's a combo driver and inside warehouse position. And most of the time, you know, they were just more or less practically uh, full time drivers, except for a few times where you know they, especially like earlier this year, they tried to transition them to mostly like in inside full time. But so the thing is, yeah, those will all get you know converted to the the package car uh, drivers with that. I believe with that rate, or at least very similar. Yeah, yeah. So we did get rid of the the twenty two fours, and that was the big promise, you know, going into this contract fight. Uh, but yeah, no, there are definitely still remaining um, tiers within UPS. You know, there's this new one that's been created, which is the you know the tier between the what they call the unborn. That's how they refer to people that have not yet what? been hired. By UPS oh that have God. like stipulations in the contract, right? Yeah, they call them the unborn. It's it's kind of funny. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, their whole thing is that they just have a completely different wage progression than the rest of us do. But in addition to that tier, which was introduced, you know, there are tiers elsewhere. Sometimes it's a tier between the hubs, like all of the hubs are making different MRAs and stuff like that. But Additionally, there are some hubs that don't have a uh, daily guarantee of hours like regular hubs do, uh, like, for instance, air hubs. Right. Uh, so like that's a, another basically another tier because it's, you know, people doing the same work, but not guaranteed the same things. Um, and yeah, yeah. So there's definitely tiers remaining in this contract for sure. 
And it's, uh, it's really unfortunate to see that the one existing didn't get addressed and that they just created a, a whole new one, even though yeah. they are adamantly <laughs> insisting it is not a tier. Yeah, and that's, um, you know, this goes back to, I, I believe, the 1982 contract, which is uh, when the full-time and part-time pay was uh, changed to different different tiers, uh, with part-time getting like $4 less than for, uh, full-time, which was, I think, 12, 12 an hour back in 82 versus uh, 8 an hour for the part-timers. You know, so that that's continued, you know, across all these decades. And so now with the current contract, provided you're getting paid um the contract minimums um yeah you're looking at full-time inside warehouse their top rate going to uh 36 dollars an hour i believe and then you're going to have uh part-timers who have seniority just just below 26 an hour and then you're going to have those people who uh weren't quite in the door yet at 23. and of course you know it's doing more or less the you know the same work the inside you know you're doing your loading unloading sorting uh the other you know various positions there and of course you know one of the things i've seen you know particularly online i haven't heard this on the shop floor but it's just like oh well you know they're working more so of course they're going to get paid more but it's like okay well yeah they have more hours so they would get more pay but that doesn't mean that they should be at a higher hourly rate yeah. Plus, you know, there's going to be other things too, like the pension accrual and, you know, vacation time where you're working more, you're going to get more of that too. It's kind of has its own reward. Uh, there's really no reason to have, you know, like a $10 discrepancy for that type of work performed. Also, I was doing some quick math in the background and <laughs> the, 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 the 1982 uh wage is like thirty six dollars an hour and uh with with uh inflation now. So that's historic. Great. That's fun. Historic. <laughs> uh, uh. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's um when I think about, you know, uh this union being touted as historic, I like actually think about like what are the actual historic wins of the labor movement? And you know, I'm thinking about like, you know, the right to a five day work week. Meanwhile, this historic contract, you know, it ended six day punches, but that's that's not a new historical thing. That was something we lost and then regained with this contract. So it's, you know, in my mind, it's not really breaking any barriers or like, you know, blowing anyone's minds, you know, especially when we have um, Sean Fain of the UAWD, who is talking about you know, one of their demands is a 32 hour work week, right? Like he's ad he's advocating that every worker needs a 40% increase in pay because the CEO got a 40% increase in pay. And yeah, it's just, yeah, our, our contract just, you know, it isn't at that level by any means. When you use that word historic, you know, like I think there could be times where you can you know, call something historic before it stands the test of time. But this is kind of like, okay, this is kind of, I feel like the contract, you know, you would expect a union to bargain. Uh, maybe it's, I mean, partly it's historic because there just really hasn't been really any gains. And so it's kind of like, okay, you got us wage increases. Uh, isn't that kind of just like 
what you should be doing. Yeah, well, I mean, I this this has been there's been like this has been like the there, there's been a bunch of unions in the last like maybe like eight months who have like settled and been like we've gotten historic raises and it's like I don't know it's the the, the thing that seems actually historic about it is essentially averting like averting this massive strike wave. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to add was um you know especially with those combo positions uh you know ending that tier. Is that was something that was introduced in the previous contract, which uh, rank and file members voted down. It was a no vote, but it was just because of this, uh, you know, kind of obscure, uh, you know, rule in the Constitution where it was just like, oh, if 50% of people don't vote, then it requires a two thirds, you know, uh, no vote. So, you know, that was just completely you know, over, uh, overruled by the union. They're like, eh, we're going to do this anyways. So it kind of, you know, it's good that we righted that wrong. Um, you know, it's good to reduce a tier. Of course, I'm not going to knock that. Um, but just kind of one of those things where it's like, yeah, but membership already didn't want that, or at least yeah, was it was like, like you guys no. did this. Yeah. It's like you guys did, you guys introduced this in the first place. Like, <laughs> come on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's also worth noting that, um, the 22, four position, you know, it wasn't working for our members, but it also wasn't working for the company either. They were having significant trouble trying to uh, fill all the shifts that were were needed and required by the position. And to the point that workers ended up kind of being slotted into one or the other with like really bad schedules. And it wasn't it wasn't working for either is the thing. Um, so it is it's great that we got rid of it. Uh, but it seems like it was somewhat of an easy thing to win. It made mutual sense, right? And yeah, yeah, it's just, there were, you know, there were bigger, there could have been bigger fights over other things in this contract that uh, weren't pursued, right? So. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing from, from everything that I've seen from it. It seems like, it seems like the goal of this contract is to get a contract that's like exactly good enough to get like 51% of the vote in a contract to avoid UPS having to like actually deal with a contract that a strike would produce. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah oh, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the, I mean, whether, I mean, probably intentional where it's just like, you know, it's like just good enough, you know, to maybe warrant like a yes vote. And especially, I mean, in context, of you know the last however many contracts but it's kind of one of those things where it's like okay by comparison it's good but again you know i don't think it quite goes far enough um either on the wage side uh you know on the on the wages or you know especially one of the issues um that i've been focused on a lot is the heat protections yeah can we can we talk about well specifically the heat protections but then also kind of talk a bit about what's what is in the contract and what like isn't in the contract that should be oh yeah, yeah. we can start with the heat production stuff yeah so one of the things so they'll be rolling out uh air conditioners in the the uh all trucks uh package cars purchased i believe after august of uh, next year and they'll be kind of distributing them by zones and current ones will be retrofitted with um like heat shields and uh vents i'm not quite sure how effective uh that'll be 
one of the yeah. things for the inside uh, people, you know, is there, you know, they'll be installing, you know, tens of thousands of more fans, which, you know, I'm not going to lie, that that will feel really nice because uh, those trailers just get so hot and stuffy. There's no airflow, um, especially like if it's been sitting for a while, you open the door. It's just like a blast of heat. But the problem with fans is they're only so effective, um, yeah. particularly once it reaches 95 degrees. Uh, they they don't do anything. And so, you know, there's a lot of places where it'll probably feel nice and it might help to some degree. But, you know, especially like right now in, um, you know, like the Southwest and the South, uh, where you've just had these, you know, 110 plus degree days, yeah. you know, for like over a month. Like that's not going to do really do much, um, especially if you're anywhere, depending on if you've got dry heat or, you know, higher humidity um, in the latter uh, fans can uh, and sometimes make it worse. I'm also worried it's going to kind of be like this, uh, you know, kind of like a comparison to uh, like um, security theater, but like more like safety theater where it's this appearance of doing something. Um to say like, look, we're doing this thing. It's going to keep you safe. But whether that's, you know, actually true or not. Well, I mean, we'll kind of find out, but definitely I'm pretty worried about, you know, what's going to happen, especially in the next five years. We already have, I mean, I think it was the, who was it? It was the World Meteorological Organization, you know, now has a, their researchers have like a, 98% certainty that we're going to um, reach a high mark for global warming before 2027. So, you know, and I, I'm pretty sure last July was already the the hottest um, month on record globally. And it's something yep. I believe there's an, I think in that report, it was like a 66% chance of passing that uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius warming, global warming. Uh, between now and 2027. So it's kind of one of those things where, you know, I don't think we necessarily have five years to wait to, you know, address this contract language and add further protections. And especially we got other unions, um, like the International Longshore and uh, Warehouse Union. They had an article that was talking about their heat protections, which have things like stewards that are equipped with uh, heat monitoring equipment versus the current contract language for us would be they can just use like the OSHA app or, um, you know, like weather service to check, you know, like a weather station versus like the actual specific conditions you're working in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that they, seems like there'd so, be a huge, it seems like there's a huge discrepancy there because the, like the indoor temperatures and temperatures in these trailers are way hotter than like the reported conditions. Yeah. And it can be like five, 10 degrees hotter. At yeah. least I, I bought a little uh, thermometer and, uh, high, high, hydrometer, hygrometer, something like that, whatever measures humidity. Because that's kind of how, because there are states with, with heat protections. There's like seven of them. A lot of times they're using the, the heat index when you're factoring in the temperature and humidity to get the feels like temperature. And yeah, and with the, the ILWU, um, you know, they're also getting rest breaks as part of their contract language, uh, which I believe two or three states uh, have those of the seven total that actually have heat protections. And, you know, the ILWU was uh, kind of talking about even though they have heat protections that kind of 
match or even kind of exceed partly um, what some of the uh, states have, you know, they're kind of saying this isn't enough for the current extreme heat we're facing. Yeah, and, and I mean, and you know, we've talked about this on the show before, but like, whatever heat protections get negotiated in a contract, like the company is going to basically the instant negotiations are over is going to figure out what the well, a what the cheapest possible way to do this is with the shittiest equipment, and then b like try to f- they're going to immediately try to figure out like how you know like how how to actually subvert it and you know this is this is the thing we've seen all over the world even in places that have sort of national heat protection laws is that you know even even if you have a law or even if you have a thing in a contract even if you have something in your contract it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be enforced and that requires a you know it requires like a, a pretty significant degree of organization to make sure it stays enforced and that's you know that that's true both of stuff that's in contract and stuff that's like legally required and so like if 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 the thing that they're nominally required to do is still insufficient, it's going to end up being way worse than that on the ground. Yeah, we're we're seeing that with our, I mean, existing heat protections at the state level where they're, you know, falling short. And especially, you know, there's either, you know, there's kind of loopholes or even just kind of like murky language that makes it really hard to enforce in some cases. Uh, do not have a good transition, but uh, it's hot. Uh, yeah, here here are some ads that are, I don't know, hopefully not making the climate worse. And we're back. So outside of the sort of of, of the concerns around heat, what what else has been going like what, what else is in the contract that there's been sort of dispute over? Uh, so if you look online, um. And this is an instance of not really quite understanding what's in the contract. But if you go online, um, a lot of people think that there are pension freezes in the contract. Um, and one, once again, I think we can contribute this uh, misunderstanding to a calm strategy failure as well as a lack of open bargaining. Um, the con- the con- not comms, the pension contribution rate has decreased, but money is still going in to the pension fund. Uh, Not as much as it was, is my understanding. The way the union broke it down for me was, um, like, there's a dollar, and 25 cents of that dollar is going to healthcare, 25 cents of that dollar is going to the pension, and then 50 cents of it is going to wages. And I'm going to be honest with you, I don't super understand all this money stuff either. but we, yeah, they showed us a thing where like the contributions are going to keep happening. Um, other things that have been in the uh, kind of in the like what we've all what people have been thinking about is uh, the full time jobs, which I know I we talked a lot about on the last one. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it. I, I think we we were using the 7500 for newly created jobs but apparently the contract also specifically requires them to actually fill the 22,000 some full-time jobs that exist that they just have not been filling but even with that additional 22,000 um that's still roughly 30,000 full-time jobs that is for the full-time work for, for the whole workforce of 340,000 people and something I learned is that full-time 
drivers can bid into those positions and get them because they will likely have the seniority to do so, because that's how we determine how to fill jobs. It's by seniority. You know, how long have you been there? And usually, you know, I think that makes sense. Um, but, you know, that really just contributes to the to the long, long wait of part timers trying to get full time work. Right. And. Yeah, uh, like the thing like kind of related to that, you know, we have these like if you have a market rate adjustment and you get your 275 for me, that's going to be 2675 an hour. And that looks great until you remember that we are part time. It is like we are supposed to work half a work week. I work less than because of the hub that I am at, which is not great. But, you know, we need the hours and there's not the there isn't enough jobs and that's stipulated by this contract. I think that there probably could be a lot more jobs. Yeah, I want to say something about that specifically too, which is that like when when like you random listener who's not working at UPS, whenever you see someone like talking about a wage number and it's for part-timers, like if, if you want to try to figure out can this person survive, you need to divide that number by two. At like at the very least, divide it by two, possibly divide it by more, because again, like they don't, no, no one's like, if you're a part-timer, like obviously, yeah, you're not, you're not getting the hours that, you know, that, that, that you, that you would normally, you know, if, if you, you, you can't just immediately convert that to what would the salary be if you worked, if you got like 40 hours a week or whatever. Like, you can't do that. I've seen a lot. I've seen this a lot, a lot, like, on the internet. I've seen pundits talking about it like this. And it's just, like, a incomprehensible misunderstanding of the act of, like, how how this stuff actually works for you to be going, like, oh, look at all this money that people are making, assuming that, like, you know, and then, and then using calculations that are based on, like, someone working full-time, which is Absolutely. most of the workforce, like a, a significant, significant majority of the workforce is not is not working full time and will not be even after this contract. Yes. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, it's estimated there are 60 percent of the workforce is uh, is part timers. Um, so, yeah, no, that that is a that is a huge issue. Uh, you know, a lot of people also like when this is brought up, a lot of people like to then say, well, you know, get a second job. But our jobs aren't flexible. Like, first of all, fuck, fuck having a second job. I am kind of staunchly opposed to the entire concept. But even if I wasn't, this job is not flexible enough to account for a second job. Not unless you never want to sleep and your second job is when you should be like sleeping. Because, you know, we have our start times. Those are given to us a week in advance. But we don't know when our end times are because the end times are when we run out of packages. So, you know, some days, you know, like in my hub, it's always just going to be the two hours. But like in other hubs, you could be there. You know, you could be trying to get your three and a half hour daily guarantee, like employing that when they're trying to send you home. Or you could be there six, seven hours. And, you know, how how. How is another employer supposed to operate with that, you know, you call in like three times saying like, oh, I, I can't actually leave my first job. You're not going to have that second job much longer. Um, so, yeah, in addition to the lack of full time jobs, the way this job is makes a second one impossible. So a lot of our part timers really are relying on that on that part time wage to get them through and picking up doubles when they can, which make, means you kind of end up having a 10 hour day because there's like about a two hour uh like space of time in between the shifts. So, 
yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, those are those are some some of the big issues. So, yeah, that's one of my worries. You know, if I about you know if I want to go full time or not is you know can be at least in the hub I work at. Um, I would say usually I, I'm getting like 24 hours a week. So, you know, if I'm going full time, but double that because now I'm working two shifts, but also, you know, got to have that like hour or two of wait time between shifts. So, you know, it's just a lot of time to be spending at work, um, especially unpaid time at work. That is that is the worst. You know, it's not quite a long enough stretch to like go home or at least, if you, you know, you have a decent commute uh, to work. And, um, you know, another thing uh, kind of came to my mind a little early, earlier was that, uh, and it sounds like, at least talking with new hires, that this is still continuing, which is kind of this really deceptive uh, hiring practice where the hours are posted. When I got the job, you know, it was posted as part-time, forget, it was something like, uh, I don't know, nine to four, but it, you know, had that schedule for five days a week, seven hour shifts, 35 hours a week times by the 26 starting pay i was like oh perfect i'll be making like you know somewhere like mid forty thousand. uh that's that's livable at least for for my specific um you know circumstances but then of course get there and you know the yeah we get two days notice for uh start time it's posted on our either um you know end of the week so don't know exactly when i'm working you know until right before uh the next week and, you know, at least during orientation, someone asked, oh, like, what's actually the end time? It's just like, oh, well, when the last package is loaded. Now, of course, if you know what when the next shift starts, you can kind of get a better idea of when you'll actually be out of there. But still, it's just kind of, it's, you know, it's this claimed flexibility, but it's very difficult, um, you know, to actually work a second job or even, you know, they offer tuition reimbursement and number of students who have had you know a hard time actually like you know getting the time off to attend their classes and also second anywhere that's part-time work that offers tuition reimbursement you know i would say there's an expect expectation that okay well you're going to school and you're working part-time you would think the wages then should at least you know provide enough for rent food gas textbooks all that yeah, uh, to piggyback off of what uh, Oliver just said regarding, you know, like this is a wage that is good for, you know, their situation when they were assuming it was at the, you know, 35 uh, hours a week. You know, another thing to think about is a lot of these part timers, you know, they have families, they have significant others that they're caring for. Like, you know, I, a lot of people look at this wage and one, make the faulty assumption that you talked about earlier by multiplying it by 40 to get the 40. And then they assume that's for just that one person. And like there are part timers of every age. Right. And they all have their own their own families and stuff like that, that they are expected to care for as well. So like when you look at all of this and the, you know, the rate of inflation and the way the economy is and you take all of these things into account like the gains that are provided for in this contract is not enough when you consider the whole of everyone who works at UPS, you know, it's leaving behind families, right? Like, yeah, it's, it's wild. Yeah. And I, I think another thing that isn't talked about that much in terms of this is like, the actual physical effect on your body of doing this kind of work, because this is like, 
I don't know. Th- th- this kind of work is intense enough that I mean, there's 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 very real risk of injury, and there's also I mean, just like you know, it, oh, oh, over the course of time, doing this kind of shit is going to like fuck up your body, and you know, like part part of the sort of bargain of like like part part of the bargain of this work is that you're getting you know it, it, it's it's in some ways like. It's in some ways like you 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 could think about it like if you're, if you're a mid level football player like you're gonna get your fucking brain destroyed by just repeated head trauma right and you know so you, so there's there's only a limited amount of time your body can physically handle this and it's like yeah okay it looks like you're getting a lot of money in a very short amount of time but you have to you know you have to live with the sort of physical consequences of what happened of what happened to you on that job getting that money. So that money also like not just, ha- it doesn't just have to get you through like now, right? Like it also, it has to also essentially be compensation to the physical damage that you're doing to your body by doing this shit. And oh, you know, yeah. I, I think, I think it, I think like these, these wages look even worse when you look at like, you know, when you, when you think of it in terms of, you know, in, in, in like in, like not even, not just in terms of immediate rent, but like in, in the really long term of having to, you know, live with the sort of physical damage that you take from doing this stuff. Oh, yeah, 1000%. Absolutely. And that's fine. I uh, just had a coworker talking about that today, actually. And, um, cause that's, I mean, there are a lot of like college age kids, you know, the early twenties, uh, they, I've, at least from you know my experience of notes kind of usually they're kind of like the quick turnover I feel like a lot of people are staying more like their you know 30s 40s you know we have people older older than that too um on my line and i think part of that's just like kind of we understand the uh importance of i mean a gold tier uh health insurance plan and a pension but you know of course with uh you know being older uh it's gonna you know have even more of an effect on the body and yeah i I know i've heard people talking about this where it's just like oh well it's just part-time or it's you know entry level you know quote unquote uh you don't need a degree for this so like why do you think you should be paid more it's like well it's it's brutal i mean we get a 10 minute break for working up to six hours that is it why they don't have to do a lunch break i don't know it seems like UPS just always gets their their way, and uh, <laughs> that's you know, like state, uh, local, federal law. They don't they don't care. You know, even this last contract. I mean, there's so many violations. Um, of course, you know we gotta whether you know this is yes or no. Um, whatever the next contract is, you know that's going to be a big part of the fight is just holding them accountable and to the terms. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, I, you know, I've had coworkers out on, you know, uh, workers comp for like, you know, doing physical therapy for the injuries that they got on the job for like months at a time, right? These like, you know, we're sitting around loading boxes all day. And some of them are very light, but some of them are really fucking heavy. Some of them are really awkward to hold. They're weirdly shaped. Like, there are some boxes where like they they tell you about the UPS tells you about methods, the eight keys of lifting and lowering that, you know, should make it safe. But like there are some boxes where it's impossible to follow those me- those methods. Uh, the absolute bane of my existence. Um, and I recognize them every time I see them. 
I swear to God, these things must be just filled with lead because you look at them and it's a very small box. You know, it's not more than like probably 12 inches long, you know, like, no, not even 12 inches, probably more like seven inches long, you know, like six, seven inches wide, and then like two and a half inches, you know, deep. And that should be a very easy box, but it's like filled with lead. And for whatever reason, it can weigh like 35 to 50 pounds. Jesus. And it's like one, that box is too small to like have a team lift on because you can't have two people around something like that. And like, you know, when you pick up a box, you're supposed to keep the natural curve of your back, but do not overextend the curve. And you have to for those like packages like that, right? Like there's not a way to position yourself to lift them safely. And you kind of have to uh, a little bit jerk up, which they tell you not to do, but that's the only way to get leverage on it. And yeah, like, and you know, I've been in trailers where like a box like that was loaded precariously, like just slightly above my head. And one time it came crashing down and I like neoed out of the way. Like I was like in the fucking matrix. And I was just like, oh, if I had just been a little bit less responsive, that could have been a very serious head injury for me. And so, yeah, the, the risk of like very severe injury, like, you know, I busted my face open on a grate outside of uh, where the, what we call the cans, which are like the, Things that have all the packages, they bring them to the bay doors. I was unloading and I had to go between them. And I like, there was motor oil spilled. I tripped and I like smashed my open, my face open on a fucking grate and had to get stitches. Like it's, yeah, no, the, the safety involved with this job is not extremely guaranteed. And yeah, the risk of injury is high and we should be preemptively compensated for that. Yeah, it's like, and even somehow, if you manage to go like your whole career without a single injury, um, you know, there's, well, at least like more the kind of like accidental injury because um, it's still, it's a lot of repetitive motion and you're gonna, I mean, eventually it's gonna take its toll. All right, we're, we're, doing, we're, doing, we're doing some more ads. Yeah, buy things. All right, uh, we are back. So I guess I know another aspect of this that I, I wanted to talk about has been the, the the sort of broader strategy of trying to avoid strikes. And this has been both sort of, to some extent, run by unions, to some extent, like imposed from the top down. One of the things I wanted to sort of talk about, yeah, I, I, I think in a sort of, kind of under-discussed aspect of what's been happening in the last sort of year or so has been Biden's willingness to get involved in strikes earlier. You know, Obama eventually got involved in a couple of strikes during his tenure, but he tended to not get involved until like a strike had been going on for like nine months or whatever. And Biden's been taking like a very, very proactive approach to sort of I don't know, strike mitigation, I guess, is the sort of like sanitized term you take here. They're like keeping labor peace. But he seems to have a sort of, you know, he, he seems to be getting very, very involved very quickly in trying to make sure that strikes don't happen. And, you know, the, the consequence of this is that we didn't get the rail strike that we should have gotten. And there, there's there's been a few other strikes that have sort of been averted. And I, I wanted to ask, I guess, 
how you're thinking about this strike, not just sort of in terms of like the immediate benefits, but in terms of what it would actually mean if like another major strike sort of gets shut down before we can get going in a year that is, I mean, still even, even, even if this strike doesn't happen, a, a pretty sort of full year in labor terms. Yeah, yeah. Well, one, I guess I got to say thank you to the most pro-labor president of our lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, he, yeah, you're absolutely right. He does seem to be getting involved early in mitigating them. Um, if I was, if I had to speculate, I, you know, I, he's very concerned about this whole economy thing that we keep talking about, right? And he doesn't want to see any big shocks to the economy and you know that's something where i guess i disagree i think you know i think a a shock to the economy that is brought about by workers going on strike is a reminds them of what they have and what they move and what they create right and i think yeah the ruling class you know our politicians and the capitalists who own our politicians they, they don't want us to experience that, you know? Like, I remember um, even during the, you know, the Trump administration when, you know, it was when during the government shutdown and Sarah Nelson got all the flight attendants to do a sick out and stuff like that. And kind of just like that, the government shutdown had ended and they all went back to do government things, whatever those government things are. Um, and, you know, like people on Twitter, you know, they were talking about like, yeah, this is like workers have power to affect not only their own work conditions, but they can have broad implications on society, on the political climate, on what's going on. And, yeah, there was absolutely, I think, a contingent of um, centrist liberals that were like really frightened by that idea. You know, they like a they like a society in which. The right people with who went to the right schools and all of that, like where they are the ones that are in charge and they are the ones that are shaping history with the pen strokes on like, you know, whatever bills they're legislating. And yeah, I think they have a vested interest in making sure that workers don't get to experience that sense of autonomy that they can experience by going on strike and by seeing you know exactly what kind of power they have and what it does cuz they don't want it they don't want it to get beyond what's going on in the workplace they barely want it there you know like so yeah yeah i think there is a vested interest and yeah i it i have not been able to see it confirmed but i have seen in articles where they will say that, you know, Sean O'Brien had met with President Biden, but then there isn't a link click through. So I can't figure out what the initial thing is. But I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Like, and it's it's a it's a damn shame. It's, you know, it's a shame that uh, the president of our local union, you know, should that have happened, succumbed to it, right? Yeah, that, that's the thing where it's like, it's been really hard to get reliable information on. It's also possible they were sort of behind the scenes talks that we just don't know about. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the place we know this happened is we know this happened between the rail strikes, right? There was a lot of pressure from rail unions to like like on, on, on their rank and file to like get to just like sign on to some kind of agreement. And I think I think this is something that 
you know, in, in terms of sort of political repression, like it's something that's not understood in the same way. But like that is also still like that, like that, that like negotiating behind the scenes and putting pressure on. And then, you know, eventually Biden does just actively like mandate that the strike can't happen. Right. Like that is like that. I, 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 I will argue that that is in fact a form of strike breaking. Mm hmm. I and, agree. And, and I, I think, I think people are tend to be less, but, but, you know, specifically the, the, the ability to sort of cut deals with unions like this is something that the Republicans have a, like, aren't like really good at. Like it's, it's it's not it's not an ability that they really have. It's it's something that like is is largely limited to the Democrats, and but it, you know but this this means that they have sort of they they have a unique capacity to repress social movements that isn't as obvious as sort of like you know just like a bunch of strike breakers showing up or the cops showing up, but is there all the same? And I think is in some ways more dangerous because you know like you get these arguments with like with the rail strike where like. Technically, eventually, Biden was able to get some kind of deal through for some sick time, right? But you know, and and you you have you have this sort of like liberal conception of of what labor is, where they're like, oh well, uh, you everyone was wrong to like be mad at Biden for this, like they got the thing eventually. But you know, the the problem here isn't it isn't just you know strikes aren't just about the immediate thing that you're fighting for, right? Like they, they're, they're also about like moving the class as a whole. They're about the experience of striking. They're about the, and they, and they're also about the fact that you will get a better deal if you win a strike than you will. If you get like, you know, if, if you get one of these sort of like negotiated deals, like cut in a back room by Biden and like 17 unions, and the manufacturers association. And so I think, I think, it, I think it's important to understand that, you know, the like there there is a fundamental sort of difference between like liberalism sort of conception of you know you you achieve material gains and it doesn't really matter what the process is right or you know the process is like you go through the legislative domain there, there there's an actual difference between that and the things that happens during a strike which is you know there, there's there's an actual process of like the building of power of workers and you know building the autonomy of of the class itself and i i I don't know i think i think those are very different and i think i think a lot of what we've been seeing here is an attempt both by unions themselves by and you know by by business leaders and also by like the president and the democratic party to try to make sure that this doesn't happen and that they can sort of contain this really explosive uh labor moment and prevent it from sort of turning into anything more. Yeah, I think that's very true. Um, I think that, you know, the unions, you know, have long been divorced from their original roots as like, you know, this was a communist social, this sprung out of communism, socialism, anarchism. It was about workers banding together to not only collectively bargain just for their workplaces, but for society-wide issues, right? Unions used to be explicitly political and i you know as we've like seen this rise in political conscience you know over like this last decade uh the ruling class and you know the entrenched uh union bureaucrats that have long been you know divorced from those origins i think have a very vested interest um in you know 
not having labor go back to those roots to and stuff like that. You know, it threatens uh, it obviously threatens the working or the ruling class power, excuse me. And it, you know, it threatens your union bureaucrat jobs um, when workers start like demanding more from like what the labor movement can provide for them. Right. So I I think that's all that's all very true. And it's just that this is another avenue where collective change is possible and the state and capital will always clamp down on any avenue where change can be achieved through those means. So I think that's really, really what we're seeing here. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, I think I think another thing that's worth pointing out is that like part of the reason that like part of the reason that, you know, if you if you go back to sort of like when when the era of the sort of decline of unionism happened, right? Like part part of the reason why the Reagan era repression worked was that a lot of these unions had already sort of hollowed out the radical core of like what had been their union organizers. They had purged, you know, like the the, the CIO, I mean, even back as, as as early as like the 40s, like the CIO purged like all of its leftist members. Um and, and you know you got these successive like these these successive sort of iterations of unionism that were less and less militant and you know like you you can you can you can literally see what the result of that has been right like union density down to like six percent and so you know if, if 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 it keeps going like this and we keep getting these sort of like sustained efforts to make sure that it never redevelops again like yeah like <laughs> it's we're, we're we're gonna we're gonna be stuck there yeah, and I mean, just, yeah, I mean, specific to those UPS contracts, you can absolutely see that, you know, by looking at the wage growth, you know, through the last 40 years, or maybe uh, the lack thereof, uh, more the stagnating wages, just, uh, you know, between either, you know, union officials or, you know, even in the, you know, Biden coming in, I think it's like, you know, more or less like these people who aren't going, you know, who didn't enter the economy, uh, you know, within the last, you know, decade or two, you know, and don't know at all really what, what our experiences are, uh, you know, what kind of challenges and struggles and burdens we're facing. Um, and I mean, especially and not prepared at all for, you know, this world with a drastically changing climate. Yeah. Yeah. And then like, you know, also to go back to like, you know, the decline of, you know, how unions have operated, you know, over these last like for for some decades right i think this is something i talked about a lot and i talked about it i think on the last podcast but you know once the the organized left was kind of purged out of all of these unions you know unions kind of became about a service model and you know that's when the union leadership you know does you know like you on the floor are enforcing your contract you're bringing your grievances to the union and the union is getting something done about them right and i think you know that model in and of itself is uh indicative of a decline of a uh, collective action right that reduces the union to yeah that's the entity you're going you go to when there is an issue in the enforcement of your contract and they negotiate a new contract for you and, you know, that's that's the service model type. Right. And that's like what we're seeing a lot of. That's what, like, you know, a lot of the business unions do and stuff like that. Some of them do it better than others. Um, 
you know. Uh, but then there's also the organizing model where you use the union as a means to make your members militant and they do contract enforcement on the floor and they like, you know, organize protests at their work site and they like, you know, they get involved in, you know, issues outside of the work site. Right. And I think, yeah, like watching the service model kind of prevail over these last, you know, some decades over the organizing model is just, yeah, it's absolutely just another sign of collective action being stamped down wherever it can be. You know, no, there, there's, so. there's an interesting thing with the the, there's an interesting thing with the service model that I see a lot where it's like, you know, when 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 you're getting like sort of union inoculation uh like stuff, right? They'll be like, ah, like the ma- ma- management is going to tell you that like the union is an outside force and it's not the union is actually you. And it's like this is true, but also like, damn, I I I wonder where the idea that the union is an outside force and is not actually you came from. Like, it couldn't, mm-hmm. you know, it's it like it it it, it could it couldn't possibly have anything to do with the way you run your union. Like, yep, okay, yep, <sighs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I think we were talking about that last time, like the kind of like the lack of onboarding engagement by the union. Yeah, um, I mean, especially you know, I mean. Yeah, I mean, I know there's, I mean, other union members too, where it like does kind of feel like they're like, oh, I don't have all these benefits or higher pay or, or, you know, we're thinking about striking, but we don't even have a strike fund. Uh, you know, we don't know how <laughs> exactly we'll weather the storm. I mean, that's something I hear, you know, a lot on the, the shop floor is like when talking about, you know, our union, you know, it's, it's always the union. I know I say that a ton too, but, I mean, I kind of feel like the language we just use, like day to day talking about it, um, you know, it kind of there's that like inherent separation where it's like, oh, it's the union. It's this, um, you know, it's this outside thing. It's not, oh, it's a collection of all, you know, rank and file members. It's us. We're the union. Yeah. And it, and it doesn't, and it, but the thing is, like, yeah, it, it doesn't become that unless you have a really high level of participation and then also, like a systemic effort to make sure that to make sure everyone's involved and to make sure that you know the the union functions in such a way that even that that like you know that that decision to membership actually matters and i don't know i think i think i think it's really i i, I think it's really easy to you know in this moment where unions are incredibly like you know, with the, the the total the actual amount of like unions in the U.S. is really small, and also simultaneously, like, you know, we're we're seeing a sort of resurgence of union organizing. I, th- I think it's really really easy to sort of fall into this trap and like be be completely uncritical of the way that unions have functioned, because again, like if if the current model of unions that exists right now, like if that stuff worked. Like we wouldn't be in 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 the sort of conditions that we're in now, and that calls for, you know, like that 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 calls for collective action, and you know, one of the things that calls for is being willing to go on strike. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um. Do you two have anything else that uh you wanted to add? Yeah. No. Because like something that, you know, when I think about like you know how do we get back to like this sort of uh 
you know, where a union is, you know, we are the union. A union is a col- like is a collective of of workers advocating for their rights, right? They are banding together, you know, they're negotiating together. And when I think about, you know, uh the Teamsters, you know, and how they operate right now. And, you know, we just had that big reform slate win where Sean O'Brien won and then, you know, delivered us this contract. And, you know, Sean O'Brien did do like they they did in TDU did do other good things. They got rid of that uh, constitutional rule that uh, Oliver mentioned earlier. But I think, you know, when we talk about like bringing down that barrier between the union and the members, the next most obvious step for me, is that we need to get to open bargaining in this union. And frankly, I think open bargaining, uh, or the fact that this bargaining was closed, you know, it was behind behind closed doors, you know, there were NDAs signed. There were rank and file members there, but they also couldn't tell us about it because of those, you know, NDAs. Um, Open bargaining is what's going to solve this because... This like the whole fiasco about this tentative agreement and now all the kind of resulting uh, hostility that is felt between members and leadership and members and even other members. I, I think it's, you know, like so much of this is due to a failure of comms and the fact that we did not know what was being discussed in this uh, in these negotiations at any time except for the vague highlights that they could tell us about, right? And then, you know, they release a highlight reel that has very confusing language. They eventually do release the contract, but not all of the memorandums of understanding that would help us understand what is actually in that contract. And, you know, they're releasing all of this information in a way that is going to result in people not understanding what's in it. And... I really do think open bargaining is the next step that, you know, reformers in this union need to be advocating and organizing for Um, because this has just kind of been a real shit show, um, to be honest. And I, yeah, I think it's a comms failure to be perfectly honest. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I would absolutely agree with that. Um, you know, and I know like there was there was a IBT webinar with um, Sean O'Brien and, you know, he even spoke to misinformation, but didn't, you know, elaborate on what it was or, you know, how or why it's wrong. And I was just like, man, you got our emails, addresses, phone numbers. We're here on this webinar. Like you can correct the record anytime. You know, it's uh, <laughs> if you're worried about something that's not true and may may or may not influence people's votes like you can do something about that like you you have a lot of money uh you have you know a comms team so use it uh it's you know just talk to your members like they're real people uh you know we can we can understand shit uh you don't gotta just you know get get angry or even kind of like i was saying earlier where it's just like almost this like feels like this framing where anything you know that's a dissenting view or a critique you know so oh it's just it's all misinformation don't don't pay any attention to it yeah which is you know i i don't know like i I, i've seen this in a couple of i don't know like i this 
I've I've seen this in a couple of sort of union things we've covered on this show is like I don't know, and and an incredible unwillingness of union leadership to even like consider a position that's not their own and to just sort of like immediately you know when when confronted with another thing to just immediately attempt to completely delegitimate them, and that sucks. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it's just not a not a great way to run a union. <laughs> No, no, you definitely, you know, and I've been seeing this, this, uh, this closing, like, sort of rank around, around leadership, right? And it's not something that inspires trust in union leadership whatsoever, right? Like, you know, you could be a member that, you know, doesn't understand something, just has a question, and then you kind of getting, and you kind of just end up being stonewalled. And, you know, you're told, well, you know, go to this meeting where we're going to explain things and da, 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 da. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, I have you on the phone now. Can you explain it now? And, you know, and it's as it's like they're taking all of these concerns as a personal blow to their ego. Right. Like they're taking it personally as if people having concerns about what this contract does and does not stipulate is like an attack on their moral character. And it's just really fucking frustrating. I I gotta be real with you. And, you know, it doesn't say a lot for the overall democratic nature of the union either, right? Like, you know, this is like, you know, you're kind of being told, well, you know, keep your opinions to yourself, accept our word for it. Like you can vote however you want. You know, this is one member, one vote. But, you know, you can't be going online talking about it. You like can't be going talking to your coworkers about it because you don't have all the information. You're not understanding it correctly. And it's just like, well, can you get better at explaining it? Can you not react this way? Like, can we have like a thing where like we can just like fucking talk about what's in it and what's not in it? And yeah, it's it's just again been real fucking frustrating. Yeah, it's another thing. I mean, too, is um, you know, any contract language, maybe it should either be more clear or concise, or if it's gonna be more in the legal east side, um, you know, put out a little like contract uh like explainer guide, maybe especially around key language or language that they know is maybe vague or gonna cause, you know, issues of like understanding it. And even, um, you know, one one other thing about like, you know, open bargaining uh, was, you know, looking at the IBT press release, you know, there's one paragraph and it starts uh, rank and file members served on the committee for the first time. It uh, continues uh, on later saying, you know, our hard work has finally paid or our hard work has paid off. And, you know, and goes on to then say, you know, this is uh, the most historic contract we've ever had. So it kind of seems like right there where it's like, well, if limited member participation bound by NDAs led to this historic contract, maybe it's time to involve all of us. <laughs> yep. mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, you know, the rank and file that are on these committees are appointed by leadership. So we don't we don't get to choose who these people are. And it's like leadership absolutely just has the ability to be like, well, I'm going to, you know, appoint the ones that. I like the most that I have the best relationship with that 
I know thinks the sun kind of shines out of my ass. And yeah, there's just this absolutely overall lack of a democratic, uh, lack of a democratic internal culture. You know, we elect, you know, our officers, most of them, um, but we don't elect stewards. Uh, we don't really, we don't elect our business agents or like anything like that. We vote on our contracts and that's it. You know, at our union meetings, I have had one union meeting where we did a vote that was introduced by leadership, right? It's just, it's, yeah, it's uh, not the most democratic culture. And that's another thing that needs to, that needs to change as well. Yeah. And I mean, I think that goes back to a sort of like, you know, a, a, a fundamental political conflict, which is like, is, is democracy when you vote for someone else to make every decision or is democracy when people collectively make decisions themselves? And the sort of slipperiness of those two things causes, you know, like causes, you know, allows people who essentially want to be the only ones who ever get to make decisions to be able to claim that they are in favor of, of democracy or whatever, but, you know, mean like mean that they get to make all decisions after they get elected and not mean actual people sort of make decisions for themselves. Yeah, 1000 percent. Yeah, it's like we need a, you know, more someone who serves as more of a delegate role than a, uh, you know, representative. OK, I guess I guess my my final thing is I. Yeah, you you two are both encouraging are uh, going to encourage people to vote no on this contract for it. <laughs> uh, the 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 extremely long list of both technical procedural i uh, material and like broadly social uh, reasons yeah that's correct yeah i'll be mm -hmm. um yeah i'll be voting no and also advocating for that and also i mean just also advocating people to vote as well yes big same on that uh low low union participation uh sends a bad message to the company so definitely definitely doing both and continuing to have those uh conversations on the shop floors with folks explaining my concerns and stuff like that but yeah no i'm i'm also going to be voting no on this contract as well yeah so um that is <laughs> yeah i guess i guess that that is that that is our coverage of this uh there is still time for there, there is still time for there to actually be a strike and for this contract to fail and for people to fight for a better one. And yeah, I, I wish both of you two good luck in fighting this. And yeah, and thank you both for coming on. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for having us. I was excited to give you guys an update about all the crazy shit we talked about in the first episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm glad, glad, glad we got to talk about yeah, it. It was a pleasure being on and yeah, appreciate the time. Yeah, uh, do you do you have anything to plug before? You know, a yes or no vote. Uh, solidarity, all all workers and everyone on the shop floor. And you know, we'll gotta keep on fighting uh, for better conditions. Yeah, and I, you too, dear listener, can fight for better conditions in your own workplace. And yeah, if one day, one day, fight for a world where we don't have workplaces like this at all. 
Amen. Hallelujah. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. Now, this is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. If you ever felt like you were always too much this while also never being enough that, this is the podcast for you. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more via my own personal stories, along with interviews with inspiring thought leaders from our community. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community that you need to know. So much of what makes our community so beautiful is our diversity, yet too often those of us who don't fit into this dumb, stereotypical box of whatever it means to be Latino are left without a voice or just forgotten about. On this show, I celebrate the uniqueness of our culture and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's foreign my policy? I don't know. I don't know, guys. I don't know. <laughs> I, I got, like, trapped into this, like, pattern of doing introductions a certain way and i don't really i don't like feel good about it but how do you how does one break their patterns speaking of patterns let's talk about syria 
beautiful. That was awesome. Yeah, <laughs> Thank I you. understood yeah, exactly what that meant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like one of the basketball guys when someone lays him up and then he just does a dunk. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I feel like. Yeah, Don't know enough about Green them. Green, Green uh, Bay Packers swish. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Go Tom Brady. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. Sports sports talk aside, I'm wearing my Rwanda football shirt today. Uh, we we are gathered here today. Um, to talk about uh, Turkish drone strikes on their SDF. Yeah, not funny. Yeah. Not, not funny. Not the yeah, the SDF. Yeah, funny, we're yeah. talking about like Turkish, the continued Turkish military operations across their border in um, northeast Syria, the area commonly known as Rojava, and mm-hmm. uh, also yeah. in southern Turkey as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So uh, just to give some some numbers around this to start off, right, in year of 2022, which there wasn't a territorial offensive. um, So like you're you're not seeing like uh, troops on the ground. Uh, Turkey carried out 130 drone strikes in the autonomous administration of northeast Syria. Yeah, that's the place that is more commonly known as Rojava. And um, they killed at least eight YPJ members. um, So the YPJ would be the Women's Protection Forces, who are a unit within the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is the armed forces of the AANES, Autonomous Area of Northeast Syria. Um, I will come at you really hard with acronyms in this. I think if people haven't listened to Robert's series, Women's War, maybe The Women's War, uh, that would be a good place to start because like, we only have half an hour or 45 minutes or whatever, and we can't explain an extremely complicated conflict which has been going on for 12 years in that time so i think some grounding in who is who and what is what you, you can find it there i guess um, but is that a fair summary of who those people are robert yeah basically so you had kind of the, the gist of the story is that for a very long time starting in southern turkey there's been a Kurdish militant group called the PKK. They were way back in the day, originally Maoist. Um, They had a bunch of internal power struggles within their own organization um, and then wound up taking a pretty uh, uh, wide turn away from Maoism towards um, a a kind of political theory heavily influenced by the work of an American anarchist thinker named Murray Bookchin. Um, This was largely due to the fact that their leader, a guy named Abdullah Ajalan, uh, got while he was in Turkish prison, kind of pilled on a lot of uh, uh, these this kind of like uh, fringe American libertarian-ish sort of um, uh, political Social philosophy. Ecology. Yeah, with, with with this basically the 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 gist of it is this this kind of the, the this kind of synthetic this kind of synthesis of a lot of Bookchin's ideas with some of the stuff that um, Ajalad had been had been thinking about for years, kind of culminated in uh, a political philosophy called libertarian municipalism, um, which is more or less the the governing philosophy that these different armed militant uh, organizations kind of clustered around the PKK in Northeast Syria, because the PKK for years were just kind of like cross the border in the Northeast Syria when they were fighting with the Turks and they had to get away. Um, and they had a bunch of inroads with local Kurdish organizations in Northeast Syria. And when the Assad regime pulled out of the area in the early stages of the Syrian civil war, um, a lot of these groups that were affiliated with the PKK were kind of the best organized uh, organizations in the area. And so they took over a lot of civil administration 
um, and basing a lot of their their plans and you know functional activities uh, around these ideas that Ajalon had been you know writing about for years and years. Um, and so you kind of have this mix of all these armed organizations that are to some extent descended from the PKK. Um, but are now much broader than just sort of a Kurdish liberatory organization. These are the folks who who fought and defeated ISIS in northeast Syria. Um, yeah, that's I don't know. I, there's there's so much to get into, but I guess that's kind of the the broad strokes and all of these different because there's a bunch of different militias. You know, there's there's militias yeah. that are kind of more traditionalist uh, Arab militias. There's there's Armenian militias in the area. There's obviously these Kurdish militias, the YPG and the YPJ, primarily Kurdish militias. And the, but they all fight under the banner of the SDF. Um, and to the Turks, they're all the PKK. Yes. I'm glad you mentioned all the different militias and stuff because it gets really confusing. Like even, yeah. I mean, I'm Syrian and I'm just like, I cannot keep up. Uh, I talked to my parents about it too. And they're just like, that's, it's, it's, it's complicated. So I think you did a good job breaking that down. I also want to mention they were the only people fighting ISIS in Syria. Yeah. So I think it's pretty notable to, to yeah. mention. Yeah. Yeah. I got a list of the founding groups of the SDF. So this happens in 2015, right? Um, sort of uh, mm-hmm. earlier in, in the fight against ISIS. Um, and some of these groups are descended, like Shireen said, not not from the YPJ or the YPG. And, and Robert said this too, that they they come from the FSA, the Free Syrian Army, like the, specifically the FSA around the Kobani area, contributed elements. There's the Syriac Military Council. So that's a distinct ethnic group. Um, there is the uh, Jayash or al Thuwar. If I said that right? Uh, no, but I can say it if you want. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. Magical. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Jayesh at the war. Jayesh means army or like, uh, yeah. yeah, army. Yeah, Jayesh. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's annoying because so in, in English it's spelled Jayesh, but it's just Jayesh. So, yeah. Uh. Yeah, the revolutionary army, army of revolutionaries, I guess more accurately. Who are a mi- another mixed ethnicity group? They, they, like Robert said, include Turkmen, Armenians, um, all kinds of different ethnic groups. So, like at this point, the the entity that is the SDF is a majority Arab entity. It, it's not uh, like an mm. ethnic Kurdish thing, and 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 the autonomous administration is not like a Kurdish ethno state. Um, which I think is something that people can sometimes either confuse or, or conflate. But like that, that's not the case, right? That that's not what this sort of democratic federalism is about, nor is it what's represented in, in terms of the composition of the, of the people there, so people doing the fighting, right? So um, sometimes these groups will be referred to on mass as like quote unquote the Kurds. You should by how kind of messy my explanation was. It is hard to walk people through this. Folks' eyes tend mm-hmm. to glaze over for one thing when you mention a certain number of acronyms. Um, but this leads to a <laughs> yeah. situation whereby the U.S. news is just like the Kurds defeated ISIS in northeast Syria. Right. And yes. Like, no, yeah. there was there were a whole lot of other people who did a lot of dying yeah. uh, to to, yeah. to win and that some battle. Who weren't involved. And some yeah. Kurds who were not involved. Um, There's so, also just so yeah. much infighting. I think that it gets. I don't know. It's it's a lot. It's a lot. It, it is. It is a lot like saying yeah. the Americans defeated the Nazis, and it's like, well, there were yeah. some other people <laughs> yeah. involved in that fight. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I've seen some films, Robert. And let me tell you. Um, but yes, I think I think Robert is right. Like it collapses two things, right? Like the uh, heterogeneity of, of Kurdish people, right? Different Kurdish areas, different Kurdish movements, mm-hmm. and, and the heterogeneity of the SDF. So, uh, yeah. 
mainstream use sometimes yeah because shocking it is uh, also worth noting like kurds are not certainly not a like um a, a monolithic group for examining northeast syria is like flatlands lowlands and there's a big difference between the mountain kurds and the kurds who live in these like lowlands and traditionally even like a lot of like bad blood and stuff between different groups because you know that's just the way human beings are like yeah for, yeah um for yeah like yeah. it, it um, it's really easy, I think, for when we're consuming news, especially news about the part of the world that the uh, the populace here hasn't been spectacularly well informed on, to break things down into easy groups, right? Like, mm -hmm. you'll see a lot as well, like Sunni and Shia, as like the the two categories that right. can exist within, uh, like, and then people get very confused when there are categories within that when when there are where when there are Sunni groups fighting each other, um, mm -hmm. yeah, and the same with like. Kurds or Turkmen or whatever, like none of these groups are homogenous. Um, and, and sometimes, yeah, if you're, I get it. If you're doing a five minute piece for TV, you, you, that's what you do. But here we are not doing a five minute piece for TV. Um, so yeah, this is, this has not been like Kurdish history 101. Please read some more books about that. I'll put some in the uh, sources. Uh, but what I want to talk about today is some of these Bayraktar attacks on specifically YPJ, right? So the YPJ would be the Women's Defense Forces. So that's a women's militia within the SDF um, that, as, as Robert said, is based heavily, I guess, on the outlook of uh, Abdullah Ocalan, uh, who's sometimes called Apo. Uh, so we might use that for brevity here. So in one attack in April 2022, three YPJ fighters were killed. Dilar Haleb, who had participated in the resistance of the Sheikh Masood district of Aleppo in 2012. She'd become a leading YPJ commander and participated in the fight against ISIS, playing a leading role in the liberation of the city of Mimbik. Rahani Kabani. It's worth noting, I guess, sorry, I stop every 15 seconds to explain context, that you'll hear sometimes place names in people's names. That's because they're like nom de guerre rather than that this is not their like legal name necessarily, but it's it's uh, it's standard practice for these people to take like a movement name or a nom de guerre, um, much like Robert and I explained in the episodes on Myanmar. Uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's a lot of people do this a lot of places. Um, is that fair, Robert? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's... um. Um, a lot of like, oftentimes people just like take a name based on their city that they came from, yeah. like Kobani or whatever. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty much the norm that most people, mo most fighters will introduce themselves by some sort of nom de guerre. Yeah. Um, even some of the, I know people who are like British or American who have been over there, who yeah. are over there and they also have these, uh, nom yeah. de guerre. Uh, and there's a there's a lot in that. One thing you have to keep in mind is that like a lot of these people who are revolutionaries, who consider themselves revolutionaries, have family in regime controlled parts of town or or <laughs> parts of Syria or in um you know in Idlib, which is largely controlled by these like more Turkish backed uh uh Islamist groups. And so part mm -hmm. of why you do this is like I don't want my family like getting caught up in in this shit. Like yeah. if they live somewhere else, like I don't want to like bring that down on them. It's just safer. Yeah, just yeah. like when we did our Myanmar yeah. episodes, right? We had Meowk and Andy and Sarah. Um, another woman, as I said, Rahani Kabane, joined the YPGA in 2014. She fought against ISIS. She was wounded. She participated after recovering in the, in the liberation of Raqqa. And she was the co-chair of the defense committee in Kabane. Um, and then there was a youngest, the youngest woman. Uh, she just joined, I guess, or had joined at a young age. And she was called Kabane. Um, and she, 
like she joined after the fight against ISIS. She's, she was very young. There are pictures. I'll include a report. It's very sad to see someone yeah. like so young. They look, they look um, like uh, there's a couple of them that look like babies. Like it's, it's really devastating because it's, I don't know, their lives are taken from them and they join to. It's, 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 it's empowering, and then it's devastating because it's just like they fought so hard and then they, they were assassinated. Literally, they were murdered. Yeah, it, it's. When, especially when you consider that so many of these, like uh, the women who fought against ISIS, right? Like, uh, and, and I think we could all probably understand why women would would want to do that. Um, like, wanted to create a place where young girls could grow up and be who they wanted to be, and and do what they wanted to do, and and uh, like not have to. Obviously, like kowtow to this extremely violent, misogynist organization like ISIS, but also like not necessarily have to fight either, and, and you know can could be self-realized in whatever way they wanted to. And so to see these people having achieved their goal largely of, of I guess, ISIS still exists, right? And ISIS still continues to kill people. It killed 10 people yesterday. Um, but that's the 8th of August, because you won't hear this uh, today. But um, to see these people who have like successfully at least liberated the territory and then their young women are still dying. Uh, yeah. But not... Fighting ISIS, uh, but fighting Turkey. I can go on and give, like, there are dozens of examples of this report. Um, another one I'll just give in July 2022, uh, there was a YPJ commander called Roj Kabur and a fighter called Barin Botan. Um, so uh, one of them had been, and then another one called, uh, another YPJ commander called Gian Tolhidan. Tolhidan. Um, so these two women had been involved in the fight against ISIS, like from the beginning, having uh, like liberated cities, liberated territory. And then they were with this young woman who was 19 years old uh, and had relatively recently joined the YPJ, right? And was was killed by a drone strike. It's like, it's particularly galling, I think for me at least to, so that the YPJ information office is someone I, I communicate with, like for work stuff. And um, it's particularly galling to like, wake up, right, and see that on your phone, uh, like to get a message and look at a report, see a picture of a car, like blown to pieces. At the same time as like, the Bayraktar is a drone that uh, Turkey has sold to Ukraine in large numbers, right, which has been hugely effective in destroying Russian armor. And like, it's kind Earlier of Earlier become... on, at least, was. it's it's It seems yes, to not fair. really work. I mean, a lot of stuff has changed, obviously. Like, new technology is extremely effective early on before there's countermeasures. Anyway, whatever. We don't need to get nerdy about this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it certainly, like, in the first months of the war, yeah. uh, like, the war in Ukraine became, like, a meme. Uh, you can, you yes. can buy a stuffed Bayraktar on Etsy or eBay, like, like a soft toy, uh, like a teddy bear. Um there are songs about it. That's so it. disturbing. Uh, that is so disturbing. It's not, it's not great. Yeah, it was, and it was one of those things where, like, obviously, I was happy to see effective tools being used by the Ukrainians to, like, defend their home. Yes, of course. But uh, I'm not ever going to get up and stand the uh, the Turkish defense industry, or, yeah, defense, <laughs> yes, like, yeah. industry. For the, and for the record, I feel the same way about, like, the people standing, standing, you know, different U.S. defense contractors making stuff mm -hmm. like, you know, long-range missile systems. Like, no, nah, I'm not, I'm not really a fan of that. Like, I get it. Sometimes, you know, when you're being invaded, you use the tools available, but I, that doesn't mean we need to celebrate that. 
Yeah, exactly. I think the tools are largely kind of agnostic. Um, any anyone who's sort of is is making things to kill people purely for profit, it's not necessarily a good a good thing to do with your life, I guess. Uh, and like, I, I it's just troubling to me to see people like cheering this on without like. It highlights one, like the way that people engage with conflict, um, especially yes. online, especially in the US. Which Fandom, is, yeah. It's, it's not a computer game. It, it's someone's 19-year-old fucking daughter. It's someone's mum or sister yeah. or brother or uncle or dad or non-binary relative. I mean, um, the fact that you can buy like a stuffed fucking weapon, like little drone thing on eBay, it's... it's that's just so disturbing. I'm, I, I really just don't like humans when I think about that. Yeah, I understand why it happens this way. And I understand why if your country is being invaded and you can get more support from the international community by leaning into this shit, you lean into this shit. But I don't like the idea of like some, I don't know, fucking uh, accountant in Iowa uh, watching hundreds of videos of like Russian soldiers being killed and then like getting yeah. a fucking Lockheed Martin tattoo. Right. Um, like the, like <laughs> fan, the, the like, like turning... Turning uh, your support for people, you know, in a deadly military conflict into like fandom, treating it the way you treat like mm -hmm. a Marvel movie or whatever, I, I find not great. Yeah, it's just not like um, I understand why. Like, I wouldn't blame anyone in Ukraine for being super excited about having Bayraktars because yeah. it stops people burning their homes and, and killing their children. Yeah, and, like fair. I would want that too. No, just but, like yeah, if you're if you're uh, like I have a friend who I went. Like we we were in fucking Avdivka together, like sheltering with people from Russian shells and stuff, who then went on to join the Ukrainian military and has been fighting since the expanded invasion. If he wants to share videos or watch videos of like, you know, dead Russian soldiers from Telegram, like that's war. It's unpleasant, but I, I get it. Like, again, if you're some dude in fucking Wisconsin doing the same thing, I, I find that pretty unsettling. Like, cause yeah, because you don't need to. Yeah. No, you don't need to. You don't need to dehumanize those people so you can kill them because you're not killing them. Yeah. Uh, but you, you seem to have engaged in that same dehumanization, which is necessary for people fighting I, I, because, I don't know, yeah. maybe you think you're helping. It's hard to, to shoot fight, people right? otherwise. <laughs> like, yeah, right. yes, sometimes yeah, you yeah, have there's to There's a reason. It's that's war. hard yeah. to fucking bayonet yeah. people, right? There's a reason that bayonet training is, is yeah. one of these things that's particularly just kind of it has to be yeah. violent you you have to be horrible you know yeah. like it's there's no nice way to stab someone um but the yeah it, it doesn't mean that you need to tweet about it um mm -hmm. especially folks mm -hmm. who maybe aren't perhaps is on the ground familiar as what this looks like so yeah. um i wanted to maybe get into a little bit and there are as i said dozens of these drone attacks they really ramped up in early 2023 along with like a kind of a larger air offensive right they continue to happen uh like almost weekly um if people want to i guess keep tabs ypj info is the the ypj's kind of public facing uh press website uh roger information center is a good english language resource um both of those you can find on uh x uh or if you, oh, if, if you want to look somewhere else <laughs> you can also search for them uh and we go say to their websites do we just say x no no, no we, we sure don't it. we, we don't absolutely wink do and a not. nudge yeah okay yeah. great thanks no. Yeah. X uh, is no, not, in fact, going to give it to us. <laughs> <laughs> Only like a we certain generation website. will understand that one, that I like that. Yeah, there's a narrow overlap there, buddy. Yeah. Uh, 
you shot the gap though. Yeah, yeah. You know what is going to give it, and by it I mean uh, the money that pays our wages uh, to us. No. What is it, James? It is its combination of products and services. I wow. oh man, I love a good product. Mm-hmm. Me too. I don't love services actually. I'm very anti-service, but you know, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll see. It might it might change your opinion. It might be something amazing. Unlikely, pro- probably gold. But yeah, let's gold. hear from the advertisers. All right, we're back. Uh, we hope you enjoyed those adverts as much as we did. Uh, so I want to talk about, in the second half of the episode, why uh, Turkey is using these drones to bomb people who, uh, like we said, have fought and largely defeated the territorial caliphate uh, of ISIS. Um, I did want to bring up one more drone incident, actually, which is particularly bad. So... One of the things that you'll often see the SDF and specifically the YPG and the YPJ kind of accused of is is having child soldiers or having recruiting people who are under age yeah. to fight. Um, part of a program they've implemented to stop this with uh, consultation with the United Nations is building education centers, right? I- I'm not going to comment morally on who should be fighting at what age because I think it's yeah. not a judgment for us to make when mm-hmm. like... We didn't have it. ISIS in the fucking streets. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, look, I think there's a degree to which people are being unreasonable about this. I met a number of 17-year-olds. Yes. Yeah. It's generally when people talk about child soldiers, they are talking about 17-year-olds. I have friends yes. who joined They're the U.S. 12. Army when they were 17 years old. Like, I have yeah. friends who were learning how to drive a tank for the U.S. military at age 17. Um, and quite frankly, if you look at where, like, wars in history... 16 to 20 years old. That's most of the people who have fought most of the wars in most of history. That's like the way that it is. Uh, That's not pleasant. But like when we are talking, like I certainly I would be very supportive of laws put in place in our country to raise the age at which people can join the military so that they are not young and not getting taken advantage of to as much of a degree. But we are not fighting in any conflicts for our survival. Yeah, I think people that point the finger and like talk about child soldiers, whatever the shit, and they're and they are referencing like yeah basic teens. They they have the privilege of doing that. They don't have to even think about protecting themselves or their family or whatever. Yeah. I think when you are raised and in like a situation of violence, like Palestine's a great example of that. You see like boys like trying to defend yeah. their their country. It's like the same situation where. There's you don't have the privilege of waiting until you're fucking 21 or whatever. It's just like you have to you have to like protect yourself. Yeah, it's not the it's not a situation you are not being it's not like again, it's not like it is often when we talk about child soldiers like in the Liberian Civil War, right? Yeah, Where you've got yeah. kids being pulled in, you know, for the advantage of some warlord. Nor is it like in the United States where you have 17 and 8-year-old, 18-year-olds being recruited in a predatory way often by military recruiters um, and sent overseas in conflicts that are not necessary. We are talking about like ISIS is five blocks away and like God knows what they'll do to my mom and my sister yeah, if they exactly. take over. Like I'm gonna pick up a fucking gun, you know. Mm-hmm. What yeah. else? What else are you gonna do? That's the that's the world. Like they're living in a different uh, set of realities than we are. Yeah, and anyone that places judgment on that is just ignorant and uh, not <sighs> yeah, understanding I, of the reality of the world. They're just like in their little bubble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on August the 18th, 2022, a Turkish drone targeted one of these UN affiliated education centers right 
uh, it was two kilometers from the US coalition base and uh, it targeted a group of teenage girls playing volleyball. Um, it's very hard to see these education centers as like in any way a military target, right? They're literally designed to divert young people from becoming fighters um, and to, you know, they're set up with the consultation of the United Nations with the, you know, like with as much oversight as one can expect in an area which is still in the middle of a civil war and to, to be drone striking schools is, is pretty callous. Mm -hmm. um, it's also worth noting that like uh, a phrase that constantly gets thrown around a lot in discussion about the Middle East, right? It's the only democracy in the Middle East. Um, right. And it, 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 let me tell you, <laughs> it's not normally referring to this part of the world. Uh, it, it's referring to Israel. Um, and yeah. A, I, I don't think that's true. Israel, it, I mean, it's factually incorrect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it does it. What fucking def? Well, democracy is an extremely nebulous concept, right? right? But, yeah, yeah, sure. So, like, this is this is an area where people's votes have a substantive impact on how their lives are lived. Certainly more so than people who are Arabs in Israel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Arabs and in so, Israel, Kurds in southern Turkey, Syrians yes. in Syria. Like, yeah, yep, Kurds in, in, in Syria. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, people in parts of Iran, like fucking Iraqi, the, like uh, people in northern or in yes. under in the Baghdad government-controlled chunks of Iraq, for that matter. Yes, yeah, like all over, right? Like, um, so this isn't just an attack on like individual women; it's an attack on a state which is genuinely, at least, attempting to establish a new form of democracy, right? Like, a, like a more participatory more horizontally organized democracy. Uh, it's an attack on a state in the Middle East, which is like anti-patriarchal, which is something that we don't have here in the United States, right? Like yeah. it's, it's like we've, we have still failed to have a woman be president. Uh, like it's, it's an attack on these things, which most decent human beings should be able to get behind. Uh, these attacks also don't just affect the people who are killed, right? They continue to displace families. They contribute to fuel shortages. They create power cuts. They suspend schools. They stop aid organizations working in the area because it's too high risk or they perceive it to be too high risk. Um, and they stop the SDF continuing their operations against ISIS, right? Like um, ISIS, as I said, continue to exist. They have sleeper cells. Uh, there was an attempted prison break last year. Two of the women from the YPJ who had fought to stop those ISIS prisoners breaking out of their prison were later killed in the drone strike. Uh, it, it's very hard to see this as not helping that uh, like that ISIS insurgency that they're fighting and hindering their operations. Uh, and I'm not just saying this based on sources that are um, like the Roger Information Center or people in the AANES, but this is a, this is the policy of the United States, right? Um, before we started this, I looked up some of the Inspector General's reports from Operation Inherent Resolve, which is the United States operation to lead a coalition, which includes the SDF against ISIS. And they were talking about how the SDF's operations are hindered because they keep getting shot by drones, right? Um, and that there's not much that they can do about it, right? Uh, unlike like Ukraine, we're not sending ton of uh, surface-to-air missiles or like uh, things that you could use to, to defend yourself against drones, right? Um, not that it's very easy to defend yourself against a drone. Uh, so why is Turkey doing this? I think firstly, because as Robert said, it, it sees the SDF and the PKK as the same thing, right? Um, so 
the PKK, uh, mostly operates, like Robert said, in the mountains of southeastern Turkey. And it's been fighting this asymmetrical war against the Turkish state since 1984. Um, so Erdogan, uh, so Erdogan is the president of Turkey, right? He entered office in 2003, and he's sort of pivoted on Turkish issues, uh, on Kurdish issues. Sorry, he uh, continues to, to be Turkish. Um, but he was initially in favor of like a negotiated peace with the PKK in his early years, included like proposals for linguistic autonomy, the right to a Kurdish press, and uh, even like the return of Kurdish place names, which is a big deal still, yeah. uh, right? And, yeah. like, um, you'll see like... Uh, Kamishlo or uh, or Al Kamishli, like one being Arab, the latter being Arabic, the the former being Kurdish, right? Yeah, I mean it's just a, it's a huge deal because you're not just killing like people, you're killing a a culture that's like in like it's not what's the like a different word to say extinct? Like it's in danger of like not being there if it's not for the people protecting it, right? And I think it's uh, yeah. like a classic tactic to stop people from using their language or customs or whatever to just like try to erase them and like make them Turk or whatever they want them to be. And so the proposal of that I think is significant, but then obviously the follow through is a different story. Yeah. The follow through is not there. Right. So after 2015, he's really pivoted and he's pursued like a really violent anti-Kurdish policy. And it's worth noting, as you said, that for much of the 20th century, the Turkish state denied the existence of Kurdish people altogether. They called them mountain Turks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even in March 2021, the Turkish Ministry of Education released a book in the Kurdish minority. It's a province called Diyarbakir. Diyarbakir? Uh, I guess it's it's Turkish. Uh, which, it doesn't mention Kurds. It's a Kurdish majority province. It doesn't mention the Kurdish language. Uh, it claims that it's a Turkish dialect that's spoken there. Um, they changed the name in August 2021 of a 17th century mosque uh, from the, the words translating from the Turkish to the Kurds mosque, and they called it the Turks mosque. Uh, in 2023, uh, Turkey dropped its objection, um, so its objection is an effective veto, right, to Finland and Sweden joining NATO, uh, when the latter pledged to devote more attention to the PKK and effectively end its decades-old tradition of giving protection and asylum to Kurdish refugees. So if people aren't familiar, Sweden has been a country that's offered asylum to a lot of a lot of different groups of people. Uh, like I have a lot of friends from various stories I've done all over the world who have ended up uh, living in Sweden. And, and uh, Kurdish people are among those people, right, who have found a home and a safe place in Sweden. So encouraging Sweden to not do that gives people one less safe place to go, right? Yeah. Um, and it, yeah. This was kind of Turkey's like cost of entry for those people into NATO. Now, obviously, there's a reason that Sweden and uh, Finland want to join NATO, right? And that's that Russia is like right there and mm-hmm. has been doing some invasion recently. Um, and, and so they want that as kind of mutual aid, that mutual defense. And so they're being forced to give up this very reasonable policy of offering people asylum. Hi, everyone. It's me, James, and I am back uh, after what I hope was a fruitful and enjoyable advertising break for you. Uh, It is just me, and the reason for that is that someone outside is currently severing my telephone cable, judging by what I can hear and the fact that I no longer have the internet. So the second part of this episode will be me reading my script by myself without um, the interesting and often entertaining input of my colleagues. So sorry about that, but you will just have to make do. 
Turkey's been involved in a Syrian civil war since the beginning. Initially, it armed and equipped the anti-Assad FSA. But in August 2016, it began a direct occupation of parts of northern Syria under Operation Euphrates Shield. In 2017, it facilitated the establishment of the Syrian National Army and the Syrian Interim Government, which it finances. Turkey has accused the Syrian Democratic Forces, to which the YPG and YPJ belong, of, quote, seizing and ethnically cleansing territories which don't belong to Kurds. There isn't really any credible evidence for this, and the UN has refuted these claims. Some people have, have moved, right, like as happens in many conflicts, but uh, the SMI saw was like 25 families. Erdogan has openly expressed the sentiment that Kurdish people don't belong in northern East Syria, saying, these areas are not suitable for the lifestyle of Kurds because these areas are virtually desert. Deportations of Syrians who have been uh, who have sought refuge in Turkey, right? So people from Syria who have fled the civil war, uh, but three and just over three and a half million people are living in Turkey, right? Um, Turkey has declared its intention to move one million of these people back to Syria, and it has already begun moving these people back to northwest Syria in the, in the areas it occupies, right? Uh, the U.S. State Department in a press conference on the 4th of August denied that this constituted a demographic change, uh, but I think that that's very heavily disputed by people on the ground. Certainly the YPJ and the YPG would dispute that, right? That, that the, um, the Kurdish people who have been driven out of some of the areas that Turkey occupies are, are being replaced by these people that are being moved back in by Turkey. Turkey was of course the entry point for much of the weaponry and many of the people who joined ISIS in Syria. Foreign policy, the publication, has estimated that more than 30,000 people crossed Turkey along the so-called jihadi highway. Um, later, Turkey clamped down on this a bit, um, but certainly in my coverage of the smuggling of weapons and equipment to ISIS, uh, it, they were going through Turkey. Uh, Turkey was also directly engaged with the defeat of ISIS, right? Turkey's troops for ISIS um, in parts of northern Syria. Meanwhile, Turkey has also enforced an economic blockade of the autonomous area of northeast Syria, and it's even restricted water flowing into the region, right? So, so at some point, weapons and humans have flowed, flowed through Turkey to ISIS, and at this point, water is not flowing in sufficient quantities through Turkey to the autonomous area of northeast Syria. And in 2018, Turkey started what's called Operation Olive Branch. It's a military operation in which Turkish and Syrian National Army forces took control of the city of Afrin. The assault included the alleged use of chemical gas, shelling of civilian areas, and shooting of fleeing refugees. Kurdish shrines, flags, cultural and historical sites were targeted and destroyed by Turkish military forces. A hospital was bombed. Reporters Without Borders noted that reporting on the conflict had been hamstrung by the Turkish government more than 30,000 Kurdish people have been displaced and their homes have been taken by those relocated refugees who we spoke about. Olive farms in the area have been seized and then leased to fund the operation of the pro-Turkish Syrian National Army. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights has documented these forces threatening to behead Kurds and the Independent, that's the newspaper, has noted that some of the people fighting alongside the SNA are themselves former cadres of ISIS. Uh, in its reporting, The Independent reported that, and I quote, video posted online shows three uniformed jihadis singing a song in praise of their past battles. And it says, quote, how we were steadfast in Grozny, that's in Chechnya, Dagestan, 
and we took the Torah Bora. Um, that's Torah Bora is a cave complex, formerly the headquarters of Osama bin Laden. Uh, and now Afreen is calling to us. There's a song they were singing, right? Um, that's suggesting that they're, they're sort of a fight, they're casting this in, in a long line of, of these battles that, that have been fought um, by these various, I guess, Islamist groups. Um, just to be super clear on Islamist versus Islamic, because I don't, want people to confuse the two things. Uh, one is a political outlook, right? Being an Islamist is a political uh, outlook. And it, it focuses on, uh, it uses uh, an interpretation of Islam, which is certainly not the mainstream one. Uh, it, it's not my place to say whether or not it, it's, it's a correct one, but it's certainly not the one that most Muslims in the world agree with. Uh, and it, it's it's the interpretation of that faith that you'll have seen uh, with groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, right? Um, but that, that that is not to say by any means that all Muslim people agree with this because they don't. There are Muslim people, many thousands, hundreds of thousands of them who have been targeted, killed by these people, right? And um, I just wanted to be super clear on that distinction. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights has also noted members of the Turkish fascist group, the Grey Wolves, fighting alongside the SNA. Um, so standing in the United States, it's easy to see this Turkish operation as a consequence of Trump's choice to abandon the SDF and the people who defeated ISIS. And to a large degree it is, but it also represents a long-term goal of Erdogan's Turkey, which has tried without success to get support for its plans to build a buffer zone 30 kilometers deep along its border with Syria, and to fill that buffer zone with Syrian refugees, who increasingly end up in Turkey. In particular, Turkey has objected to plans by the United States to train and equip a 30,000-person strong border force. Uh, this went through several different naming iterations, so it doesn't really matter, it's a border force, right? Um, before the attack, Russian military officials proposed handing over Freen to Assad as a compromise. So we haven't talked about Russia much, Robert talks about this in his series, uh, but the, Russia is in Syria as an ally of the Assad regime, um, and uh, it has sort of acted as a go-between uh, between the SDF and the Assad regime, and in, it has proposed in this instance, right, that um, that the SDF withdraw from Afrin, which is the the, the area they, that Turkey invaded in Operation Olive Branch in 2018, and it said if you guys pull out and you hand us over to Assad, the Turks won't invade; they won't directly take on Assad like that. The SDF refused, right? The authorities are in a very tense relationship with Damascus, which is where Bashar al-Assad's government is based, right? Uh, they've both received aid from them and been attacked by them. Uh, after they were abandoned by the US and Russia, and they knew that Turkey... Russia Russia was aware that Turkey had plans to invade, right? And obviously didn't do anything to stop it. Um, so they these SDF felt that they were abandoned by the US and Russia with very, very good reason to feel that way. The ANES scrambled to find a new ally to protect them. And they found one in the Assad government. Uh, this, this wasn't, like, I don't think a choice that they wanted to make, uh, but I think the rest of the world didn't leave with many options. So uh, I'm quoting here from Muslum Abidi, the SDF's commander-in-chief. Uh, he wrote an op-ed in Foreign Policy. It'll, it'll be linked in our sources at the end of the month. If we have to choose between compromise and genocide, we will choose our people, he said. Numerous fighters who fought ISIS and foreign volunteers have died in Afrin. So in, in that initial operation, right, um, when the SDF opposed Turkish invasion, numerous people died. Uh, one of them was a Briton named Anna Campbell. Uh, she went by Helene 
Keracogs. I might have fucked that pronunciation up, but uh, not. It might tend to be disrespectful if I have. She was killed by Turkish Michelle Nefreen. Her father, Dirk Campbell, has been campaigning ever since to have his daughter's remains returned. His case remains with the courts and has been entirely crowdfunded. Uh, he submitted a claim to the European Court of Human Rights after hearing nothing from the Turkish courts. And when he did that, the Turkish courts picked up the case that he'd submitted there. You can also find a link to this in the sources, but it's crowdjustice.com slash case slash help hyphen bring hyphen Anna hyphen home. Uh, they've raised all the money they need uh, at the moment, but uh, doubtless they will need more in the future. So where does all this leave the people of North and East Syria? Right, These are people who have been impacted by the uh, territorial caliphate of the Islamic State and all the horrific things that people will be aware happened there. They're people who have successfully fought for and achieved their freedom only to be attacked by another state. And they are people who have suffered the same earthquake that Turkey suffered in February of this year, 2023. 4,000 people died in Afrin, right, which is a city which is now occupied by Turkish and SNA troops. And... Turkey pushed a little bit further east uh, in Operation quote-unquote Peace Spring a year after Olive Branch. And currently, uh, Turkey is cutting water flow to pumping stations it controls that feed water to the area. This combines with the impact of the earthquake and the ongoing burden of controlling one of the largest prisons on Earth, which is the Al-Hol prison, which holds the majority of the ISIS fighters and their families who were not either killed or returned to the states from which they came. Um, we'll have more on the Al-Hol prison next week. Uh, there's infighting between militias in the Turkish areas, which obviously impact Turkish-controlled areas. Obviously, that impacts civilians. There's arbitrary arrests. There's the increasing Turkification of areas like Afrin, right? including instruction in the Turkish language. Um, like Shireen said earlier, it's one of the things that's integral to maintaining national identity is education, right? Um, in my experience, studying Catalan identity, getting education in Catalan was vital to fomenting and continuing Catalan identity. Um, Kurdish identity is not national in the same way. Uh, the, the identity in the AANES, I guess, is not national. But this uh, Turkification, right, the flying of Turkish flags above buildings which are not military buildings, right, like above hospitals and that kind of thing, again, is, is a, a marginalization of the people who already live there and who have lived there for a long time. Uh, SDF guerrilla units like Wrath of Olives and a Free Liberation Front are involved in fighting with the Syrian National Army. And that fighting kills civilians, right? Um, throughout Afrin, there have been things like car bombs. Um, the Free Liberation Front uh, goes by HRE from the Kurdish initials, right? And, and they've carried out some attacks on SNA militias in, in the last few days. Uh, you can often see videos of those online if that's the sort of thing you like to see. There are still landmines that kill civilians in the area, and there are still ISIS sleeper cells bombing and killing people. Um, last week, the autonomous administration of North and East Syria responded to Turkey's ongoing aggression by issuing a statement claiming Turkey's operations are forcing the SDF to divert personnel away from countering ISIS and threatening the stability of the area. Obviously, this is all after an earthquake which killed 4,000 people in Afrin. Um, People that have access to as many hospitals there, for instance, lots of them still have to travel to Turkey to get cancer treatment, right? And so this leaves the people uh, of North and East Syria in a very precarious situation, right? In which there are, um, they're now left largely without the solidarity that they experienced when they were fighting ISIS, right? And, and it's very difficult 
just like in so many cases, uh, like I feel this way about Myanmar too, to see the US and Europe expressing solidarity and solidarity in the form of lethal aid, right? Solidarity in the form of surface-to-air missiles and tanks and rifles and bulletproof vests and medical aid and all the things that you need to sustain a fight to, to Ukraine. And they should, they should do that. I'm not saying for a moment that they shouldn't, right? Ukraine has been invaded by a much bigger and more powerful military and, and it has every right to defend itself. And I'm glad that we're helping. Uh, but but I wish that we would help other people too, especially people who uh, we have sort of made promises to that we've not kept or people who we've encouraged to believe um, in the case of Myanmar, right? That they have a right to, to a better life. And then when they decide to defend that, we don't stand behind them. Uh-huh. So yeah, that, that's my episode. Um, sorry for the weird uh, juxtaposition of me doing the last part scripted, but uh, somebody outside is drilling through my phone cable. So yeah, thank you for joining me. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. This is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Voice. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.